everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 408. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span and Bix. We have a Patreon request to show this week, and we're going 10 years in time. So this this will be a new ground for us to talk about on the show. So, uh, yeah, it should be quite the show this week, I say. Yeah, we've got uh, The Shield, and we've got CM Punk as... Oh, wait, no, he's not WWE Champion anymore. What am I talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean, though. We've got... Uh, the latter days of CM Punk in WWE, we've got all sorts of stuff we had definitely have not talked about on this show before. Um, but the main reason that Alan Peissner put down the $25 on the Patreon to request this show is that it's one of the most infamous moments and situations in U.S. indie wrestling in the last 10, 15 years. And that is the Chikara shutdown angle and all of the weird shit that was going on with that. As we're doing the week that was... Hold on. I, I realize I don't actually have the notes open. Chris? <laughs> May 31st through June the 6th of 2013. Yeah. And since we're doing this um, subject as the uh, impetus for this show... And we needed to have somebody on that had an expert opinion on this situation, who was uh, boots on the ground at the time with Chikara. And yes, we are joined this week by the former Leonard F. Chikarison, Joe Sposta. And Joe, you're not going to be on for the whole show, you're just on for the indie section, but uh, there's going to be enough audio here, I'm sure, on your end here to cover pretty much a whole show, just, just about a whole show at least. Yeah, and again, uh, thank you. Uh, you said Alan Peisner was the gentleman's name? Alan Peisner, yes. Who's yes. requested shows in the past. Just, just so you know, Alan, you are breaking Chris's heart to make him talk about Chikara this month. <laughs> well, hey, I mean, hey, it, it's not, hey, I'm, I'm taking it easy in this segment. Because, right. you know, I mean, full disclosure, <laughs> as I've said on the show before, you know, this is in the era where I had quit basically covering U.S. Indies stuff on the Def Alger message board. So I wasn't really reporting on U.S. Indies at the time. I wasn't really watching U.S. Indies at the time. And Chikara, I've never really watched Chikara at all. So, I mean, I've seen bits and pieces, but uh, I am far from a Chikara expert or even have any sorts of knowledge because i mean for full you know more full disclosure i hate a quack's fucking guts <laughs> i thought it was a fucking douchebag in 2001 <laughs> i was proven right years later um i mean you were proven right multiple times because uh, one of the things that we're gonna get into which is accusations of him cheating on a significant other with a student that is a thing that I believe had been brought up to you and us by another ex we won't name in the past. And, and, and be honest, I wasn't a big fan of his wife either. So, <laughs> you know, I mean... It, it well, was... wait, are we talking about his wife or are we talking about the girlfriend before his wife? Well, the girlfriend before his wife, excuse me. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I boy, do I have a... Do I have a big fan of her either. <laughs> do I have... Question for you guys off air. <laughs> yes, yes. Because uh, uh, I, I know who you're talking about. Because I used to read live journals back in the day too. 
Yeah, I ain't naming no names. All right, all right. But uh, people that know know the old yeah, yeah. the old heads know. Mm. Yes, yeah. Bix, you're, yes, Bix, you are correct. Yeah. I got. I, I mean, that was more uh, for Joe's yes. benefit, but yes. Yeah, um, she would that, come in the Defcon driver chat room and oh. <laughs> That's all I gotta say. Is, oh. So you won't be picking up any comic books from DC anytime in the near future either. <laughs> no, uh, okay. uh, no, I guess no. not. But but anyway, <laughs> I mean, like I said, I, so this this section right here, the show, you know, I'm gonna do my part, but Bix and uh, Joe's gonna be doing the heavy lifting. I mean, I don't even know that much about the car. I never watched the car that much. I just know what like. Well, this is in your wheelhouse. This is in your wheelhouse, though, because this is all about uh, all kinds of salaciousness. And, oh, stop you know, it! But yes, like I know. That. But yeah, I know. I know what Joe. I almost said quack, which Jesus. Uh, what Joe and others have told me, mainly. But well, anyway, all right. So Dave really had nothing of note in the Observer about this, so we will lean on. Before weekly, and in this point in time, Brian's really not that much involved in that. So this is Vinny that's doing ma- mainly all the reporting here, front of, front of the show, Vincent Verhai. Oh, anyway, I didn't even let's... realize that. Okay, so yeah, even though Brian's the one who had worked for Chikara once, this is a Vinny thing mainly. Mainly, yes. I don't even remember. Just as a, just as a side note, wait a second. Brian I don't remember Vinny worked news though. Well, he was. I mean, I mean, Brian may have been involved, but he was not doing much of anything. In but the, I'm saying uh, this is in Allen or anyone else like that, or well, I don't know who all. See, I don't know who all was doing shadow work behind the scenes. Let's put it that way. And but, Brian's but, one time that he worked for Chikara was through Fight Sports Midwest, which was through Mikey Blanton mm-hmm. and Larry Sweeney. It had mm-hmm. little to nothing to do. Yes. Uh, with Chikara, and that in and of itself was a famous show. Uh, that's the show where Lindsay Dorado did the big whatever and knocked himself out and was like he was supposed to go over on Mitch Ryder in the match, and Mitch Ryder was supposed to get his head shaved, and Lindsay was like out, out, and obviously to protect the sanctity of the angle. And again, obviously, this, what we're going to be talking about, is like the culmination of every thing that people hate about Chikara for the most part, if you don't have, if you've never had a personal interaction with Quack, a lot of people's biggest problem with Chikara, and I've seen it, it's moral combat wrestling, it's comic book wrestling. I don't want to follow these storylines and all this other nonsense, right? And, you know, there was early days in like 04 and 05, it was a very simple, straightforward storyline. And then just as Chikara got bigger and bigger, it, it, I think like Quack felt like, well, the storyline has to get bigger and bigger, you know? And then it comes to this point here where, you know, the sh- the company shuts down in grand fashion. Well, let's talk about that. All right, so let's go to Figure Four Weekly. The Chikara wrestling promotion, at least in name, appears to be finished, at least for the time being, following the Never Compromise iPay-Per-View event in Philadelphia. Yes, and all unlike right, so- other uh, iPay-Per-Views of that era, the Smart Arc ones, in all fairness, never failed, if I remember right. Um, I think, right, so, you know, obviously early in those days, a lot of people were using Go Fight Live, and I think one of the first ones that we did was with Go Fight Live, and then it was one of those things where 
Go Fight Live would forget a cable, or they would forget a this, or like, oh, we don't have enough chargers. Oh, so or... they were actually incompetent. It wasn't just that they were having bad luck in the early days of streaming. They, they were, were incompetent. They were incompetent, and Smartmark was always like mega prepared. Right. They always had like people traveling in like droves, and especially for this, like the entire like West Coast West Coast crew of like Robles and everyone else. Um, like came in like the Friday so that there was going to be no failures. Like everything was there and charged and like quack sprung for hotel rooms for people that were like right around the corner so that there was no fuss, no muss, you know, and I think even to put things in a perspective. So like they come in on Friday, they film a bunch of stuff and I think it's out there on uh, IWTV, you know, with the shoot interviews that they did. Eddie and I did a shoot interview um, for Smart Mark the Saturday before the show, and we knew it was coming out afterwards. And on the shoot interview, we acted as though the company had already shut down since it was, <laughs> you know what I mean? Since it was coming out afterwards. Um, what, there was but... no decree from Bob Saget censoring you? Well, OK, so we'll get into that when it comes up in the in the storyline, but we could talk about it now. You know, I have talked to so many people and, you know, there was definitely a line of people, myself, who was doing commentary on the show. Derek Sabato, who does a bit on the show. Eddie, who, you know, obviously is in the main event. Uh, Icarus, who's the other part of the main event. Like that higher end of the card, none of those people signed an NDA, this illustrious NDA. The NDAs that were signed were mostly by either brand new students that had been brought on within that year or people that Quack just didn't trust. And the only one person who put up any sort of stink about whatever it was, was Akuma. Akuma's like, I, this is like too much for me. He's like, I'm done. I thought we were going to be wrestling. I don't want to be involved with like this elaborate storyline bullshit. I'm done. Like, uh, don't even approach me with like what my part in this is. I have no part. I'm out. <laughs> knowing uh, him from knowing him from Twitter, that 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 does not surprise me. One right. Bit. <laughs> and like I said, I I was never given an edict of don't say this or do say this. I think there were certain people that were given enough information months in advance that knew if like we're going to continue with this and we want this thing to be a success, we all kind of need to like play as though it's real. And then, like, there was probably students that had come on, like, maybe that January, and now this is June. You know, they're less than six months into the company. And the people that I talked to that signed them, they said that they were, you know, I don't want to say forced to sign these things, but definitely were signed in duress. Like, it was more or less a thing of, like, if you don't sign this, you can't train here anymore. And, you know, people still looked at Chikar at the time as, like, a top three indie, you know, yeah. like – if I mean, Ring of Honor was number one, would draw. Well, ROH isn't even an indie anymore. Right. And like I said, if you consider ROH an indie, which a lot of people didn't, CZW, um, Evolved slash Dragon Gate, even if Dragon Gate is even part of this anymore, which I think it's like we're almost at the tail end of Dragon yes. Gate's yeah. official no longer involvement with Evolved stuff. And, you know, it was just Chikara had this reputation that you would be seen by lots of people. And... People signed these things, and obviously there were folks that I talked to within the last week since I was told that I was going to be on, and I asked them if they still had them, and they said no, but they do remember them being like literally like one page. And they're like, even then I knew they wouldn't hold up, <laughs> but 
it was just like it was more or less a thing to try to scare new people in Chikara to not say anything. Well, OK, before we move on and get to the meat of this, here's what's really interesting about that. And we can probably circle back to this later. There is a long in-person conversation I had about this with two former students a while back that I told you okay. about at the time. And I asked them, you know, for all the jokes, you know, quote unquote jokes people make about Chikara being a cult. When do you feel like it started happening? 2002. Well, they said, okay, but they said the shutdown and restart. And hearing about these NDAs and all that, I find that very interesting. Mm-hmm. So, I definitely, like, I, I talked to so many people that came on to Shikara after the shutdown angle, like, started training there, either at the time it began or right afterwards, and these are people that traveled like across the country to come and train and be a part of Chikara. And it was just it, it was something that just felt like so appetizing. And it was presented, you know, its outward appearance was that it was a family. It was this big group, this big collective of, of you know, these people that all are in the same mindset that Mike has. And like, obviously, they're not everybody's idea of what professional wrestling is. And you hopefully try to fit yourself into that. And. I could say that, like, I never, like, was part of the cult. Maybe we were about two years prior to this that I was more or less like, I enjoy doing this. I've made a lot of friends. It's a very high-profile spot for me. But, like, I just had a kid, and a lot of it was about the money. And, you know, one of the biggest knocks on Mike was that he didn't pay people, and he didn't. But it got to a point where, like, a lot was being asked of me. And I'm like, hey, Mike, if you're going to ask me to do X, I want to be compensated in this manner. And he immediately did. No pushback, no negotiation. It was one of those things where, like, he will allow you to work for him as long as you can without paying him unless you say something to him. You can complain about it all the time in the car rides, online, whatever. As soon as you say something to him like, hey, pay me, he'll pay you. Yeah. Which sucks, but that's just the way that he ran things. All right, well, let's uh, continue. Yeah. That rather convoluted opening sentence is a result of three days' worth of digging into what the situation actually is with the 11-year-old promotion. Rumors flew online the days prior to the event, and the most Chikara said publicly, outside of an interview with promoter Mike Quackenbush on the front page of Figure Four Online, which was origin character, was a two-sentence statement issued to our website last Thursday. There's no issue regarding the ownership of the Chikara name, brand, its assets, or intellectual properties. Any speculation to the contrary is 100% false. Quackenbush, who co-founded Chikara in 2002, has been notoriously secretive about the promotion in the past to the point where he often requested of me, and I guess this is Brian here, when interviewing him to ask him questions if he was a performer with the organization and not the promoter. Brian knew there was zero chance of him giving him any sort of information about what was going on at the iPad review, but figured it never hurt to ask. When Brian emailed, all he received was his response. Hello, I'm unavailable to read your message at this time. <laughs> what a cock. Uh, Quackenbush appeared to have turned on an email autoresponder sometime after the iPay-per-view, likely expecting the flood of emails from individuals wondering about the future of the promotion. Brian talked to a number of the people who were for or are working with the company, and many of them would not talk about it. It was said that Quackenbush made at least some of the performers sign non-disclosure agreements at the show, 
and those who would talk about and those who would talk without attribution attribution excuse me either weren't there for that particular show or had absolutely no idea what was going on the show closing angle was obviously just an angle during the 80 Kingston Icarus main event for the Chikara Grand Championship just as Icarus was about to get the submission victory and title detector of fun Director of Fun, excuse me. I don't know why I said Detector. Director of Fun, Wink Babasur, (laughs) commanded 20-some members of Condor Security to hit the ring, remove all the participants, tear down the set, and kick all the fans out of the building. That's exactly what happened. Some fans thought being part of the show was awesome, while others were very upset, some in tears. And one fan even did a diving body press into the door of the building and cracked the glass. What a fucking mark. He was apparently thrown back inside by the fake security, and the real security proceeded to inform him that he was going to have to pay $500 for the damage. The iPay-Per-View stream, iPay-per-view stream abruptly ended, and that was the end of that. <laughs> so... I, I see Bix pulling off the end of the show, but while he's doing so, okay, let's kind of start from the beginning of this regarding the issues regarding ownership of the Chikara name brand, uh, brand assets and so forth, okay? Um, is the interview that Quack did with Dr. Keith still out there anywhere? I'm sure it's like somewhere in the archives on F4W Wrestling Probably, Observer yeah. somewhere, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there was a rumor going around for about a month prior to this that the reason that the shutdown was happening was that Mike was getting a divorce and he was doing this because he was either informed or was afraid or was doing everything that he could so that his soon-to-be ex-wife could not take the Chikara name and assets and so forth away from him, which is patently untrue okay now real quick are you talking about an interview they did as a preview for the that no. show or coming out of that show i i will never forget i was driving to work friday morning back when i drove to work in an office uh i was driving to work and it went up on the the wrestling observer figure four whatever like at eight o'clock in the morning on Friday. And it was like, yes, it was like a rush job to promote the thing, but it was more so for Mike to get out there in front of this storyline that like, okay, Chikar is not going away because like, obviously it was because of part of the angle, but he wanted to get out there in front of it and say like, Chikar is not going away because my wife is, I'm afraid my wife is going to steal the name away from me. Um, or his ex-wife. I she's a lovely lady. She went through a lot during the previous eleven years that they were together. Um, I I don't think. And again, that's kind of like when oh, wait, you eleven know, years, huh? Okay, interesting. Well, no, you, 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 you they weren't together for eleven years. I think what what I got uh, splitting hairs. Um, yeah, let's say they were together for five years. They were married for four years. Whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. She went through a lot during that time frame. Okay. Um. I don't think she was doing this and like, I know what's going to be the final nail in the coffin. I'm going to steal the Chikara name and then question mark, right? Like (laughs) the Chikara name was nothing. Like, let's say that she did do that and that was her master plan. Mike still had the Wrestle Factory. Mike had whatever, and he could just run shows regardless. And like, what are you going to do? You're going to go to court and fight over like nickel and dime independent wrestling shows that outside of, you know, and listen. 
I, I have notebooks here. I was there working the door for a lot of these shows. I know what the attendance was. I know what the house was on a lot of these shows, right? Um, from 2005 to this point. It would have been more work for her to try to take the name and the license and the everything else. But the fact that the rumor was out there and today, 10 years later, there are people that still believe that's the truth. Mike told me six months before there was even a a detail of this out there. Here's what the plan is. At the anniversary of shows, we're going to do a shutdown angle. We're going to splinter off all the big name people. And then the following year at free, uh, National Pro Wrestling Day is going to be the first time that you're going to see everyone come back together. And that's going to be the rebuild back to, you know, the Chikara coming back in May of 2014. So when I, Mike told me in like November, December of 2012, like, Here's what the plan is six months from now. Here's the, like, here are the story beats. Like, these people are going to be here. These people are going to be there. These people are going to be there. Then we come to February and everyone comes back together. Then we get to the May 2014 and the company is back together. Now, was Mike going through marital difficulties at the time? I don't know. He might have been. But the fact that, like, people still consider that this is something that he hastily threw together is, like, ludicrous. Like, if you know Mike Quackenbush, like, this is something that he had probably been working on his entire life. I mean, for better or worse, whatever you think of Quack, him planning this out well in advance is exactly how his brain works. Right. Yes. Um. So for what it's worth, okay, so the doctor, before we get to the clip, the Dr. Keith that I found on Google, which is a free show, is yep. May 31st, so it's a preview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Do you have any idea how soon into the interview they talk about the... It, the interview couldn't be more than, like, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Okay, so should I pull No, I, up, I, that's or... the thing. You you could, but you'd have to, like, putz around through it while we're going over other things. I could certainly talk about some of the other points that came up in this while you well, try to... let's... I mean, let's play the... Whatchamacallit? Let's play the finish of the show. And okay. And I'll putz around on mute while we do that. All right. Oh, wait, no, I just clicked the... Ah, I clicked play from the beginning. My mistake, hold on. Let's see. Okay, uh, now it's going to resume right. probably from the beginning. Okay. Oh, no, it is resuming at the finish. Good. Different occasions, possibly. Oh, who's that handsome-sounding man? Oh, my goodness. Also, why is Icarus wearing Marty Jannetty gear? The, the so Icarus again. You want to get into the storyline. Icarus was a dirty, dastardly heel, and this was the beginning of his uh, babyface turn. And he was using Marty Jannetty, who Quack had like some sort of in with at the time. This was before Marty Jannetty is, you know, who he is today. The subject of an upcoming episode of Dark Side of the Ring to date and timestamp when this is all happening. And the idea was supposed to be that Icarus was looking to, you know, his fandom, which was really Quack's fandom of Marty Jannetty and one, two, three kid winning the tag team titles, um, you know, from the Quebecers or whatever it was. And Mac Mike was kind of imprinting that on the Icarus character to babyface him. There was a chair in the front row that was like reserved for Marty Jannetty and the Marty Jannetty angle thing never pays off because I know you're going to be surprised by this. Marty Jannetty is a little unreliable and even was unreliable 10 years ago. Right. All right. The victory here. Well, Eddie Kingston certainly took advantage of that window. That window when Bryce was down. He did the damage, but here comes Icarus. Wait, who's your color guy here? Uh, it's it's uh, the current Avery Good, then Dasher Hatfield doing his fake old-timey baseball oh, player voice. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. 
Chikar, everybody. <laughs> and people wonder why so many of us were so shocked that these guys were great wrestlers once Chikara <laughs> ended. And listen to this shit. Oh, Head scissor! Rolls him through. What's he doing here? Chikara special! The most effective move in wrestling, folks. Icarus has it locked in. Dead center in the ring. Dixon trying to fight out of it. Trying to punch Icarus in the back. Dixon reaching that foot for the rope. He's about a foot and a half short. He's trying to punch Icarus in the back, but it's not looking very effective. Oh, I just saw the life go from Eddie Kingston's eyes. His eyes are closed. Lights out. Come on, Rems Bark, faster. Royce is taking a break. Short on the stage. Everybody's out. No, I'm not turning my microphone off, Baba Shore. His shirt's off. Baba Shore never looks like that. He looks stressed beyond belief. Who are all these Condor security? I've never seen that many of them. They're just manhandling Bryce Remsburg and forcing him out of the building. Who won the match? What's going on? We're paid to see this. We have no idea what's going on, and I'm very sorry. We deserve to see a winner of that match. What is this? They're tearing down the setting now, people. I don't know if you can see it at home. The Chikara flag that waves that we enter through every match is ripped to the ground. The staging is being torn down. never seen anything like this in my whole entire life. Baba Shore seems to be commanding everybody to tear the place down. Is that the... Yeah. Uh... So <laughs> I I we so at the very least I was told um that the match wasn't gonna have a finish and to have my shit ready to go as soon as the match is over. Okay? Not that I left a ton of stuff in the back of the locker room, but sometimes I did. But I made sure that I had my bag with me at commentary. This is the Trocadero. So we were like upstairs in a balcony. So it you know, it was not an easy task to be escorted out of the building. Uh, by the Condor security people. Um, and as they're tearing that down, okay, so I'm just looking through the notes here again. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, um, so there's one fan. Real, real, real quick, do you want yeah. to describe what Condor security was? Yeah, Condor security was like dudes in sunglasses. They were supposed to look like men in black type, um, you know, Secret Service type guys. They were all in like sports jackets, black pants sunglasses had black shirts that said condor security on them in yellow. There you go. Um, so it, it says here that a fan uh, did a diving body press into the door. So it wasn't a diving body press. He just kicked it. Right. He was frustrated. Um, he kicked it. And like, you ever, you ever been to like a venue where the, you have your door and then along the side, there's like that tempered glass that has like the, yes. 
So he kicked that and it, and it cracked, right? Oh my goodness. Right. He was frustrated and you'll maybe see, uh, you know, Chikara fans even to this day, like, oh, it's the anniversary. And they like tag the guy in it and they give him a hard time about it. You know, it was very known Chikara fan at the time. Now, the one thing that's not reported in here, that there was a fan um, who, had, you know, well known in the northeastern New York, uh, Pennsylvania area who demanded a refund from the people of the Trocadero uh, because uh, he uh, because they did Jakara did not deliver a full show to him. <laughs> would you like to guess who that Green Lantern, fan, Green Lantern fan? Green Lantern fan would be correct. See, I was going to say, <laughs> is this a fan that once tried to get me to in to physically fight him? But <laughs> yes, so um, yeah, so that was one of the fun. Okay, I have a weird bit. question. Okay. Oh, look at There's a show image. <laughs> I'm thinking of the time. Wait a minute. Stuff. You're if if you make that the show image, you're gonna make someone very happy. Not two people. Let's say a handful of people very happy that that's the show image. I could maybe find you a better upscaled version of that yeah, picture. Please find the better. Yeah, please find better a better version than the one Matthew tweeted. I'm now sure that there are others. <laughs> With the condo <laughs> of security. Yeah. Who? What student is that, by the way, in the photo? Um, hmm. <laughs> uh, it's my friend Marcus. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's all I can say. He's a very handsome man. I don't think he wrestles, though. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, what was I saying? So, yeah, so, okay, so I, I was thinking about something with the timeline here. Okay, so what exactly was Green Lantern fans' reason he was demanding his refund? Because Jakara did not deliver a full show as promised. By doing a sports entertainment finish on the scheduled main event with all the other announced matches having already happened. Correct. Okay. So it's four months after this, or thereabouts, that there's the... I forget which what the name of the show was, but it's the WWF pay-per-view after SummerSlam, where they do the deal where... Danielson beats Randy Orton for the title, but it's like, what was it? Scott Armstrong deliberately did a fast count so they could reverse the decision later or something was the idea. Oh, that I don't know. On the next night, but it was something like that. TV got a surprising number of people calling and complaining, saying, the sh- at, well, the end of the show was nullified, as I hear Joe's uh, mouse wheel go and go. Sorry, and go. sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll find the picture for you later. How about that? <laughs> but what was I saying? Um, and they Direct gave TV. a bunch of people refunds. I'm kind of wondering if full uh, Paul there is a DirecTV customer, or at least was at the time. I wouldn't doubt it. Should I tell? Should I? I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I should I tell the Green Lantern fan story since I've never told it on a free podcast? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. In brief, uh, let's just call him Green Lantern fan and not use his full name, even though everyone. Well, that's what I saw. Always call him that. GLF Green Lantern fan. Yes. Yes. Um, he was well known and disliked for being very much an attention seeker. No, the the guy that uh, uh, that got in, that, that, that the proposed marriage on Monday Night Raw with Bobby Heenan would would be an attention seeker. Come on now. Well, so 
His thing was bringing a stopwatch and timing all the matches, which was fine. <laughs> but at Death Valley Driver, people would have their... There would be these ROH show threads. And instead of putting his times in the show thread where someone had already put up the results, he would just start a new thread. And people would beg him and just be like, dude, we appreciate you bringing the stopwatch and writing down the match times. But it comes off as this weird attention-seeking that you always make a new thread when there's already a thread for the show. He's like, fair enough. So what he started doing was starting a new thread where he just posted the match times without actually saying the result of the match. <laughs> so there was that. There was, of course, you know, later there was the... I think this happened at least twice. The ROH time limit draws where he ruined the planned finish by starting to count down very loudly at ringside when it got to the legit time limit, but before the wrestlers got to their planned finish for the draw. There was the Masawa one for sure in New York, and I think it may have happened with another... With I think... Oh, what was the Tyler Black draw? Who was that with? Was that Nigel? I don't know. But anyway, um, that might have been him too, because I know there's a story with that one too. And then the big thing, just to... Oh, what is this? You're sending me the better copy of the picture? I think, I think that's the better... I think that's a better oh, copy okay, gotcha. of the picture. Yeah. Um, the big thing, though, was that he went to Chris Candido's wake, and this upset some of the wrestlers there, because they felt like he was just being kind of weird, and just kind of taking in the wrestlers' presence and stuff. Wasn't it um, that... He claimed he was taking pictures of the flowers. No, that's my plan was... at uh, Louis Piccoli's funeral. Okay, okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the reference, though. But Yes. Same, same type of person, though. Well, right. so anyway, in fairness, I should say this, Chris's family wanted the information out there publicly, and it seemed like they were okay with fans coming. So I, I want to get that, I want to make that clear. But... From the guys I talked to who were there, they got a bad vibe from it and were pissed off at it. There's, there's a difference in fans and that. Well, and uh, and also just remember, at this time, I am a 20-year-old kid. I am not, you know, just making, starting trouble on the internet. I'm not whatever the hell I am now. Um, starting trouble on the internet. I can't. In a I classy can't. way. Right. Yes. Um... So, and I made it known, though, on the Valley Driver board. And I don't think anything really happened for months. We had been at shows at the same time. But then at the first ROH uh, Steel Cage Warfare, the infamous show, uh, first show at Basketball City, where the uh, ring crew got into a fist fight during Teardown, um, it was basically the coldest, snowiest day of the year. Venues one door in on the third floor with a revolving door to get into the gym because it was a bubble that needed to stay pressurized. It's taking forever for everyone to get in in the cold. And he and his friends just walked up to the front of the line, acted like they were part of the show, and strolled in. <sighs> and being me at 20 years old... Okay, I, I almost tell a lie because I was about to turn 20, like three, 21 like three days later. Whatever. Um... Because I'm remembering the date now. 
I made it known to Carrie, like, hey, you really need to not let him get away with shit like that. I don't know if Carrie said anything to him. I get the impression he did. And during intermission, I'm talking with Phil Schneider and Tim Cook and uh, some other people. And someone, like, taps me on the shoulder and I turn around and it's Green Lantern fan who's trying to force me to shake his hand. And just keep saying, ah, oh, you got a big fucking mouth. You got a big fucking mouth. <laughs> and the vibe I got then, and even now, all these years later, is he was trying to do what in his mind would provoke me to hit him while plausibly, in his mind, claiming that he didn't do anything to provoke me. And I did. He, just, he was just trying to shake your hand. Yeah. When I felt like maybe I was going to, I don't know if the look, or like, I should say have to, because I am not someone who is going to get into fights with people, and I'm not trying to oh, claim no, to be a I'm tough a guy or anything like that. But the moment it felt like I was going to have to do something, I'm guessing the look in my, on my face changed, because that's when Phil just jumped in and pulled him away. And Phil cuts a, an imposing enough figure that that was the end of it. Um, there was also, but the best actual moment was my uh, cousin trying to break the tension by asking him who his favorite Green Lantern was. And I'm just being like, oh, Hal Jordan, of course. <laughs> he was forced to answer. He's like, oh, I can't let this question go. It's my right as a guy who wears this shirt to shows. Yes. So oh, anyway, God. let's 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 get back. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there that he was, uh, you know, looking for a refund. Yeah. I felt like I had to tell the story, though, of we're getting into Green Lantern yes. fan at all. Next, you have to tell your Mike Johnson story. The Mike Johnson story is weirdly similar. But not, but not, <laughs> not, not on this no, show. No, not tonight. All right, so keep, all right, let's get it back going. We're, so, so where are we at? Uh, if you are not a Chikara fan. So for most of you. Oh. <laughs> Chris? Yes, if you are not a Chikara fan. Oh, I didn't know if there was anything else, though, that, that was Oh, from said, whether we were talking about that, I don't think so. No. Did you? Did you listen to the thing with uh, Dr. Keith and Quack? To I see if there was tried any... listening on my phone a little bit, just jumping around. I couldn't find it, and Quack was already using his ridiculous promo voice as his real voice, as his quote-unquote real voice by then. So I couldn't, I couldn't listen that much without getting nauseous anyway. All right, so let's continue on. If you are not a Chikara fan, you probably have no idea from reading what the hell's going on. Wait until you hear about the time travel storyline a little later. Regardless, what happened, happened. It came across your usual wrestling storyline, just a little more in your face and certainly significantly more serious than you know, the storyline of Chikara history. Chikara as a promotion is built on fun, hence a director of fun commissioner role. It was a very dark angle, but some longtime Chikara followers figured, well, Chikara is heavily comic book based. This is every comic book store climax you've ever read where the heels do some dastardly deed and a hero must rise from the ashes. To unite the baby faces and save humanity. Is LWO out there? And that's that's <laughs> just a car going down my street. Oh, okay. Well, it's coming from your end. I thought it was a bit from Bix's no, end. That was me. No, okay. no ice cream truck. No. Uh... Well, that time hadn't come yet. I was going to uh, say, if Mr. Softy shows up, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to be gone for a little bit. In fact, the titles for all the shows in the most recent season were based on the Watchmen comic book series, which is built on the same theme. If I could just interject, so they mentioned in there, you know, the hero must rise from the ashes. While all this was going on, 
and afterwards, Mike was filming a movie, quote unquote, um, which was also available on Internet Wrestling uh, or uh, was it uh, Jerry's Internet Wrestling Emporium, IWTV, which is called The Ashes of Chikara, which is Icarus as the baby face trying to get everyone back together to fight off all the heels that are now formulating this uh, unified front behind the scenes now that Chikara is away. Hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Most likely, this is exactly what's going to happen. It appears far more likely the storyline will play out on future wrestling is events. Something of a Chikara offshoot that Quackenbush has his hand in. It doesn't really make much sense to play out inside Chikara anyway, since Chikara has been shut down by the storyline guy in charge. The big question is whether at the end of the day, Chikara's report of that day down the road, or if the various wrestling is groups all of which you have to take the first of their theme. Wrestling is cool. Wrestling is heart. Wrestling is. Wrestling is art. Wrestling is respect. Wrestling is awesome. Spell the word Chikara. The exception of the K, which most assume is reference to Kaiju Big Battle, merge into one supergroup, which eventually becomes a new Chikara. Whatever happens, there's a storyline, and it's ongoing. Uh, I can just hear Chris making the wanking motion as he's reading this. Uh, So just to interject there uh, as well, so um, it was not – so there was a wrestling is that began with an I, which was called wrestling is intense, uh, which actually actually shook a little bit of feathers with our good friends uh, John Thorne and the uh, dearly departed – Chris Bryant oh. and the Biggins because they were like a Midwest company. I forget what they were called. Uh, who were the guys that wrestled as the Kentucky Buffet? What were their? Do you know who I'm talking about? I have about? no idea. Okay, so they were the ones. So it, the wrestling is is kind of started up of like, hey, these are going to be like smaller venues. It's going to be people involved in Chikara to be able to try their hand at running some shows. I think like the first couple. Um, wrestling is fun. Is wrestling is fun in there? No. So wrestling is fun is not included either. And wrestling is fun was wrestling is fun with an exclamation point. The exclamation point was the exclamation point that was in Chikara. Again, that's why I'm here because this is all the information that I know about Chikara. Um, but it would give people like Dasher a chance to go run shows on his own, like book guys that he knew locally, use Quack's license and so forth. Uh, wrestling is awesome was like New England, and that allowed. And again, I don't give a fuck. Uh, Scott, who's uh, Max Smashmaster, he does stuff with Broski's promotion, um, Matt, uh, Matt Cardona. Um, Scott has actually taken over whatever the New England wrestling school that uh, Mercedes Monet trained at. NEPW? Or... Yes, he's taken that over and he's running shows himself under that banner. And that was like him doing the wrestling is awesome shows kind of led to that. Uh, wrestling is respect kind of spun out of, if you remember, um, in the early days of Delirious booking Ring of Honor. Yeah, they it was had, Pro Wrestling Respect, the student shows. It, right, Pro Wrestling Respect became Wrestling Is Respect, and that's like where um, today Cheeseburger got some of his first in-ring experience, um, kind of allowed um, Drew Gulak to like kind of put together whatever it was. Uh, wrestling Is Art, I think, was allowing like Cabana to do some stuff. So it was just like an excuse. And then wrestling his heart was Tom Green, who had been doing Billy Rock's School of Rock Class Wars 
that became wrestling is hard. So that's kind of like how all these things like, hey, we're going to give you the Chikara bump by being associated with us. And you guys are going to be included in this big storyline that's going to blow off later down the road. And as you know, the storyline ends up blowing off sooner down the road, your people like the wrestling is hard. The wrestling is intense are no longer involved because of, you know, difficulties in dealing with quack. How about that? I have no memory of any of this type of shit. I, I lived it. I, this was my, I know you, you know, did. You yeah, lived, yeah, you know. You lived this. So it's vivid in your mind. Yeah. All right. Um, it appears, however, that this particular moment, the promotion on the Shakar is dead in storyline in real life. They canceled their future events, buddy. Interestingly enough, most of these events were never actually booked by Chikara in the first place. Although apparently people involved with Chikara had talked to at least some of the venues by future dates. This led to some fans, at least one of which is a subscriber, being pretty upset since they booked plane flights to attend events during work vacations this summer, only to discover that, in fact, those shows will not be taking place. Can I interject there? Sure. Okay. So they announced this, the way that Quack would typically do these things is he would announce like the first half of the year, kind of like November, December. It's like, oh, November, December, 2012. Here's the first half of the calendar year for 2013. And included in there was a bunch of new places that Chikara had never gone to before. South Dakota and like places like that, right? The reason that those were chosen was because those were places that Chikara had never sent merchandise to. So Mike was looking at this as like, I'm going to announce these places that we've never sent DVDs to, we've never sent merchandise to, and people won't inquire about the shows being there. But the problem was one of the shows that Mike announced was taking place in Reseda, California. Now, again, was he saying that it was going to be where PWG went? No. Was it the same weekend as that PWG ran? Yes. So was it uh, it was it tipping people off that they might be doing something with the PWG? Yes. But they weren't. It was just, hey, here's a bunch of things that we're doing, you know, toward the, the tail end of the year that were never going to happen. But and- that was the one that fans we're like, okay, let me buy a flight to this because this is obviously a real thing because he's announcing it for a PWG weekend. Uh, and again, didn't say it was part of the weekend, but it was all coincidental stuff, right? Um, <laughs> I I was aware that, the, you know, when I was told about what the storyline was, like when Mike told me November, December of 2012, that those were the fake dates. And if I was to guess, there was a Chicago show that was two weeks before this iPay-per-view where the rest of the the majority of the company were informed that those were fake dates. So up until like mid-May, a good chunk of the roster thought those shows were happening. Oh my goodness. Uh, Okay, so I gotta ask you this before we move on though. Like, was there a loyal fly-in audience outside of like King of Trios and the like or was it pretty much just those major shows? Uh, it would be he he built up Chikarosaurus Rex over the summer. Sometimes it would be like late June, early July, and they would bring in like Mexican talent. They'd bring in Japanese talent. That was like one of the doubleheader weekends where they brought in Johnny Saint and Johnny Kid, right? Mm-hmm. So he he was attempting to build like 
you know, Anniversario, which was May, which was like this time frame, like late May, early June. He was then trying to build up the Chikarasaurus Rex late June, early July, and then try to build up King of Trios so that mostly these fly-in type things were happening over the summer, right? Where people would be out of school, not every show, but it would be like a weekend of shows where like, hey, Minami Toyota's in for these these two or three shows. Or like I said, Johnny Kidd and Johnny Sane are in for these two or three shows and kind of make it a thing, you know? But that I think that had started like maybe like two years prior where, you know, he had introduced these bonus shows that like over the summer that would be like bigger fly-in event weekends, Okay, but you get where I'm going with that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, would he have had an expectation that there would be fans who would be buying travel based on him announcing these dates? No, because outside of the Reseda date, he chose dates where there was zero Chikara penetration of DVDs, shirts, merchandise, of, or anything. Okay, well, looking at the website, you're actually incorrect about that. Oh, Okay. So here is what is listed on the website on May 30th, okay? Okay. Anniversario, never compromise on Sunday, June 2nd at the Trocadero in Philadelphia. Okay. All you see is mine July 20th in Easton. Okay. That ends up being a wrestling is fun show, but okay. Cause each other pain July 21st in Manhattan. Okay. I don't think that happens in any form, right? That does not happen. Who Am I Without You, Friday, August 23rd, Minot, North Dakota. Okay. That, so, yeah, obviously, that's that. Wide Awake, uh, Saturday, August 24th, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So here's go. the thing, though. Mm-hmm. He's grouping these with an alleged show in Minneapolis on the 25th. Okay. Which, was Eric Cannon running first yet in 2013? I don't, I don't think so. But would pe- but Eric would be tied closely enough to Jakar that people might think that he was involved, right? Possibly. And again, though, so these these two most conspicuous dates, though, he's tying them to a loop in Minneapolis, as a loop with Minneapolis, and I would think he had shipped merch to the Twin Cities, right? Possibly, but we that's you know, that's the reason he he had given us that these specific locations. Oh, if my were, Quackenbush told that told you something, I'm sure it must have I, been true. I'm letting you know. I okay. should have just found the it should have just found the areas to the highest percentage of of black folks live in there and and announced <laughs> those cities. <laughs> so anyway, okay, so the car merch ain't going there. So actually, so then there's nothing between then and November 9th, which is Weeping Atlas Cedars on in uh, Reseda. The next night, All Things Must Pass in San Diego. George Harrison's uh, album? And then there is a, I guess, there is a link for festival information for National Pro Wrestling Day, February 1st, 2014. Right, so, and that's the return show, sure. But he, he did have legit sounding dates here and the ones that did sound less legit were tied in with something that sounded more legit so eh, if that was my reason it's he did if if he genuinely went into this thinking he was trying to make shows that people would not think of as real he did not do a good job that that is what he had told people publicly that that's why those were chosen yes <laughs> All right. 
I think we picked up, as noted, at least a few of the Chikara workers. Uh, yes. Uh, as I go there, as noted, at least a few of the Chikara workers don't seem to know what's going on. Or if they do know what's going on and aren't seeing anything due to the non-disclosure and are preparing as if there are no Chikara events booked anywhere in the near future. Some are advertising strongly for bookings via Twitter. That could be the storyline. But we've also heard promoters Monday, who, not as part of any storyline, were asked if there were any openings over the summer since dates they had planned for Chikara were no longer taking place. There were also people on the business side of things that worked for the company who were caught off guard about the cancellations, meaning at, least some of the point, meaning at least at some point they were under the impression that the show's schedule for the rest of the year really were going to be taking place. Interestingly, and Brian doesn't know what to make of this, that the, this storyline is continuing at some point somewhere. He was contacted with a stay on Monday claiming that Chikara was liquidating and selling all assets. From old merchandise, to the interest ramp, to audio equipment, and parts of the set. And if anyone was interested in buying, they could contact seriously and A.Frady at Titor Conglomerate. Keep that name in mind. Titor conglomerate, Titor, 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 whatever. Um, and I, I can only imagine that this is where we get into, um, a lot of Brian's thought process, you know, um, because Brian is a big, uh, coast to coast guy, and a lot of this stuff lines up with, uh, you know, what he'd be into, you know, at least name wise. One thing that is clear is whatever happened Sunday, and it's not something done in the last minute. It was not something done in the last minute. Based on a number of pieces of information, including promoters who have been approached for the first time by Chikara workers in recent weeks, the specific names of all the events this season, the formation of the Wrestling Is Sally groups, and even websites devoted to the storyline T-Tor, Titor Conglomerate, that sprung up literally in the mid-2000s, it's clear that the angle of Sunday was a long, long time in the making. Brian told the people close to Quackabush who don't have any idea where this is going. But feel that he's trying to do something big, something they've never done before in wrestling. Brian suspects there will really be no more Chikara events this year. Some of the wrestlers will start working for Wrestling Is, and some will go to the promotions. And the storyline will continue to evolve in some fashion. Brian's guess is part of a situation where Quackabush has decided to shut down the promotion for good. Perhaps a year or so down the road, maybe sooner, maybe later, the storyline will lead to a company rebirth. Which was obviously the plan, as you've been laying out to us. Yes. Um, so, you know, obviously he mentions um, in regards to uh, – where am I looking here? About people uh, strongly looking for bookings via Twitter. Obviously, that was part of the thing is, you know, obviously – Folks that were very closely involved with Chikara or, you know, wrestling is hard, which is, you know, the Billy uh, Rock School of Rock thing, the wrestling is respect, Ring of Honor people, so on and so forth. But people would have bookings, but it was purposely set up that, like, the big name in Chikara folks, like, Ultramantis would only be in these ones, and Hollowick would only be in these ones, and the Colony would only be in these ones. I even, you know, as part of the storyline went out, and I think I was I was trying to find the tweet um of me saying that like oh at the beginning of the when quack told me that the storyline was happening i changed it over that i was getting paid in checks as opposed to cash right 
um, knowing that the shutdown was coming so that afterwards I'm like, well, I know Chikar is done because I went to go cash my check from this weekend and it bounced because it's on an account. They told me it was on an account that no longer exists. All of a lie. Mike never told me to do it. Mike didn't say, don't do that because that's going to fuck things up. There were certain people, you know, myself that were given like a little bit of rope that were trusted not to to screw things up with that. And it was because of me saying that, like, I had a check that bounced and like, oh, it looks like a bunch of my Chikara work dried up over the, the summer that I ended up doing AIW stuff because John reached out to me and he's like, or actually Chandler, Chris reached out to me and he's like, hey, you want to come work for us this summer? And I'm like, absolutely, let's go, you know? Um, and that's how that sort of happened. But, you know, it was all part of the storyline. Everyone was just like, hey, look for work, ask for work, whatever it is. And, and I'll also say this as well, you know, there were a lot of people, you know, because Chikara was a bigger group and there were people that I was friendly with that were not, you know, wrestlers or students or whatever it was. And I would never, you know, stooge anything off to them. And they would, you know, to a point, tell me, they're like, listen, I understand what Mike's doing. I get that it's a bigger storyline. Just tell me when Chikara is back. And sadly, that was a lot of the fan base's thought process was that, like, I can't be bothered to follow seven new promotions to pop up all these other little storyline beats to follow it. Just tell me when Chikara is back and I'll be there. So, you know, for 10 months, nine months, whatever it is, a bunch of the fan base went away. And then when Chikara came back, they were there for the first couple shows. But very quickly that those numbers dissipated, you know? Yeah. Now, when did uh, Wink Vavasaur enter the storyline? <sighs> Wink Vavasaur entered the storyline maybe about two years prior. Okay. So the and, well and his whole and his whole gimmick of it was that he was going to because when the new people, the Titor conglomerate bought Chikara the guy who ran Titor was putting his quote unquote idiot son in charge of this smaller thing. And he wink was going to run Chikara like Moneyball, where like, I understand like all these teams work, but I've looked at the numbers and I've crunched the numbers. And like, while this team of the colony works really well, if I put these two wrestlers together, they're going to become a, because of their win percentage, blah, 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 blah they're going to become a better team. Right. And then, like, then you have the colony. It's like, okay, well, the colony are already superhero-looking type people to begin with. Well, let me make a new colony. And they're going to have more bigger names instead of just Fire Ant or Soldier Ant. They're going to be like Missile Assault and Orbit Adventure. And they're going to have accessories and light-up features and stuff where Wink was looking at Chikara people as just, like, interchangeable action figures, which, you know, a lot of people... Wait a second, so is Quack making fun of himself? It... With the Wink character, yes. Quack was capable of introspection? Okay. Yes. Um, okay, so the reason the I thought was Wink. Who was playing the role of Wink, yes. Yeah. Who was playing the role of Wink? Yeah. One of Bryce's improv buddies? Okay. Of course. Okay. Because I knew I didn't recognize the guy when I saw him out there. Okay, so the reason I asked was... Looking I, like Jameson from... Uh, <laughs> I pulled up the T-Tor... Jameson. So I pulled up the T-Tor conglomerate website on Wayback. The earliest hit is from after the angle would have started, because it's September 2011. But, but, yeah, I mean, is what Brian said here, do you recall that being true, that the website had actually been up for years and people were able to figure this out somehow? 
I think Mike did something to like the websites had been up for maybe about two years prior to the storyline. And Mike did stuff to spoof it to like change dates on stuff okay. to make it look like there had been stuff up there going back to 2007. OK, so it may have been up for a little bit a while before the storyline started, but. The reason the earliest scrape here is September 2011 is because, based on how Wayback works, that's probably when people started linking it elsewhere. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, for what it's worth, it says the T-Tor conglomerate is a, has 300 management professionals working in offices in 12 countries. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And the, the people listed are James Miller, the CEO, Kirk Walters, the CFO, W. Conrad Vavasor, the executive vice president of acquisitions, and Martin Woods, Executive Vice President of Holdings. One of those names, okay, is somehow linked to a white supremacist group. What? Okay. And part of this. the storyline was that the Titor conglomerate on top of all of this was somehow linked to a hate group. Is this his version of, like, Magneto being a Holocaust survivor? I, I What? So where the storyline ends up going to is that Chikara was purchased by the T-Tor conglomerate because they ran a majority of shows in places that um, were supposed to be like heavy hot. Like I, this was the part of the storyline where like I was so absolutely checked out for myself, where Mike is like doing like scavenger hunts and all this other nonsense. Right. And there was like riddles and stuff that never got solved. <laughs> In regards to this, but it was a whole thing of the Chikar was purchased because the buildings that they ran were going to be purchased to make way for recruitment sites for some sort of like higher level thing. Oh, fuck. And that. I think oh, I th what? right. it was there's a there's a picture where they photoshopped in like the, the picture that's out there of them like breaking ground at like some site or whatever. Um, the Photoshop version is whoever they got to play Conrad Vavasor was photoshopped over from that actual picture of like a guy who ended up being like outed as a white supremacist. <sighs> Quack is just Russo with like better source material. Instead of watching 80s and 90s directed VHS movies, and Jerry he Springer. read like, yeah. right, or in Jerry Springer. Mike watched early 90s WWE and read comic books. And really, really liked Osaka Pro. And really liked Osaka Pro, yeah. Listen, I read those same comic books, but, you know, there's certain bits and pieces that just don't fit in the world of professional wrestling. I can just hear Chris vibrating. No, I'm I'm just take I'm taking it all in. I'm just I'm, I'm taking it all in right well, now. Well, I can so. tell though you're I can tell though the, I can hear the gears running through your head. That's just like Quack is so much stupider than I thought he was. I mean, he's just a, it was a pretentious fucking douche and full of himself and just a, a jerk. So I mean, this this don't surprise me. A sociopath. And, uh, well, on that note, let's just get this out for, there for the record. Joe, he did not always talk like that, correct? No. Okay, thank you. I, I had many conversations with him from 1999, the first time that I met Mike, up until, um, you know, three years ago, where he did not talk like that. 
So when did he start talking like that, like full time around the students and stuff? I don't know. I like I said, I was I was I was never at Wrestle Factory. I was never there for training. Um, I was never there for any of that sort of stuff. But, you know, I think if you talk a certain way enough, it just becomes your regular speaking voice. And I think that's kind of sort of what he did. All right. Let's get back. Quackabush has stated publicly in the past that the company was never a huge money maker and all the things were tenuous. And the other sources close to the group confirmed this to be the case. One person said they would have times where it was at best break even. Other times where they run a very successful event and do great DVD sales. They come away with a big single day haul. And then in other days where for whatever reason, perhaps expensive flying and foreign talent, perhaps wrong place, wrong time, whatever the case, they come away with a big one day loss. Their DVDs always sold well on Smart Mark Video. Best sung of any videos, in fact. And it has some decent numbers for a few hyperviews they ran. Sunday showed drove sell uh, 600 to the truck. And the belief is they did the best hyperview numbers of any of their events to date. But we have also been told that for various reasons, not the least of which were the Joshi Mania Mini Tour in 2011 and National Pro Wrestling Day earlier this year being big money losers for the company. Things have been rough for a while. There are definitely people who thought the promotion wouldn't last through 2013. And others who felt that they could get the hyperview numbers that they'd be able to sustain. One person not affiliated with the company at all knew the promotion was pretty niche to begin with. And while they had very little following, it wasn't the kind of promotion that was going to play well in terms of drawing new fans and iPay-view buyers. Particularly since you had to be a very hardcore fan to follow some of the longer-term storylines. Particularly the time travel odyssey that played out in the iPay-view Sunday. Alright, so that's been talked about here. Talk about the time travel. Well, I think, do they, so they get into it in the next um, little, right, they get into it in the next little bit of where the coast to coast stuff comes in and then how that plays into whatever. And then how that plays into the Archibald. Okay. Well, well okay. Yeah. So before that, let's get into Joshi mania for a second though. Or the, yeah. So I was at the New York show, which was the third of the three, three shows. It was, I think Philly, Boston, New York. Yep. And okay. Let's count. So I, th- I forget, was there anyone that got hurt and missed the third show? Like, should I be looking at the first show to get an accurate count I of don't how many think Japanese so. fly-ins there are? I don't think so. Okay. Um, I'll just, I'll go so. with the, I'll go, I'll go with Philly just for the heck of it then. Just to count, yeah, yeah. please. Okay, so we've got, okay, Hanako Nakamori, Karuyanayama, Tubasa Kurakagi, that's three. Gami is four. Sawako Shimono's five. Ayako Hamada, six, although she might have been living in Mexico, so not as bad. Miyumi Ozaki, seven. Mio Shirai, eight. Minami Toyota, nine. Toshi Oimatsu, ten. Aja Kong, eleven. So you have, in the neighborhood of a dozen Japanese women flown in. For a weekend of shows, some of them probably were not paid as well as they probably, you know, obviously Aja Kong, Minami Toyota were probably paid much more than some of the other folks, but this was a combination Mike and Sarah Del Rey passion project that they wanted to make happen. Um, Quack knew going into this, there was probably going to be a money loser, but it was something that he wanted to do thinking that the DVD sales on the back end would more than at least cover things. And I'm almost certain that they did. And, you know, for years when King of Trios first started, whatever the first year, the first King of Trios was, Mike would always say that every year is a money loser up to King of Trios. King of Trios weekend would pay for the previous X amount of months 
And then the next time would just be a continual money loser up until King of Trios. So King of Trios was the one show that always drew well and would literally pay off the months prior of poor attendances. But Mike would run venues, you know, for the most part, like obviously Manhattan was a different situation, but he would run and make deals like that Reading venue that they ran forever. They got for free. It charged them zero dollars to run there. A lot of other places that they ran, like I know early, you know, in 2005, when I got involved, we were the third weekend, like they would do Reading, Emmaus or whatever. And then the Sunday shows would be Pittston. Those Pittston shows were a door deal. I would pay the guy who ran that building half of whatever we drew at the door. So night three of King of, of Tag World Grand Prix, I had to pay a lot of money. A lot of the other shows there where we drew like 20 people, the guy got half of $20, like 20 people to come to the show, right? So it wasn't a ton of money out of Mike's pocket to run a lot of those shows. But once more and more talent comes in, and the other thing is so much of Chikara is and was to this day subsidized by the school. You know, you can go to the Chikara, it's WrestleFactory.com or the WrestleFactory or whatever it is, but so much of what kept Chikara afloat for the longest time was the school and the people paying money to come and be wrestlers. And it's not like it was some crazy exorbitant amount that people were paying. It was right in line with, you know, schools in the area would be like, I think it was like three grand or whatever it was, but that's what kept Chikara afloat, you know, that and King of Trios. So, like I said, Joe Shimania, probably a money loser up front, but probably broke even like six months down the road. Hmm. I mean, look, that, you know, the Trios match at that New York show is still, to this day, one of the best matches I've ever seen live. Like, mm-hmm. it was, you know, and even for the matches that weren't as good, because, you know, Ozaki seemed kind of shot in her match and stuff, but still, like, Getting to see Mayumi Ozaki live and seeing that great match with Kong and Toyota and seeing Ayaka Hamada, like that's, like that is a, it's the only Chikara show I ever went to, but it's, you know, it's definitely a live wrestling experience that I very much value. Right. Um, and, and, you know, they talk about how it's a niche, niche promotion, difficult to draw loyal fans. And Mike would do things like this, like the Joshi Mania shows or like bringing in, uh, as I mentioned before, Johnny Saint or and Johnny Kidd. Like, you may not like Chikara, but maybe you've heard of them. And that might get you. You'll never see them in the United States. And if you want to see them in the United States, you're going to have to sit through Green Ant and Tursus replicating the Lex Luger, Yokozuna, SummerSlam 1993 match, you know? Or he would do something like, I remember, I forget if it was a non-tournament match, but I remember because it was a big story at the time, it was, I think, on a Tag World Grand Prix show, they were doing, like, a mystery team drawing, and they kept, like, drawing names that were all these big names, and the joke was obviously that they're not there. And then it's like, oh, Los Guerreros de, Guerreros de Atlantida, Atlantis and Ultimo Guerrero, surely they are not here. And then they were there. <laughs> and what did they take on? They took on maybe, what, Chuck Taylor and John Gargano, maybe? I have maybe? no memory of the who Is it the arena? So I think that was one of those ones where, for some reason, they couldn't be advertised ahead of time. But still, he est- my point being, he established that that kind of surprise could happen, too. Yeah, right. So he was trying stuff, and, like, you know, you could argue whether stuff was successful or not. But, you know, he was definitely trying to book for an audience of himself, 
you know, as many bookers do. And he was trying to find that fan base that liked the same thing that he liked. And, you know, and he would mix it up and add that extra stuff in there to try to get you to come in and like the rest of the stuff. If you didn't so much, you know, love everything else, uh, you know, Joshi Mania, Johnny Kid, Johnny Saint, you know, Luchadors, stuff like that. See, if only he would have brought in Masai Genki and uh, Tanny Mouse, <laughs> Big School would have went to more of the uh, the Jakara the shows. <laughs> So he just brought in the wrong women. I got to say, I legit did not know that he had not closed the Wrestle Factory yet. Still running to this day. Never closed. Who the hell is Sean Devlin? Oh. (sighs) (laughs) All right, well, let's continue. All right, so basically in storyline, Shakara was sold a few years ago to Worldwide Media Development Corporation. It's a series of a group called Titor Conglomerate. Titor is a reference to a guy by the name of John Titor, a message board poster on, among other things, an Art Bell BBS from the early 2000s who claimed that he was a time traveler from the year 2036. Wait a second, wasn't John Titor a wrestling fan too? The name's ringing a bell. I was not a coast-to-coast listener, uh, but my brother was. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would kind of fill me in on like when I was ta- like, you know, listen, I would talk to him about what was going on wrestling because my brother was a wrestling fan lapsed as it were. But um, when I would mention the T-Tour stuff, he's like, wait a minute. Um, but I, I think that John T-Tour probably did mention wrestling stuff because I know my brother definitely knew who he was. Uh, um, so he's from year 2036. T-Tour told all sorts of crazy stories and made wa- various wild predictions. None of which came true. His out was the claim that many the many worlds of theory quantum of physics the many worlds theory of quantum physics was true, meaning his going back in time had altered timelines. So his predictions took place, but on a different timeline than the one you and I and everyone else is living in. Got all that? So anyway, I Star mean, created a- not really, because my brain is also trying to process that. Um, I've been told that Jerry McDevitt used something I wrote as an exhibit in the MLW lawsuit, so my brain is just working overtime right now. So anyway, Chikara created name checker. So anyway, Chikara <laughs> created an imaginary conglomerate based on this real life, well, you know, time traveler and started a storyline where, among other things, Archibald Peck was sent backwards and forwards in time as being hit by Eddie Kingston's bat fist to the future finish which eventually led to him existing in two different timelines as, among things, a mixed martial artist and the cowboy. The mysterious and handsome stranger, yes. <laughs> it only got more complicated than from there. The amount of work that went into creating his angle from the years of preparation, including a No Private Armies blog that plays into the storyline that was set up in, no joke, 2007, to setting up fake web pages for worldwide media development and the T-Tour conglomerate, which includes a listing for W. Conrad Vavasur, Chikar's current director of fun, and T-Tour's executive vice president of acquisitions, is almost mind-boggling. T-Tour also owned Condor Security, the group that kicked all the fans out of the building at the pay-per-view. Vavasur's role in the company began shortly after they did the storyline where worldwide media had purchased the company in January 2011. So this was no short-term deal. As part of it, Quackenbush was in storyline kicked out of his own company after being handed an envelope by a man in an NPA, no private army's hat, 
Being one to speculate that in the day he'll be the one to return as the savior in whatever form the angle takes. I don't recall the guy who handed Mike the envelope. It was after the match. It was uh, at like one of the Wrestle uh, Mania weekend indie shows where it was Quack and Liger. That was the Chicago show in Secaucus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, against Jigsaw the Shard, and it was a thing where. The guy hands Mike an envelope, and it was that Mike was fired from Chikara, but not from the trainers, the <laughs> Wrestle Factory. And it was a way to kind of get Mike out of storylines, at least as an active competitor. Um, but it was never intended that Mike was going to be the one that, like, rallies the troops of everything. It was just more so of Mike, like, in his mind was like, I tag team with Jushin Liger. Like, really, what else can I do, you know? God forbid anybody else get that spot. I, Jigsaw got to wrestle him. I got to do comment. Me and Dr. Keith got to do commentary in the match. I mean, honestly, you know, if I try to think like I think a wrestler would think, I would rather be working with Liger than teaming with him. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, you know, I mean, he... I forget, he had, he, I forget, had he wrestled Liger already, like in Jersey All-Pro or something? Yes. Okay, so yeah, so it's like, that's... Maybe he's not being completely selfish there. Right. And it's it's crazy to think that the T-Tour conglomerate, John T-Tour time travel stuff, was happening more or less independent of the Archibald Peck, R.D. Evans, Robert Evans sort of stuff. Um, you know, whatever your opinion of uh, Chikara is, Robert, Archibald Peck, Mixed Martial Archie, mysterious and handsome stranger did like a fantastic job with all the material that he was given oh what about and the quit man i don't remember the quit man that was his uh one-off return and beyond against uh orange cassidy american rana where he oh that was after he quit yes. to be as a writer yes 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 um, that, that wasn't I, very good <laughs> no um well listen he was you know he's kind of done as a in in ring performer and i think whatever um listen i he wanted to wrestle oc i can't blame him um but there was a bit where he was like lost in time it was like where in the world is archibald peck and there was supposed to be um stuff that was going to be filmed again to give you the time frame remember in ring of honor when kevin sullivan was aligned with bj whitmer yes they were working on Kevin Sullivan to film stuff with Archie that Archie ends up in like the Dungeon of Doom playing the Kevin Sullivan role. Kevin Sullivan is playing the Curtis Iakea role with like the come to me, my son nonsense stuff was recorded, but I don't think it ever ended up getting used. Oh, I, I am just like... shocked that this man is currently writing impact each week. Yeah, <laughs> this, this bears no resemblance to anything that he does on TV each week. Yeah. I love Robert. He's a good dude. I've heard nothing but good things about uh, him as a person. But yeah. But I mean, you can very much see the uh, DNA shared between that and the the demon realm and all that. For sure. Goodness. (laughs) Yeah, Chris, I don't know how much you keep up with Impact. You know, they've had like a demon realm. And traveling back and forth between dimensions for, like, the past, what, four years? At least that. Yeah. No. But the fact they're still alive. That's that's, that's a... Yeah, like you said on Twitter uh, the other day, they're about to outlast 
ECW and they already combined. Have. I don't. I'm not sure if they're at the combined. Cause, no, because combined would be ECW was was alive for almost nine years. WCW was alive for twelve and a half years. So, so that would be, be 21, twenty one and a half, which means they have to get to November to outlast. Yeah. So yeah, it's which kinda, they will. Yeah. It's sad. I. So what form will it take? Perhaps in the end, the company wasn't making enough money and Quackenbush decided to put everything on hold in a definite hiatus. Perhaps he pulled the trigger on an angle that had been slowly building for years, and at some point when he regroups, he'll pull the trigger on the next stage of the angle and write the storyline to bring about the triumphant return of the company. If he never regroups, such as life, and the Anachikara was at least booked as part of a long-term storyline. Or perhaps what happened was a wrestling angle that took place in an imaginary world, and because there are people aware of what's going on in the real world, two different timelines, and a great irony got mixed up, and all the controversy and speculation is much to do about nothing. It'd be sad to think if this was really the end that Chikara, the promotion built on fun, promoted as family fun, overseen by a director of fun, did not go out with an angle where everyone was celebrating and partying and clapping and laughing and having fun, but rather with an angle that was not in their own universe any fun at all. Or maybe like in all comic books and fantasy films and really good fiction ever written, things look bleak right now, but this isn't the end. And down the road, everyone will look happy ever, happily ever after. And they did for a couple years up until, you know, the pandemic kind of screwed everybody else. Um, but like I said, the right at the start of the pandemic was the last ever Chikara show. It ended up, you know, they, they did an angle where whatever the current heel stable was, the crucible or whatever it was, locked all the fans out of the building. So it was an empty arena thing to kind of wrap up whatever that current storyline season was. And that was the end of Chikara. You know, they haven't run a show since, you know, I mentioned the wrestle factory is still open. You know, Mike has trainees out there going out and, hitting the road. They moved from where they were in Philly to some place in like, they were like in like an industrial park in Philly. And now there's somewhere else um, like outside of Philly, maybe in the burbs. Um, but like I said, Chikara will never die as long as Mike Quackenbush is involved in wrestling for better or for worse. Okay. So let's get past the elephant in the room though. Now, <laughs> so, Okay, did we actually have any reference in this story to potential marital strife or not, or did we? We did. We so nothing in the storyline, but we did mention that Doctor Keith interview that was up on. It was never mentioned in Brian's. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Okay. So okay, the like you had alluded to when we talked about in passing, the narrative that's taken hold with a lot of people is Quack's wife found out that Quack was cheating on him with a student and because we don't know whether or not this is true and she hasn't put it out there and all that, we're not going to say who who the rumor's been tied to. But it's, you know, it's one of those things that's always been out there and that that led to the divorce and then the divorce led to all... If the divorce didn't lead to all this, it was still a thing that was going on and that's why people thought it might be related, whatever. Your understanding is that it might not have even been true, but the wife thought it was correct there was enough proof there for her to believe um and to take those next steps now i i you know and again i know you're going to be very surprised by this but 
I never have and can't understand anyone looking at Mike as a sexual being or someone that has had sex. Um, <laughs> got that right. I made I made the I know Mike has a son. So, you know, he's at least a one-time confirmed sex haver. Joke, joke. But that being said, there were a well, lot I would of have thought he would have paid he would have been paying for it. Again, well, no, anyway, I'm not going to. But he did have that, that, that nut job ass girlfriend of his. So. Oh, Jesus, Chris. Uh, allegedly, 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 um, entertainment purposes. Uh, well, I mean, you could, you could, could be talking about someone else, too. I mean, right, sure, sure. Um, but so what had happened was. Or could have been all the work. He could have never been with that, that chick to begin with. It so, been I mean, it work. is pro wrestling. Yeah. Okay. So at the very least, the way that I looked at Mike was as a businessman, okay? Someone who was looking to get people to come to his wrestling shows, but also someone who was looking to incorporate more people to come to his wrestling school. So there was a period of time where Mike would go out and outside of Chikara, he would take like a traveling match where it would be like, you know, and again, listen, it's no secret. Mike is one of the ice creams, and whomever else is one of the other ice creams, and two other students. You can that say Hollow Wicked. I didn't say that, because sometimes it wasn't him. Sometimes it was someone else. Okay. Um, And sometimes it was someone else, someone else. And sometimes... I mean, I'm, I mean, okay, so, okay, wait, let, okay, since you're saying that, let's just be clear then. Is the reason that they were so much conspicuously taller at the beginning that they were Hero and Claudia... And then no, they, they were never Quack here on Claudio. Okay, so it was never here on Claudio. So why we did never... Quack? So why did Quack and Hollow Wicked suddenly look so much taller in that gear? They probably had lips in their boots <laughs> and the masks. And the masks had like like I know the the ice cream like because uh, I don't LPO think that... the little cone would help that much. Come on, yeah, listen, I'm just telling you, Hollow Wicked's a tall guy. But again, there's anyway. So anyway, they inspired uh, today's Darby Allen. But continue. Sure. So they would have a touring match. They all stole from Slipwagon the Brown. (laughs) Oh, come on, Chris. Don't hate. Appreciate. They would have a touring match that they would take out. You know, Mike is the ice cream. Somebody else is the ice cream and two students. They would go and they would just have them get reps, but also like, hey, we have a bunch of car DVDs and stuff. And like, hey, we have a school and so on and so forth. So then they get a female trainee, which does not happen very often. And she was kind of a natural prodigy. And it changed from being a tag match of Mike, another ice cream, and two of the students, to Mike is the ice cream and this female trainee going around and doing those shows. The way that I looked at it was people who were students were looking at having a paid gig or two paid gigs taken away from them because of her that bred jealousy and rumors and so on and so forth. And at least the way that I looked at it was You can go to any independent wrestling show in the world, again, at the time, 2011, 2012, and see, like, a bunch of skinny white guys emulate Lucha or see, you know, an attractive, muscular, fit girl go out there and approximate Lucha. And if you're a girl in the crowd and she's like, oh, they go to the wrestling school, that's the reason, you know, maybe she would be the inspiration to get people. I I looked at it as the mic was using her – to try to get more women to come to the shows and therefore get more women to come to the wrestling wrestle factory, which ended up working out, you know, because Mike ended up getting more women to come to the wrestle factory to train and getting a more larger female fan base. If you go look at Chikara shows, they would have a higher female fan base than many other independent wrestling shows. 
Um, and I think a lot of it was breeding contempt with those people that were booked on those shows that were no longer booked on those shows, those traveling shows where they were probably getting paid. Rumors start, rumors snowball, people perpetrate them, and here we are. Yeah. I mean, it's wrestling. I mean, people start rumors over all that shit all the time, sometimes not even in bad faith. It doesn't mean they should. But sometimes it's like, oh, well, what's the natural assumption? Blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, certainly what you said here makes sense. I mean, yes, does it seem like she became part of the Chikara inner circle? Yes. But she was also the prize student. Right. And the prize student of a wrestling school is gonna end up in the inner circle like that. So I don't think you can read into it either way. And it's unfortunate that she got branded like this. I mean, look, if it's not true, it's unfortunate. Even if it is true, it's unfortunate. Because that's a, the, there's a weird power imbalance there. And if it did happen, it's not good. But either way, it's unfortunate for her. She shouldn't have had this baggage following her around. Right. But... But your impression is, though, is that this got to Quack's wife and was a factor in the divorce, even if the divorce, it doesn't seem like, was actually a factor in in the shutdown angle. It was, right, the divorce was not. I I can assure you of that. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm glad we got that out there, too, because if we're doing, you know, this kind of, like, semi-authoritative look at this, and that's, you know, it's something people attach to it for so long. And... And and like I said, this is not the first time that I've mentioned this. You know, I mentioned this on my podcast. I mentioned this, you know, on the Patreon oh, shows I that I do yeah. for my show. I could provide documentation. And there are people that have privately told me, like, within the last, like, three months. They're like, yeah, I know that you've said all these things. I'm still choosing to believe what I've believed for the last 10 years. Because that's well, a better I mean, well, 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 Welcome to life. Right. I mean, I mean that's, that's, that's where we're at today, right. where people... People believe what they believe, yeah. and they and you can throw facts and stuff in their face. They're not going to change what they believe. Yeah, and look, open to. we're not saying we think Quack was above that either. We're absolutely not saying that. I mean, there's, I won't name the name, but there's one wrestler, you know, who we know used to be in a relationship with him that it, in fairness, trained before coming to the Wrestle Factory, but still, uh has since quit the wrestling business for nothing having to do with him over weird reasons, and I should probably just leave it at that. But it's like, still, we know of him. It's it, This is known enough and settled enough that we're not saying he's above doing something like that. It's just that it doesn't seem like there's any remotely concrete reason to believe that's what was happening in the case we were talking about. Yes. And look, I mean, here's the thing, too, and I'll close the loop with this. I'm not saying it's good, but even after speaking out, where it seems like this is something where, for whatever reason, that part landed better with the Brits, where it was being treated as a bigger problem, there are absolutely still pro wrestling trainers who are entering relationships with younger female students. Unfortunately, yeah. yes. Or just even, stu- and again, uh, unfortunately, even just students in general. Yes, like you yes, get into a weird yes. power dynamic thing there. Um, but you know, it's a lot of times people are just gonna, you know, they say don't shit where you eat is like a, a phraseology that makes no sense to me, but 
if you're just around these people three, four, five days a week and, you know, working out with them and, you know, training with them and going out to eat with them and traveling with them. And these are the only people that you have in your life. Eventually connections are going to, you know, develop, whether it be long term lasting friendships or romantic relationships, you know, just the way life is. And it just so happens that, you know, any sort of line of work, whether it be wrestling or super secret science work, you know. Oh God! I could. Oh God! The stories I, I mean, to tell. Right. And, and have told. Patreon.com/slash <laughs> between the sheets. Reading from the grocery store. Yeah, I mean, good Lord of mercy, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just you know, this 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 is a interesting time in independent wrestling, and Chikara produced. The one thing you say about Chikara, they produce a lot of great talent. That you watch on TV every week, <laughs> and you know, and, and like you know, I was kind of alluding to earlier, better than they got credit for, because like a lot of these people were not either not working on outside of Chikara shows or not working outside of the Chikara gimmicks, and that those turned a lot of people off. So then you have people like Avery Good and all that who are suddenly shedding their Chikara gimmicks. And going out on the indies at a time where there was kind of a drought of experienced talent. It's like, holy shit, these guys are good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it was a bit of an eye-opener at the time, you know, when this was, you know, two years ago. You know, I remember tweeting about and stuff during that Mania weekend in Tampa, where the wrestlers that were really showing out as far as, you know, indie wrestlers were... Wrestle Factory trained wrestlers, Buffalo guys, and um, Southern Indy guys, basically. And, you know, that the talent was there, it just wasn't the usual places people were looking for it, I think was the way to put it. And, I mean, look, like, kind of you were alluding to, like, how it appealed to people. Like, it came off as, like, this inclusive, cool family environment where, oh, also... You can learn how to do lucha in a fairly authentic way from someone in the U.S. who speaks English. Like, that was a big draw to students that I don't think people fully appreciate either. You would be surprised at the number of people that got involved in wrestling within the last 10 years that were from Texas, Colorado, California, that traveled across the country looking at one of three places to try to train. Chikara, CZW, or Ring of Honor. Ring of Honor scared them off thinking that it was just going to be like neck bridges and Hindu squats. Mm. CZW scared people off because, you know, deathmatch stuff. And also and Chikara, DJ. Right. And Chik- and like if you were looking – and like so many people would even say – like I think, um, you know, Brian Myers mentioned it on his podcast recently um, that he said that he – encouraged so many of his people to move to the Philadelphia area just because it was so centrally localized to so much professional wrestling. You're literally a three-hour drive from so much wrestling if you live in or around Philly. And who trained in and around Philly? CCW, Ring of Honor, Chikara. Mm -hmm. And that's just – Chikara ended up being a lot of people's choices. Like, there's so many people that I'm like, like, yeah, I never watched Jakar beforehand. Like, my only thing was, it was a school in Philadelphia that did not scare me. I mean, and also, if you were someone that had a little bit of training elsewhere, but wanted to get more seasoning and felt like you needed a better school, 
once Quack changed the curriculum mm-hmm. to be like this UCB improv inspired, you know, 101, 201 style program, suddenly it's also a much better wrestling continuing ed option than most other schools do on paper. Yes. So, like, you can absolutely so, see what the appeal was. But anyway, I think that's that as far as that. So I guess should we get to our couple uh, non-Shikara things here? Yeah, I was to close this section out because this, this, this is the indie section because this show's so fucking big. I didn't smash a whole bunch of results in here because I didn't want to kill the show. Yes. But there is some, some newsworthy stuff going on outside of uh, the normal big promotions here. Let's start with this one. Stephanie Beller's Frankenstein, Frankenstein. Yes, her husband's name is Dolph Wood, Wolfgang von Frankenstein. Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein. Doyle, excuse me. Who used the name Gordon George WCW in the 90s as a girlfriend Randy Savage, now 37 years old. He should have cried for help on June the 3rd. She wrote on Twitter late that night, if I can't get a car and drive to find a job this week, I'm going to end it. I can't take it anymore. My life has too many problems. I have nothing but a bird, no people. I wish God would get me out of here. She worked for years as a touring stripper after breaking up with Savage and being on WCW and had a brief run in ECW after that. Jesus, I forgot about this. I mean, look, thankfully, you know, from what we've seen in recent years, she seems to have her life pretty together. And that's what I was just double checking on. Yes. Um, yeah. See, yeah. I mean, look, obviously we don't know what was going on in her life to lead up to this, but it's, you know, something we've alluded to on this show before. She basically got wide-scaled revenge porn before almost anyone else had ever happened to. Yeah. I mean, you gotta think about the effect that could have on a person. Yeah. You know, like, I, I just remember, like, thinking back, like, that leaked, like, webcam video of hers, and I forget if it was being sold commercially or what, but... Like, I remember it being, like, explicitly known at the time, fairly quickly, like, this is a thing that she did not intend to get out. And, look, obviously dating Randy Savage, especially with the details she has shared publicly, is not going to help with one's uh, mental health either. No, being as young as she was with Randy, yeah. No, I mean, look at what she said, like, in interviews, like, in the A&E biography... He had broken into her house to have surveillance equipment installed while they were together. So, (laughs) yeah. Like, even by Randy Savage standards, I remember hearing that just being like, Jesus Christ. But thankfully, it does seem like she's got her shit fairly together and good for her because she's been through a lot. Yeah, and then, you know, being married to Doyle... Probably wasn't the greatest thing in the world either at times. So. I forget. He's one of the misfits. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what they meant was WCW. Of course. So, yeah. I don't think they overlapped so, in WCW though. Actually. Mm, no. Maybe a little. I I because I think Macho well, Savage was gone before Russo. Yeah. And then Misfits were only there for like that brief like November, December period up to Starcade. Yes. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. All right. Um 
Let's go to Combat Zone Wrestling. Matt Tremont of Combat Zone Wrestling is out of action with problems with his pancreas or some type of health issue. He's had issues with his pancreas in the past, including the period last year where he was hospitalized for a week. Okay. I think Joe knows where I'm going with this. I'm not sure Chris does. Chris, do you know how old Matt Tremont is and would have been then? <laughs> um, no. Take a guess. I mean, I, I think he's older than what I think. I mean, you would think he is. So, um, I don't know. I would think that, but I'm gonna probably I'm gonna probably I'm gonna shoot younger. He's probably about twenty five here. He's twenty four. He's thirty four now. He don't look it. <laughs> no, he doesn't. I'm curious to see because I was not following CCW at the time what he looked like then. The um, same. Seriously. <laughs> Like maybe a couple pounds lighter, but that's pretty much it. Like he might have still had like the remnants of like the horseshoe hairstyle, but Tremont's looked like Tremont for the last ten plus years, you know. So he's um, always looked like a fifty-year-old deathmatch wrestler. Yes. Um. Okay. I'm just gonna not in the browser with the sound coming through, but I'm gonna pull up him and Tank from the 2013 Carnage Cup. See, I thought, I mean, you look at me, they're the same age. Tank? Tank and Tremont, uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like Tank looks a little older. Okay. What's the gray in the beard? Okay, he's a little lighter, he's a little less weathered, but yes, he basically looks the same. Yep. He just looks like a guy who's naturally aged, like, in the last 10 years, but 10 years ago, he looked like he was a 40-plus-year-old haggard, you know, lived on... The, the the life of the whatever but Tremont's like one of the nicest guys and is he still the current IWTV champion even though he doesn't defend the title yes he is yeah yes um yeah I guess he's just Deathmatch Arn Anderson or Deathmatch Fujiwara or whatever you want to call him <laughs> H2O you know that's his thing that we talk about sometimes in the Half-time. plug section yeah, yeah. The plugs so. hardcore hustle organization yes which he Still still has the promotion in the building, but I haven't heard why, but he decided to stop doing the wrestling school. He's not trying. Yeah, I was going to say, just recently with like the last couple of weeks as of this recording, um, kind of closed things up. I can only imagine it was a time issue. You know, yeah. I don't know. Right, because he has the building, so. Yeah. And he's not getting rid of the building, so. No. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go to Ring of Honor now. Adam Cole signed a new contract, which should end rumors of him ended to WWE. At least for a while. There are a number of all race contracts coming due over the next few months, and Dave sure those who would opportunity to get WWE developmental gig in most cases would do so. Okay. So if I remember right from the hints that Triple H gave on a later conference call and what was reported after that, this is when WWE basically told him you still look really fucking young to the point we think it would be weird. Go somewhere else, get more experience, harden up your look, and then come back to us when your contract's up. Yes, that's that's about right. Regal, in fact, was the one that told him that. Yeah. Which, I mean, you look at 2013 Adam Cole, and yes, he does look very young and very pretty. <laughs> Uh, I definitely I wouldn't call today Adam Cole haggard or weathered or rugged by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, He just has like darker hair, really. Yeah. Uh, 
but good for him, you know, be able to hold on to his looks as long as he can. And again, not to compare him and Matt Tremont, but definitely two sides of the same coin, I would say, you know? Yeah, wait a second. How old is Adam Cole? He's got to be like 32. He's 30. He's about to turn 34. So yeah, he's the same age as Tremont. <laughs> yeah. And I know, so, and I will say this, and you know, this is a story that's out there and I'll tell it here that Adam Cole actually, you know, we mentioned before, you know, about the people coming to Chikara to train. Adam Cole lives or lived at the time in the Lancaster area, came to Chikara, but he was 16 at the time. And Mike's like, I can't train you until you're 18, Pennsylvania, so on and so forth. Even if we have something from your parents, I don't feel comfortable in doing so. And DJ Hyde was like, no problem. Come on in. This obviously being after the two schools ceased to be working together. Oh, yes. Yes. Which was always such a weird thing that you have that era of guys who are like both CZW and Jakara graduates. Yeah, I think that ends up like 07 or 08 that wrapped up pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then, okay, you're a guy who knows stuff. I'm not sure I've ever actually asked this. (laughs) It's nothing bad. 2017. Cole, O'Reilly, Fish, Dijak. Was there one or two other people? Their contracts all expire. Something happens in the way and timing WWE made them offers that Sinclair sent them a legal letter. This was what was in the Observer and basically led to WWE being like, go fuck off for like six months and then we can sign you. Have you ever heard anything about what actually happened there? Like, what did WWE do that was such an overstep that that happened that it hasn't happened the other times? So I think it was because of the sheer number of people at one time and how quickly these were people that had been on WWE's radar for, you know, the better part of four or five years. And I know Cole, like, didn't do a ton of indies in between his time in Ring of Cole Honor. Cole was the only one who didn't do anything, I think. He he did one AIW show. Yeah. And that was because Britt was there, you know? Um, But it was just more or less of a thing that they just tried to get the heat off so that it wouldn't look like WWE was poaching talent where I don't think WWE was poaching talent. I think it was just like all these guys contracts came up at the same time. Guys that run WWE's radar. Sinclair probably thought they were trying to poach talent from them because they were trying to poach talent from them. And then, you know, WWE tell them to go pound sand is, is what it was, you know, but by WWE standards, what you're saying is it was not particularly sinister. It's just that, because it was four guys at once, their antenna kind of went up at Sinclair, yeah. and they were like, wait a second. So they basically, they bothered to send to have their lawyer send a letter where other people might not have. Exactly. Okay, that does explain that, too. Because I did ask someone who would have known, and they didn't remember. So I, So that makes sense, that it was something relatively minor like that. Yeah. But yeah, so... He was always going to go there, just a matter of when. So yeah. there you go. Okay, although real quick, okay, I want to ask Joe before we move on. I feel like he'd have a better feel on this. Although maybe Chris might too. How much do you think, basically trying to publicly retcon that he was trained by DJI, helped his career? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> because he, like in interviews, that I think right now Adam Cole says that he was trained by Steve Carino and Delirious, right? Something like that, yes. 
Yeah, and the the DJ Hyde, like he he still is looked at as a CCW guy, but being trained by DJ Hyde has like a negative stigma to you. I mean, um, well, people, understandably. people don't think, I mean, people don't really think of. I mean, people, the old school thinks of knows him in CCW, but I mean, he really didn't make his name name for himself until Ring of Honor. Yeah, I mean, here's the other thing too. For as much of a creep and a sleazeball as DJ Hyde is, he is apparently actually a pretty good teacher when it comes to pro wrestling. Okay. I mean, that's what I've always heard from people who have actually seen it firsthand, that, like, when he is actually teaching pro wrestling, he's not actually that bad. I, I, can't, I, I can't say one way or the other. I'll take your word for that. Sinclair Broadcast reached a $115.35 million deal to purchase six stations owned by Titan Television Broadcast Group. Goddamn. Which would give them affiliates <laughs> in Fresno, Omaha, Sioux City, and other places, I guess. Eventually, you'll, you should expect Ring of Honor TV in those markets. Yep. Don't expect Ring of Honor shows in those markets. So there's that. What, what about uh, Wrestling Is or Chikara shows in those markets? <laughs> Sioux yeah. City, Iowa, Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, those are uh, big Chikara strongholds. Yeah. Maybe come co-promote with SCW Pro. <laughs> yeah. The only show of the week was a debut uh, in San Antonio on June the 1st. Draw 600 fans. Those who were there were hot, and it was a good show, although on the long side, last nearly four hours. Jay Briscoe retained the Ring of Honor title, pinning Davey Richards in the main uh, event with the Jay Driller. A tornado match saw the scum team of Rhett Titus and Jimmy Jacobs beat Michael Elgin and BJ Whitmer in a brawl over the arena. Jay Lethal pinned ACH, who's from San Antonio, in a real hot match. Eddie Edwards also beat TV champion Matt Taven in a proving ground match, which earns him a title shot. That was said to be better than most Taven matches. Earlier in the show, Mark backhanded. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier in the show, Mark Briscoe beat Steve Carino by DQ when Titus and Jacobs ran in. Roderick Strong pinned the strong, slowly turning heel Adam Cole. Cole got a nasty cut in his elbow when he crafted to the guardrail doing a dive. The big heel spot tease was Cole blowing off the post-match handshake. Okay. Oh, that'll do it. Well, all right. So looking at these results, first things first, poor BJ Whitmer. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's just say that if any other former ROH champions uh, – elect to open wrestling schools in St. Louis. Everyone in St. Louis should make sure that does not happen. <laughs> um, I didn't have any Sinclair stations because I'm in New York and I wasn't really going out of my way to watch it online, especially because... So at this time, you can watch ROH TV on the website... But the quality was, like, unusually bad for 2013 streaming that just wasn't worth it. This was before they had the fight deal and fight was a th really a thing and all that. So it's not like there was this easy way to watch ROH TV if you were not in a Sinclair market. So it's not something I really kept up much with. Um, you know, they still have good talent. Um, interesting looking at what some of the booking is, though. I mean, uh, Steen was in WWE at this point, right? No. No, okay. No, Steen is not there for a year, I believe. Okay. Right. Because right? I, I again, it's just, yeah, it's just interesting to see, like, you know, because I know Scum was the big faction, and I know Steen, Steen was uh, either with them or against them 
toward the tail end of his Ring of Honor run. So when I didn't see his name uh, on this lineup, I was like, oh, okay, is he gone now? Or is he in a point where he's off TV? Because Cornette's gone from booking at this point, yes? Oh, he's long gone. He's completely Okay, I was going to say. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, Steen is gone in summer 2014. Okay, so yeah, he's still here for like another year. Okay. Yes, yes. His last match in the company is... Uh... Defeating Steve Carino in the blow off of all of that with the scum storyline. But I remember watching some of this stuff more recently um, when AEW did the Jay Briscoe tribute stuff and put a bunch of like Jay's best matches up on like the, you know, the, the special episode that they did, which is up on their YouTube channel. And it's just such a weird looking pro product, uh, 2013, 2014. Oh, cause that's also still a standard death too. Yeah. Yeah. So just to look back at it, it's just a very weird looking product, a weird sounding product. But, you know, it's still Ring of Honor. It still has that cachet. It's, you know, we, we mentioned it before the top indies. You know, there's people, you know, up until like the last like three or five years that when they would think of the indies, they would think of Ring of Honor was the indies. And then, you know, that was it. And then everything else was below indies, I guess. I guess. I mean, you know, there's the famous... Uh... Baron Corbin, uh, I guess I just have to say his name for context, Austin Aries, uh, NXT TakeOver match where Corbin's like, go back to, oh no, it was, Gar was it him or was it Gargano? I think it was Austin Aries. It was Aries? Yeah. <sighs> I feel like it was someone who wasn't in Ring of Honor, though, now that I think about it more. Because I, I he says he go back to Ring of Honor, but it was funny because maybe, did, did he do it twice maybe and that's what it was? I think he did it multiple times, but I think at that point, Ares was probably more known for his, uh, like, end run in Impact right. than his end run in Ring of Honor. Yeah, boy, we're talking about some swell human beings in this segment. Uh, I mean, the other thing I just wanted to say wow. before we moved on was, I feel like Rhett Titus deserves more credit for breaking out of the pack from the students than he gets. Yeah. Like, knowing how those ROH students were booked and how hard it was for them to get opportunities on the main shows and stuff, like, for that guy to have the career in ROH that he did, I feel, is really impressive. For sure. A uh, hard worker. Um, you know, he, he ended up getting a lot of bookings outside of Ring, Ring of Honor as well. Um, I think a lot of those early two or three Ring of Honor classes were people that were brought up a very different way and were kind of brought up thinking that wrestling is Ring of Honor, even though they may have had experiences elsewhere. And then once they graduated from Ring of Honor, they were just like, you're gone, you're gone, go figure it out for yourself. And most of them figured out, well, I'm done with wrestling. And Rat, you know, hustled, busted his ass, and is still busting his ass to this day. You know, he's also got like a wife and kids, and is very happy, and you know, doing great, which is awesome. We, you know, more to you can say about a lot of people involved in professional wrestling. And I mean, even now, like him and Hot Sauce, sometimes are having the best matches on those ROH tapings in Orlando, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't. Back to watching Ring of Honor at this point in time. That would come a year later, 2014, which the you know, first show went to was 2015. So, yeah, it it's just it's interesting looking at, looking at these results, you know, and looking at how, the, how this stuff was going in this time period, that's for sure. 
All right, Scott Garland, 39, who wrestled Scotty Tuhati and Scott Taylor from 1989 to recently, graduated on June the 5th from Lake Tech Fire Academy. He does absolutely nothing like he did in his wrestling days. He's not going to be working in Central Florida as a firefighter. That's a bit of an exaggeration. He looked exactly like he did in his wrestling days, just without the wacky hair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he looks but, now like he did when he yeah. was an active wrestler, just without the wacky hair. Like, yes. Maybe he didn't have his mustache during this period, so and maybe not as good as a tan. So that's oh why yeah, because it's not like we have dozens and dozens of Scott Taylor WWF TV matches without a mustache <laughs> too that he would be familiar looking from. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I was gonna say Scott uh, Scotty Tuati's had a resurgence in the last year or so. He's back on the Indies. You know, he ended up getting he was a, a coach at WWE, right? Yeah. yeah. And then he's been back on the indies in the last year or so, and, you know, to varying levels of success, touring overseas, uh, you know, always been like not a terrible wrestler, but always a very good wrestler. You know, and they say a lot of times those are the best ones to teach folks. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point he opened up his own school if he already hasn't. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like I even said to him, uh, said to him on Twitter the other day, like, not him, but you'll get where I'm going. This, like, I hate when someone like Cheeseburger is shot down by anyone with the idea he couldn't be a good coach. Cheeseburger is the type of guy I'd expect to be a great coach. Because he's scratching and clawing, and he's this wrestling sponge. Like, that is the type of person who makes a great coach. Yeah. Yes. Cheeseburger's, yeah, Cheeseburger's awesome. Uh, the folks, like, he, he took on a lot of the folks that kind of lost their way after... You know, Chikara fell apart three years ago and, you know, Ring of Honor no longer had like a dedicated school three years ago. And he pops up at the Ring of Honor tapings. He would pop up at the AEW tapings. And when they would do dark and dark elevation, he would get the biggest reactions on those dark and dark elevation things. And the kids that come out of his school are some of, you know, the best fundamental type stuff. And I know he was very proud the other day that he got the promotion and all the results finally up on cage match. You know, that cage match recognizes the student shows that he runs. Um, but cheeseburger is somebody that I get to see wrestle on a regular basis with the limited commentary that I do these days uh, for the LVAC shows. And he's always one of my favorite uh, dudes to see out there. And he's always like, you know, like the folks that he brings around, the folks that he recommends, um are always the best and he's you know he's never steered anyone wrong as far as i could uh recollect you know in my 10 plus years of dealing with him you know yeah. um, and to close uh, and to close up this section tommy dreamer was robbed of his 1300 payoff at the work in june the first for traditional <laughs> championship wrestling in meridian mississippi for their tv statements and the main event against their champion Lance Hoyt. He was flying Delta and told that because of space limitations, he had to check his carry-on bag. When he got his bag, somebody had gone through it and not just taken his cash, but other things as well. Michael Tarver, who was on the same flight, said the zippers of his bag were undone, so somebody had gone through his things. Another wrestler who flew from, flew from the taping, the giant Florida wrestler Titan, Goddamn. said he had... He had $17 taken from his bag, as well as a pack of gum and a shot of five-hour energy. <sighs> a very so, specified, itemized list of the items <laughs> stolen from his bag. Yeah, okay, so first of all, $1,300 for Tommy Dreamer. 
in 2013. I got to think he's agenting if this is a TV taping, right? Yeah. I'm sure he worked the match as well. You no, know, I mean, both. Do. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah both. Um, okay. I'm not saying this is his fault or blaming the victim, but I do find it weird that someone who's flown as much of him as him and has flown to as many far flung places would keep a cash payoff of $1,300 in their carry-on, knowing it could get gate-checked. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you forget, is all I'll say. Yes. Uh, I mean, well, it is Tommy Dreamer. But <laughs> still, like that's, like, that's a lot of cash to not keep on your person and to have not tried to find a way to deposit in the meantime. Well, also, for, for what was a reputable promotion, why are they paying so much cash? Actually, wait, I have an idea now, and I'm not going to say it. Uh, but, huh, that's an interesting story to end on. Yes, it is. So, it's time for Joe to step away. So, Joe, thank you for being on with us for this segment. So, go ahead and plug uh, all your uh, things you got going on. Yeah. Uh, well, don't don't plug your Amazon link that you don't have anymore, though. Which I forget if I told Chris about that. Yeah, he got he. He lost his Amazon referral too. Yeah, I lost. Well, shit, my- he had a lot longer than we did. <laughs> yeah, I lost mine earlier this year. Um, they they claimed I was not um, clearly labeling my links the right way, and I went through their whole um, web help thing, and their web help person directed me how to make sure I was doing things the right way, and I still got shut down. Um, we tried to open it up under my co-hosts' names, but just the affiliation with the shows was enough to get them shot down. We have an eBay affiliate program, which ain't the same as Amazon. You know, not as many people buy off uh, eBay as they do Amazon these days. But um, no, what I'll say is uh, patreon.com slash at odds with wrestling. It's a wrestling show. Let's plug that. Um, I do a weekly wrestling show. Um, you know, I will say bits of it are inspired by what you guys do. We do it this day in wrestling history. It gives me a t- chance to talk about wrestling that happened uh, not this week. We talk about wrestling that happened this week. We take phone calls. And then our homework segment where I would assign my co-host Adam something and he would assign me something. Move to the Patreon. Um, he assigns me mostly bad wrestling movies. All of the Mrs. movies is what we've been doing so far. Uh, I'm assigning to him that sweet spot of WCW from January to April of 2000 in between Russo regimes because I was not watching any of that. So it's like all new to me. Like I read about it in the newsletters, but I never watched any of it. Um, mostly right. bad, um, but <laughs> also, not as bad as the for the record, I would stuff. like to say that you gave the wrong URL for your own Patreon. Oh, I did? I looked at it. I looked at it right off the website. No, you said patreon.com slash at odds with wrestling. It's like oh, all of your socials. Yes, it's at odds wrestling. My apologies. Thank you. I'm just so used to the name of the show is At Odds with Wrestling. At Odds Wrestling. Uh, Adam trying to do that branding that didn't work. But thank you for correcting me. Uh, but yeah, it's and like I, I you know, and we're, we're I grabbed like episodes of WCW Saturday Night to watch uh, episodes of Worldwide. I might have had some help from uh, WCW Deep Cuts and finding some of that stuff. Shout out to whoever that mystery person is. Um, but like watching episodes of WCW Saturday Night that would be populated by multiple Sid Vicious trainees in squash matches <laughs> is interesting to watch 23 years on where like they're all wearing the same black tights, white t-shirt, and same haircuts combinations. Um, <laughs> you know, and just seeing, like, a hot seven-minute match between Crowbar and David Flair taking on PG-13. 
Uh, you know, so it's, it's like a lot of the power plant guys before they come on TV as the natural born thrillers uh, sort of stuff. Like that's the stuff that I like. Uh, the main two shows, your nitros, your thunders. Eh, it's trash, but I enjoy watching it. You know, I, 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 I any wrestling I haven't seen before. I really want to make Adam watch like a year of mid South or a year of Memphis stuff. But he, he insists that wrestling didn't start until 1990. Um, so I just got to find the right 1990 ish Memphis stuff that's out there in full for him to watch. And I'm going to assign him that stuff eventually. <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> I'm going to try again. I'm going to try it. If I can't, because, I, I, I mean, there's stuff out there, but <laughs> it's not luck. a full, yeah, it's not a full year, I guess. Right. It, it is, but you have to go through different channels to get stuff. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I got nothing but time. <laughs> I mean, just because of the way, way everything uh, has gone lately with certain people's YouTubes, that uh, it's, it's you can find it. You just have to go to certain places. Yeah. Now, but did anyway. you get to uh, did you get to review Team Two Thousand versus the Varsity Club? Yes, that was on one of the nitros that we watched. Yes, okay. I'd be I'd be curious to hear uh, your Patreon review of that because that's a. I remember what we covered that week on here and just looking at it and be like, wait, that match is nine minutes. That it, match right, that everyone say, remembers a, being like interminable and getting like more time than anything else that had ever been on Nitro was nine minutes. I was going to say it's a really weird and long match with a fucked up finish. The night before on the pay-per-view, they tease Chono and Vampiro doing something. And then the next night on Nitro, it's just Team 2000 against... Rick Steiner and Mike Rotundo. Well, of course. And the the finish is just like a mess. But yes. again, it goes like nine minutes. And like at one point, like Chono and Rick Steiner just brawled to the outside and are choking each other with like the like the TV camera cables, right? Yeah. And the the cameras are focusing on that while like action is going on in the ring. And like you see them trying to like coerce them back to the ring for the finish. And they just try to call an audible on the finish and everything gets screwed up. But again, it was a nine minute match, as you mentioned, probably one of the longer matches on Nitro at that time. There would be main events of Sid versus Kevin Nash that take place during that time that go to the ring with four minutes left of TV time. You know, <laughs> yes. Also notable for Rick Steiner repeatedly shoot punching his opponents in that match. But... <laughs> Shocking. But yes, definitely check out at odds, uh, but the Patreon and the regular podcast, wherever you find all of your favorite podcasts. Thank you. All right. Well, Joe, we appreciate it once again. So uh, after this quick uh, little break, we'll come back and we'll go to total nonstop action. Well, let's move on now to total nonstop action. No. TNA returned to pay-per-view on June the 2nd with Slammiversary from the Aganis Arena on the campus of Boston University. I forget, is that, where, uh, is that where AEW runs usually? Uh, it may be renamed now. But it's funny that Dave in his original uh, printing of this said it was on the campus of Boston College. <laughs> different, different, different school there, I Dave. I mean, that's a mistake uh, people make, but... Boston College isn't even in Boston. Well, that's a whole other Chestnut thing. Hill. I mean, the Cincinnati airport's in Kentucky. Well, the show overachieved in the sense it was better than it looked on going in on paper. The highlight of the show was Kurt Angle being named as his second entrant of the TNA Hall of Fame, something he was not aware of until it happened, nor were many others. 
Angle broke down to legitimate tears, and they came out later in the show with a strong performance against AJ Styles, and it was the best match on the show. But the big surprise, as far as show stealing, was the last knockout standing match with Taryn Terrell and Gail Kemp, who had the best women's match on pay-per-view or anywhere in one of the two major promotions in recent memory. Gail Kemp is clearly the best female wrestler in the business, in the major U.S. companies, or at least the best who has a chance to show it. But Terrell hung with her in easily a career-best performance when the two were put on late in the show and made sure they were not the buffer match to take the crowd down before one of the main events. The finale and biggest match of the show saw Bully Ray retain the TNA title beating Sting in a no-holds-bar match. The match is so full of smoke and mirrors, essentially Ray leading Sting along in a match filled with gimmicks and interference. Ray, before the match started, announced he was going to do a move so dangerous that nobody does it in wrestling any longer. The pile driver. And would win with it. It set the stage for Ray using the move and Sting kicking out the first time. Later, when Ray cut off the canvas in one of the corners of the ring and removed all the padding, he gave Sting a second ball driver on the plywood boards out of the foundation of the ring. Sting kicked out of that as well. While exciting, it also got preposterous with the entire Aces and Eights crew at ringside interfering and nobody from TNA coming out to hell. Unless it's playing on TV this week, that made no sense. Also, the spot with the pile driver on the boards, which they thought was brilliant and new, really should have been safe for someone career building in their badly needed top babyface role, as opposed to being used for staying. Where it's just a near fall for a split second pop. In the end, Ken Anderson threw a hammer to Bully Ray, who had staying with as he came off the top rope and Ray got the pin. By the stipulation, Sting could never get another TNA title shot for the rest of his career. There was a tease they wanted to give Brooke Hogan attorney. Brooke refused to answer a question in a pre-match interview about whether she still loved Bully Ray. She cut off the interview right there. There was a spot in the match where Sting was destroying Bully with a chair and Brooke came out which gave Ray a reprieve. Sting had to grab Brooke and take her to the back but she never interfered again so if you play it up what Brooke will end up doing in storyline going forward. The show drew 3,800 fans told and wasn't papered uh, much locally. The paid advance was 3000 before the show, so likely ended up a few hundred more than that by the end. That number has to be a disappointment, given they went to Lowell years back for lockdown and drew closer to 5500 But they were more popular promotion five years ago. But those who were there were hot enough for most of the show. It was noted that most fans were from Boston, but there were a lot of fans who came in from Montreal. There was the exception, it's Boston, the crowd be hot. But Boston fans also had a reputation of being dangerous, and that wasn't the case here. One of the things is that when it came to the first few rows, almost everyone in those seats came to the fan fest the day before. Every report we got was a promotion that made the fans feel welcome and let they appreciated them being there. When it comes to that type of thing, TNA's promotion comes across very fan-friendly. The theory is if you're nice to the fans at ringside, the ones on camera, they aren't going to screw with your show. Well, that's a bright idea and smart on their part to do that. You know, especially in an era where fans would be unruly as shows. And we ain't got to the CM Punk area yet, or the CM Punk chance. No, and aside from the infamous your cast members speech at Universal, <laughs> TNA was always very good at kind of cleverly handling those fan interactions. Yeah. Well they they had they definitely had a loyal fan base. That's one thing you know, we just said about TNA. They had a low fan base of the hardcores through and through. And, um, you know, especially in Orlando, the impact zone. Yes. And uh, I just checked, by the way, just to figure out where we are in the timeline. 
we're two months away from Kurt Angle getting another DUI and going to rehab. Because I was trying to remember when the Hall of Fame announcement fit into that. Yeah. Which I think means, because I don't think they held off his induction, because the induction's always uh, bound for glory. I think they had him go in the Hall of Fame right out of rehab, didn't they? Uh, sounds about right. You know, and credit to Kurt, he's one of those guys, like, uh, like Jeff Jarrett. Once they actually went to rehab for their problems, it just clicked for them. Yeah, and, you know, it does for a lot of people, but there's a lot of people that they have to go through it multiple times. Yes. So. All right, during the show, they talked about Destination X. However, the X Division champion was could cash in their title and go for the TNA title. They pushed like Chris Saban and won the title in three-way ultimate X over champ Kenny King of Suicide, again played by TJ Perkins, was the guy who was going to cash it in. There is no Destination X review schedule, so it'll likely be a heavily pushed episode of Impact over the summer. Well, let's start with that. That was the first match on the pay-per-view. Chris Saban won the X title in a three-way ultimate X match over Kenny King and Suicide in 1335. This is the 30th ultimate X match in TNA history, and Saban's been in about half of them. Saban, with his two torn ACLs, has lost a lot of the fire, which hurts, given the company seems like they agreed to give him his biggest push in a long time. Fast action, like good moves and climbing. It was one big spot after another. Crowd pop for King's springboard blockbuster, Saban. Suicide ran through the middle of the road, struck it both on the floor. There was a Tower of Doom spot. Italy, King and Saban both hanging outside down the cable and got to the center. Saban knocked King off. Saban tried to hook the belt, which took him far longer than he would have liked. Saban grabbed the belt to win, then fell off the cable to the mat. In his fall, he lost the belt, which ended up falling around his forehead, busting him open. That was crazy. I'm covered in blood, and nobody on TV having a clue as to why. Three and a quarter stars. Yes. Ten years ago, we're talking about how Chris Saban has no knees. And he's still going. I mean, and once he's he still got good. The, yeah, once he got those ACL repairs, like, he, he regained some of his speed. Like, at this point in 2013, because I remember I was watching some of the TNA TV at the time, and I know I watched at least the women's match on this pay-per-view because of how, you know, well-received it was, but you could just tell watching, like, this guy needs to get his knees taken care of, like, especially with the style he worked, and, you know, he's someone I've seen live a few times lately, you know, he limits what he does, but when it's time for him and Shelly to do, what is, it's not, it's not quite the, um, Backseat Boys dream sequence, but it's similar. You know what I mean, though, the, that big, like, double team, high speed thing they do. He yeah. looks like the same Chris Saban when he does it, but he picks his spots. But then that's him on his part. Yeah. But yeah, he's still going today, still good. Kenny King, you know, that's a guy that, who knows? I mean, he's been in Ring of Honor for years, had his TNA run. Just seems like he never hit that next level. No. Perkins, we all know, we all know what happened with him. So. But Perkins <laughs> is also on the best run of his career right now. <laughs> so. So that that's a weird one, because, like, he started to take this one path, and then New Japan wanted him back, and now he's probably getting, you know, the last year or so, he's probably getting the biggest push of his career. And he's, uh... 
a father and going to be uh, expecting again. So there you go. Mm-hmm. But we got more on Saban first. Sort of. Hulk Hogan came out and cut a promo about how Boston loves champions like Chris Saban. He came off like he was trying to put Saban over and tell people to cheer for Saban as well as they used to cheer for him when he faced Andre the Giant Boston. Funny thing is, Hogan twice faced Andre in Boston, both in 1980, and he was a heel in those matches. There was also a tag match in the late 80s when Andre was the heel. Crowd was really hot for Hogan. Hogan thought about Saban cashing in Destination X. Saban ended up disappearing in all this. It looks so stupid, says Ken Anderson, Garrett Bischoff, and Wes Briscoe all came out to confront Hogan and Saban, not with Hogan seconds earlier, was nowhere to be found. Anderson said Ace and Ace are going to steal the show. Hogan said they were in Boston, and nobody in Boston was afraid of ghosts, terrorists, which got a big pop, or pussies wearing leather. Yes, those were the words he used. People got off on his being risque, since you hear that language in WWE. He said that Joseph Park was going to start things off by winning the TV title. He told Bischoff he was going to bitch slap him, saying he's a bitch, and his old man's a bitch as well. Hogan got a huge reaction to this, but his endorsement statement did nothing for him the way it was done. Okay, I don't know if I want to watch the whole thing. I want to at least watch the beginning of this, because... It sounds like F-U-N-B Terribalea. <laughs> kind of. This is the first time we've done this era, and I feel like if we have one, we have to play the Hulk Hogan as Ian Rotten promo of the week. <laughs> which was what the joke was at the time before we started getting the Triple H's Ian Rotten promos. Yeah. Um... Also, this is Hogan wearing the weird glove because he burned his hand on the car radiator. <laughs> so, let's just see how this goes. Oh yeah, because by the way, this whole pay-per-view is on YouTube for free. Yeah. So if people want to check it out, there you go. Oh, why is that Taz? Huh? I said, why is that Taz? Why no? Why wouldn't he do that if it was Kenny King? <laughs> but I mean, I'm harping on the mute, the mute, the complete NWO ripoff music. Yes. I mean, just terrible ripoff. Um, I forget. Kenny King wasn't Aces and Eights, was he? I don't remember. Anyway, Hogan giving them the stamp of approval. Oh, yeah, we're also in the era of the three-man booth of Tanae, Taz, and Todd Keneally. Well, kind of sort-ish. <laughs> we'll have oh, more no, than No, we'll have more than oh, we go this along. this is the week Todd Keneally gets dropped, I can guess. We'll have more than as we go along. Okay. Saban certainly earned it. You see the wrap on Hulk's hand as a result of a recent accident. Mr. Saban, the new champion, to hear what my Boston maniacs sound like, brother. Well, you know, Mr. Saban, I gotta give this guy props because I've been in Boston for many, many years, fighting many wars in this town. And the one thing I can say, Mr. Saban, is Boston loves champions just like you, brother. So from now on, champ, every time you come out here, 
this crowd is going to scream just as loud as the first time Hulk Hogan beat up Andre the Giant in Boston, brother. See, you know what? He didn't say cheer. He said scream as loud. Yeah. Well, Hogan, it's Hogan, too. He he probably doesn't remember he never faced oh, Andre. No, <laughs> Which is kind of fun and interesting in that fact. That Hogan and Andre didn't have, never had a singles match in Boston. No, as heel fit with Andre's heel. No, and well, which that goes to show, and and they never had like a real house show run. No, they had like the small handful of matches that people know about. There's the you know there's the Milwaukee Stadium match. There's what was it? Omni was one of the others. Uh, yeah, um, I'm looking right now, other than, other than Mania, uh, three, which so main, the main, main event, Atlanta. main event. Oh, you just mean period, not house show. That's what I'm looking at, but that don't sound right. That don't sound right. I'm going to do some more research on this because I know there's more than this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You, well, I'm guessing you're doing the wrestling data encounters only one on one matches thing, or uh, kind of, sort of, yeah. I mean, I pulled up cage match and searched for Andre. The last match they have together, period, is a Milwaukee house show main event where Hogan and Boss Man beat the Colossal Collection on March 24th, ninety. Uh, they were at the October 23rd, eighty eight, in the Omni. They were at Greensboro Coliseum on August the seventh, eighty eight. WrestleFest in Milwaukee, Mania four um the main event and wrestlemania four and three that's it i mean greensboro that is the only singles matches they ever had in that feud in that feud period yeah and the house shows only being those three atlanta greensboro milwaukee that does sound right though yeah so that it was milwaukee really went a house show but i mean i mean it was it was it was I mean, it was going to be taped for video. Still. I think they probably, they pretty much knew that. But anyway. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, people that think that they may have this long house show run, they never did. Hogan, wor- Hogan worked Andre on the house shows almost as much as he worked Rude. <laughs> well. Andre had the big, his big house show runs were Jake Duggan and uh, Warrior. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. Anyway, I guess finish playing this. This is the future of our business right here. And you know something? To make a great night even better, Mr. Saban, I want to let you know that just like... Thanks. It's a Like I was trying to say, just like last year, brother, the X Division champion is going to have a shot this summer at the... Okay, so that's it for the Ian Rotten speech part of it, at least. Um, I don't know if we want to hear him swearing, brother, but... You want to hear him calling Ace and Nate a bunch of pussies? Yeah, let me me just pull up his comeback here, I guess. (laughs) Well, you know something, Mr. Anderson... I think you might have forgot where you're at, brother. You're in Boston, Jack. By the way, it's really <laughs> weird seeing him with the mismatched bandana. 
But he, he's done that a lot lately. He does wear he, he's wore that black bandana with yellow shirts and red shirts a lot in the modern era. Also, how about how the TNA Hogan shirts are not the right shade of yellow? <laughs> well, it's TNA. Number one, nobody in Boston is scared of no ghost. Number two, we sure as hell ain't afraid of no stinking terrorists. Boston Bomber. Yes. And number three, we're not afraid of free leather, brother. Wow. wow. Well, I mean, it is the first half hour of a three-hour YouTube video, so. April 15th, 2013 was the Boston Bomber. Yeah, so, yeah, we're right oh, there. That's happened, huh? Yeah. But, yeah, I'm oh. guessing one of the reasons they bleeped this is, yeah, they just uploaded this four weeks ago. And it's the first, you know, however many percent of a YouTube video. Alan Pyser must have told them that we were doing this week, so he got them to upload the, uh, the show, <laughs> huh? That was oh. nice! <laughs> So the way it goes, man, man. this is not aces and eights night. The way it goes, Joseph Park is going to start a roll by taking away the TV championship from aces and eights and Devon. You know, Garrett, you just need to shut the hell up. I just might bitch slap your ass. Folks, they're fired up tonight. I love it. You're a bitch, and your old man's a bitch, okay? (laughs) The second thing that's going to happen is the greatest wrestler in this damn business, Sting. He's going to punk out Bully Ray and bring the power back to TNA, brother. So seeing how I'm the general manager, and you can... Oh, I forgot about that. Teacher, man. Crotch. We might as well get this whole night started right now because you three, Garrett, Briscoe, and you, Anderson, you're in a six-man right now against Magnus... No, you're against madness. <laughs> Boy, it's Hulk Hogan uncensored tonight at Slammiversary and the GM laying down the law. I guess what they want to do is introduce them one by one. Hogan must not have got the uh, the memo on that one. So they got their yeah. music. And yeah, of course, he's the GM, that's what he's doing these uh, Ian Rotten promos. Yeah. So, of course, he's, he's going to have Magnus here. Then we'll have Samoa Joe. And Jeff Hardy. And he's or, been not Magnus long enough. We should probably point out that Magnus is uh, Nick Aldis. Nick Aldis, yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, Taz on commentary, so it's Jeff Hardy. Um, well, that's Aces and Eights Taz, right? <laughs> oh, I don't know if he's Aces and Eights Taz here or not. He may be. I don't know. Well, okay, I did check, by the way. What's his face? Um, Kenny King was not in Aces and Eights. All right, so Jeff Hardy, Samoa Joe, and Magnus. Beat Garrett Bischoff, Wes Briscoe, and Ken Anderson on 10.06. Ace and Ace attacked Hardy from behind for an early edge. He hot-tagged Joe. Crowd was super hot for Joe, putting the boost to Anderson. Joe seemed really happy to get that kind of reaction. Magnus tagged in. They took over on him. 
Hardy had to add in, went twice with a twist of fate on Briscoe, who took it wrong both times. To the point the announcers called it a different move. Hardy went to the top rope. Bischoff scooped his leg, and Hardy was crossed on the top rope. Joe used an instigator on Bischoff. Snapmare Bischoff and Madness came off the ropes with the elbow on him. Joe choked out Anderson outside the ring. Briscoe gave Madness a low blow and went for the pin, but Hardy came off the top of the swanton on Briscoe, and Hardy pinned Briscoe two and a half stars. Jeff Hardy, Samoa Joe, and Nick Aldis. That is a six-man tag team, that's for sure. And aces and eights. Uh, that was kind of a polarizing stable among the wrestling internet in that era, I think. Well, because it felt like just Bischoff or whoever deciding like, oh, Sons of Anarchy is a popular TV show. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like that never happened in wrestling history before, though, Vic. She, I mean, good Not Lord. to this degree, though. <laughs> I think it's who was put in there. Some of the people, some of the members of the group. Well, okay, like, so here, here, here's your okay. fo- uh, here's your total lineup of everyone that was in the group. Yes. Bully Ray, Devon, D'Lo Brown, Ken Anderson, Doc Gallows. I forgot he was in there. He, well, yeah, yeah well, he fit. Yeah, Mike Knox, Gary Fishoff. No. Wes Briscoe, no. Not Kez, really. who only fit because of the Dudley's connection. Uh, Brooke Tessmacher, Tito Ortiz, and Ivelisse. Tito Ortiz, yes. Yeah. Gallows and Knox fit. Yeah. And then uh, they broke up, and Knox had the whole thing where he was returning to his family's uh, destroyed carnival business that was ruined in the flood. Stories that TNA came up with, uh, but at least I got to see the uh, reunion of Gallows and Knox at a Russell America show uh, not too long after all this. So, oh boy, a lovely moment. But anyway, aces and eights. All right, uh, next, Joseph Park, the interview backstage. He thought about being the one year anniversary of his coming to TNA, and it was his first chance to capture gold. He said he learned today that the Boston Crab was a wrestling move. So here's a Boston Crab wrestling story from Dave. Story time with Dave Meltzer. In the mid-80s, Dave met Jagusa Nagayo, name dropper, who at the time was the, with the exception of Hulk Hogan was the most over-wrestler in the business and the most over-woman wrestler in the business ever seen. At the time, she had never been in the United States, but was dying to go to Boston. Dave asked, why do you want to go to Boston? Because she wanted to see the city that was known for the Boston Crab. <laughs> That's not the only funny part of that story either. The other city she named was Calgary. Because because wrestling. Like the way Dave is always described is like the way that someone might say like Honolulu for a vacation. She said Calgary. But the thing is though, is that I mean, you gotta think about the the, the, the reference here with the Boston Crab. What I mean, for young lion wrestlers, that's their main finishing move is a Boston Crab. Yes. The crab hole. Yes. Was that a thing in Old so, Japan women, too? Probably so. It was a thing in New Japan and All Japan men. Mm-hmm. So I got to believe that probably All Japan women did it, too. But anyway, Knox and Devon attacked Park and destroyed him. They threw him into a wall and kept beating him down. The last thing you saw was blood on the wall. Jay Bradley beat Sam Shaw, or as you may now know as Dexter Loomis, in 456, earned his way into the Bound for Glory series and winning the Gut Check Winner Tournament. 
Not much of a match. Saw Shaw looked really green. Bradley won with an eye poke and a lariat. They get the impression that Bradley is some new guy starting his career. And then they mentioned on commentary that Bradley debuts a pro wrestler in 1999. Star in a quarter. <sighs> this whole thing was weird. I... I've always felt kind of bad for for Bradley because, like... Jay Bradley, also known as... Uh, Brad Bradley, Bradley J. Uh, Aiden O'Shea. Aiden O'Shea, yeah, that's another name. Uh, these days noted, I guess best known as Billy Corgan Stooge, Jay Bradley. <laughs> A guy who, uh, when you got IWMS out, you're like, oh, this guy? <laughs> well, at first, I liked the team with Ryan Boz, though. It was all right. Um... <laughs> The joke on IWA Mid-South commentary at the time was that Jaden Drago was to the Shawn Michaels Wrestling Academy as Jay Bradley was to Steel Domain. <laughs> yes. Yes. But anyway. Yeah, why isn't he agenting in uh, AEW? I don't know. I don't know. Abyss pinned Devon to win the TV Tom 340. It's scheduled as Devon versus Joseph Park. Knox came out with Devon. Park's music played twice. He didn't come out at the time. Devon talked about how this is like when the New York Knicks beat the Boston Celtics in the playoffs for easy heat. Are there any as much heat as you would think? It did lead to a Let's Go Bruins chant. Devon then told referee Brian Stifler to ring the bell and Cal Park out and warm the match. Stifler didn't at first. Devon then told Stifler if he didn't ring the bell, he'd kick his ass and the match hadn't started. There's nothing TNA can do about it. Dave said, I get creative license and all, but how does this make any sense? Stifler ran the bell, started counting. Part never showed up, so he raised Devon's hand, retained the title by forfeit. Devon did an interview, said he'd beaten up Joseph Park if he showed up. And if Abyss showed up, he beat him up too. Dave thinks, based on where this was going, Devon was supposed to bring up, he'd defend the title against Abyss if he was here, but we know he's not. Anyway, Abyss did show up. Knox attacked Abyss from behind. Devon was beating on him. Abyss had played parts so long it was almost rot memory that in his movement he was still working like a green guy instead of a monster. Devon pounded on him. Abyss really should have won this in 30 seconds. Plus, you don't notice it when he's dressed up as Park or working the way he does. But Abyss has gained a lot of weight. It's really slow compared to what he used to be even 18 months ago. He also sold way too much for his first match back. And the people didn't want to see Abyss sell. And it took down the match. Just the wrong thing at the wrong time. Abyss won with a choke slam and black hole slam, and announced he won the title. Dud. Now, outside of the valid complaints Dave has about this specific match, for this kind of weird, goofy storyline, the Joe Park Abyss stuff was actually really well executed. Yeah. I mean, they made the fans want to see him transform back into Abyss, and they earned but it. And they did a good but job with that. What about Dave's criticism about him being in the Joseph Park character so long and forgetting how to wrestle as Abyss? Uh, I mean, it's a short match. Do you, you, well, actually, how long is it? It's three forty. But, but Dave, but Dave also thinks that. I mean, and what do you do about his other criticism that a match should have been thirty seconds? I mean, that's right I about. Uh, yeah, he's absolutely. That's right where that. I go. Yeah. So yeah, if they're going to do this type of angle, Abyss should come out and steamroll Devon. Yes. If you're going to do what you're doing, you need to have came out, steamrolled him, 30 seconds, win the title, place goes nuts. It's effective. 
He should have been Salink. He no. should not have been Salink. No, I'm just wrestling to promotions make comeback. the mistake. Wrestling promotions make mistakes in doing this sometimes. TNA is not, not the first and won't be the last. When you have some like, a, a, an angle like this, fans don't want to see competitive matches. They want to see fucking squash. Yes. Okay, we don't need the sound for this, but let's see. I mean, Abyss never had the best punches and clotheslines, so I don't know if that's indicative of anything. I'm trying to figure out what spots are we looking for here that he's still that he's still working like Green Joe Park. I don't know. I guess I guess it's probably the early part of the match. I don't know. Well, he was selling. Oh, you know what? It probably is. Probably his footwork, actually. <sighs> also, I get why you're doing it now that you've done the Joe Park thing, but I don't like the mask that shows more of his face. Yeah. So I don't know. I. <sighs> It is what this it is. is weird. Bo- it is this is, is weird booking, though, to not just have him squash Devon in thirty seconds. Yeah. All right. Next came the announcement of Kurt Angle going to the Hall of Fame. Everyone booked on the show that wasn't in Aces and Eights came out, as well as Velvet Sky, who wasn't booked, but was there. Even Hulk Hogan. They were all on the ramp as Dixie Carter was in the ring. The agents of rest were there as well. Carter came out and first gave a TNA pep talk. They played Ang- the Angle video, and he was in tears. Carter said Angle gave TNA the ability to know we were going to make it even if he was their leader. Angle said he'd have some awesome moments in Boston, but this taught them all. He thanked his wife, Giovanna, the second one, not Karen, and mentioned his four kids, as well as thanked Dixie Carter, Serge, Serge Salinas, Dixie's husband, and Mr. and Mrs. Carter, Bob and Janice, for bringing him there. He said there were a lot of guys deserving of uh, being in the Hall of Fame, mentioned AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, Bobby Roode, and James Storm. He said TNA had the best roster in the world, and it make him look good, and he's in the Hall of Fame because of them. He also thanked Jeff Jarrett and said TNA changed his life. Yeah, now he can walk around in the airports and restaurants and not be hounded nearly as much by fans wanting autographs. <laughs> but really, this segment was tremendous. In many ways, to highlight the entire show. I mean, where would TNA have been without Kurt Angle? The guy comes in... And yeah, he definitely had his problems. But the guy came in and basically just revitalized that promotion by him just being there. And then he goes out and he has very memorable matches. And even though he's fighting through all of his problems, but he went out there and he kicked kicked ass. And he he performed and he was he was the MVP of that promotion in that era. I mean, that's the thing, too, is that especially with all the other guys who who jumped and, you know, he was technically kind of fired, but still he was not treating it as easy money. You know, he was working his ass off, you know, to a degree that probably made his problems worse. Maybe. Yes. But he was not he was not this guy who looked down on the company the way that so many others did. And, and he I'll, just poured himself into it. I'll say this. He may have had better matches. His best matches may have been in TNA. His best matches in his career probably came in TNA. Like the Joe matches and the Jeff matches. AJ yeah. Styles. I mean, he had some extremely memorable TNA matches and moments. WWE, I mean, what do, what, what do we remember Kurt Angle for more in WWE? Outside the ring stuff. 
Oh, the Shane McMahon King of the Ring. And the Sean matches and the Benoit matches yeah. to degree, but Yeah, but still, what's Curtin remembered for? His, his promos and skits. Yeah. And the Triple H and Stephanie Angle. That's what he's remembered for the most probably more than anything. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's outside the ring. TNA was inside the ring. And yes, Taz is in Ace and Ace gear. I've just seen that. But, um, but yeah, that's what he's remembered for than anything else. So TNA, you know, it's, it's safe to say, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, but in my opinion, which is all that matters to me, that uh, his best matches as a whole was in TNA. His best run as a inside the ring. Uh, yeah, no, he definitely deserved to be in their Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Hands down. All right, as we move forward, um, Angle and Styles were also the show's best match. With the Styles character, which is supposed to be 1997 Sting, remade to bring him up to that elusive top of his position, isn't working so far. He shouldn't be losing. Dakes the idea of not being Angle when he's announced for the Hall of Fame, but unless this loss is a major part of a bigger story, Styles shouldn't be losing right now. If he is, he should have a significant part of their story and necessitated, necessitated it. We'll see if that transpires this week. But even then, the new superhero losing clean to a takedown and pin isn't going to make him into a strong top babyface. Well, we'll have more on that as we go along. Christopher Daniels and Kazarian said a few years ago, TNA titles meant nothing. And only the singer stringers were fighting over him. They know two years ago, Bound for Glory, they didn't even put a tag title match on the show. They claim to be the ones who elevated the prestige of the titles, and everybody am enough now that two world champions, Bobby Roode and Austin Aries, came together. And that Chavo Guerrero Jr. came to TNA and teamed with the world's strongest Mexican. And how a cowboy and a Viking came together. Which leads to James Storm and Gunner won a four-way elimination bout over tag champs Chavo Guerrero Jr. and, and uh, Hercules, Hercules, Hot Stuff Hernandez, Sean Hernandez, Austin Aries and Bobby Roode, and Chris Renan's in 1641. Storm's leg wasn't taped up, but he was limited in what he could do. It was hurting, especially after the match. He said he was at 75%. One big spot was Hernandez doing the Bruno Sammartino backbreaker over the shoulder on Kazarian. Chavo then picked up Daniels and handed him to Hernandez, so Hernandez had both men on his shoulders. Later, Chavo and Hernandez ran down the ramp with a double air Mexico's on Daniels and Kazarian. Hernandez went for the long pausing vertical suplex spot on Daniels. Suplex root in areas at the same time. Chavo did three amigos on Kazarian. Daniels used Angle's wing on Chavo. Gunner clothesline Daniels. Rude used netbrick on Gunner. Storm used a backstabber on Rude. Daniels hit Storm in the knee with a belt shot. Aries had a spinning elbow on Aries. <laughs> wow. Austin Aries used a spinning elbow himself. How about that? And used a spinning forearm on Gunner. Hernandez used a border toss on Kazarian. Chavo came off the top with a frost splash on Kazarian. Daniels hit Storm in the knee with a belt shot, getting disqualified and eliminated 11 11. So they're gone. Aries and Cradle Chavo 11-29. Got them out of there. It should be noted the crowd in Boston didn't care for much either of the two babyface teams were really into Daniels and Kazarian and disappointed when they were the first ones eliminated. This left Storm and Gunner against Aries and Rude. Aries catapulted, excuse me, Rude catapulted Gunner into an elbow by Aries. Aries was chopping Gunner who no-sold the child and gave Aries a backbreaker. Rude pulled Storm off the apron when Gunner went for the tag. Storm was selling the knee from the belt shot. Storm came in with insecurity and net break on Rude. He was both selling, but also seemed like he was hurting. Gunner catapulted Aries to a DT by Storm. Gunner had Rude in the torch rack. Aries broke it up, gave Gunner a net break, knee break and back suplex. Rude did a spine buster on Gunner, and then, then Aries used 450 on him. Gunner kicked out. Storm hit the code break on Aries and not Rude off the apron. Storm hit a super kick on Aries, and Gunner picked Aries up for the torch rack, which they're now calling the gun rack, and Aries submitted. 
The story of this match is to build Gunner up as a star. He's got the look and could work fine. There's something missing in the connection with the audience, though. From a booking standpoint, it's kicking out the 450 and beating Aries clean with a rack twice on TV in one week. Should they were giving every shot at it, three and a quarter star. What an interesting group of humans this match is. <laughs> yes, the recently retired gunner, Chad Lale. Yes, Jackson, the former Jackson Riker. Uh, and him and uh, him and Austin Aries have a lot in common. Um, some things, yes. I almost feel like it's be- <laughs> the one of the few things I would say is mean to say about Gunner to say they have everything in common. I don't say uh, everything, a lot in common. They definitely have some things in common. Certainly, their feelings about probably certain uh, vaccines and the like. Um, well, <laughs> well, that's pretty much old news now. <laughs> Now, of the two gunners who have been in the Scenic City Invitational, who is your preferred gunner? Uh, I mean, I mean, Gunner Miller. Okay. Who's wrestling again, by the way? He's been wrestling. He just wrestles for uh, Southern Fry mainly. Well, Southern Fry or Southern Honor? Southern Honor, excuse me. I think he does. I think he does some Southern Fry stuff too, but Southern Honor. Okay. Yeah. Um, is James Storm wrestling for NWA or anything still, or is he just done? I don't know. I mean, you see his name sometimes, so I guess he still wrestles, but... Yeah, and weird. Aries and Rude are the Dirty Heels, is their team name, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the Dirty Heels. And Kazarian and Daniels at this point are bad influence? Yes. Or are they not even that yet, or are they just Daniels and Kazarian? Well, I don't, there may not be bad influence yet, but they're going to be bad influence. Right. Bad influence was their initial, like, collective TNA team name. Then they went to ROH in the middle of that run and became the addiction. And then eventually they bring in Scorpio Sky and they're SoCal Uncensored. Yes. Has the same tag team had more different names than that? <laughs> uh, probably not. Probably just like something weird like Al Perez and Joseph Oldy. <clears throat> something. But, uh, there you go. Oh, and timeline wise, uh, Three months before the uh, Austin Aries Christy Heavy incident, to figure out where this fits into the picture. Jeremy Borash interviewed Brooke Hogan. This is seven where Borash asked her if she still had feelings for Bully Ray. Shut it down the interview and left. Oh, no. <clears throat> Next, we get Taryn Terrell over Gail Kim in 9 19 of a last knockout standing match. ODB was the referee, as she is all for women's matches in TNA. No, she's the referee in all the women's match DNA is what, what, what Dave is saying. Uh, Kim took over early and got a chair, but Terrell kicked the chair out of her hands. Terrell's doing some 70 styles women match hair mares. Crowd wasn't much into this early. This is women on spot in this card. Traditionally, it's traditional death spot. Terrell came off the top rope. McKim picked up a chair, so Terrell crossbody crashed into the chair Kim was holding. That woke up the crowd with a holy shit chant. Kim needs to figure four around the post. Later, she missed a tackle, flew to a chair, set up at the quarter. Very slow tank up ODB. Terrell came back, gave Kim the figure four around the ring post. She also dove to the rose like a tope, crashed her on the ramp when Kim moved. Kim swept her leg, and Terrell fell back on her, fell on the back of her head on the ramp, but let, got the count, at, beat the count at nine. Terrell then delivered the ace crusher off the ramp. There must have been some inside reference to her using John Laurinaitis' finisher. The crowd went crazy fast spot when this is awesome chant. Terrell got up at nine, and Kim didn't get up at ten, so Terrell was awarded the match. Three and a half stars. Okay, have you ever seen this? No. Really? Okay. Um, I told you, I, I, I didn't watch TNA. 
I know, but this was a match that like everyone went out of their way to see at the time after after hearing how good it was. Well, um, I guess I, I was the outlier. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, it's not long, so I would say I would say it's worth taking the time to see because knowing what we would see in time that like Terrell had become a very good wrestling personality, but her wrestling hadn't improved that much. I think. There's a strong argument this is the best performance of Gail's career. Is the dollhouse going at this time? No, that's later. Okay. No, that's not for another, like, two years. Okay. So that's the Terrence Rell I remember in TNA. Yes. Uh, is that era? She, she was good as that character, but it was clear that her in-ring had not... Her in-ring had improved, but not to the degree you would think from watching this match, but... Let's just watch the finish to this match, because this was a real holy shit thing at the time. Or did I? Oh, I see. That was, that was, uh, that was a bad landing for, for Terrence. Halfway there at five. I think it's the experience coming into play there for Gale. Able to sidestep and sweep there. Gale's going to win this thing here, guys. She's jumped up to a knee at eight. A kicker, kicker. And again, she was able to barely beat that 10 count. No. Oh, what does Gail have in mind now? Is she going for a damn power driver on the ramp? She's going to try and end her career here. Sentiments exactly to our live audience in Boston. Yeah, holy excrement indeed. With a bulldog off the ramp to the floor. ODB's count. I'm stuck in a moment. And that's it. Karen just got up to her feet before the TV. Mike, you've been here since day one. I don't think that I have ever seen a, a knockouts match as physical as this one. And, we, and we've got to take another look at some of this incredible action. As Terry Terrell just beat Gail Kim. Well, we know that even going into this, there's a lot of disdain and hatred towards each of these ladies, towards each other. And there's a lot of physicality. And Gail Kim here trying to just dismantle the legs of Terry Terrell. Jesus Christ, that bump was insane. <laughs> Gail basically yeah. did the psychosis corner bump to nowhere, but with a chair in the corner. With the only weapon, her only weapon was that chair. Turn about Sam Flag, yes, Taryn does it to Gail with the submission. And the physicality, as you can just imagine, we're not from there. Look at this. Jesus, I forgot that too. She did that like two days for the ramp. And this too. Taryn landed hard. Watch this counter. Watch this bulldog. Here's the other thing too. Especially that they were this physical match with chair shots and crazy bumps. I mean, 
Yeah, or AJ... The likes of AJ still having good matches sometimes, like with Caitlyn and certain other opponents if they get time in WWE, yes. But they're still under such heavy restrictions. You're not seeing well, anything like this from the WWE women's division at the time. We we aren't at that stage. We're not at that stage yet. That's what I'm saying. But it's like it. So not yeah. only that, but like so you have that. No one had real any expectations for Taryn Terrell for very understandable reasons. Tiffany. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's still the t- she's still. I mean, is the stigma still there for her? I mean, the stigma isn't just that. The stigma is also like. She's the crazy ex that got Drew McIntyre fired, basically, is how people look at her. And based on how it seems like it was a domestic situation where she was at fault and he got punished over it to some degree, you know, there's probably some legitimacy to that. But no one expected this. Like, they expected them probably to have a good match and do a little bit of stunt spots. Even with Gail trying her hardest, like, nothing like this. This... This match was a big fucking deal at the time. And the fact that, you know, people started to think Taryn Terrell might have turned into a good wrestler, too, shows just how good Gail Kim is. Well, that, yeah, that, yeah. And, you know, Gail, knowing the way she thinks about wrestling and women's wrestling and the things she did not like in WWE, I'm sure part of this was going out to show we can do every bit the hardcore match the guys can. And honestly, given the type of plunder match they did in TNA in that era, probably a better one. Well, they didn't use a whole bunch of weapons. No, and they made all the weapon shots mean a lot, too. Yeah. They didn't overdo it with weapons and all that shit, so... So yeah, I would definitely say, like, especially since this whole show is free on YouTube now, if you haven't seen this or you haven't seen it in a long time, people listening, like, check this out. It's not that long. And it's a very interesting point in uh, Americans women's re- American women's wrestling. Alright, as we move on, Kurt Angle pin AJ Styles at 1543. As far as phys- physically and in layout, this was an excellent match. The negative is the crowd had no idea how to take Styles, which took the match down a notch. Styles has new music, which sounded like he fit a cowboy more than fit Styles. Styles got the early edge, included a ready dropkick slide through the ropes, knocking down Angle on the floor. Styles did a springboard drop kick to the left knee, which Styles, Angle had taped up. Angle was still in the knee big. Styles went for the calf killer. The calf slash is a mission used by Charles Oliveira in UFC. Angle made the ropes. He can work on Angle's left knee. Styles used a high drop kick in Boston Crab, and Angle burst into an ankle lock. Styles made the ropes. Styles came back with a quebrada for a near fall. Angle did three German suplex for a near fall. Styles came back, snapping Angle's neck on the top rope, and did a sent off from the apron into the ring for a near fall. The crowd still wasn't that hot at this point because of Styles' personality. There was a great spot that woke up the crowd where Angle did a German superplex. Styles landed on his feet in the ring, and Angle then grabbed him into the belly belly overhead suplex to the turnbuckles for a great near fall, which led to a This Is Awesome chant. Styles doing all kinds of slapping and knee spinning strikes on Angle. He did a springboard to a low blow by Angle. After some counters, Angle got near fall with the Olympic slab. Styles went for the calf killer again. Angle reversed to Angle lock. Styles teased tapping big. Styles kicked Angle over and over with his free lead to break. Big TNA champ. Angle missed a tackle into the corner. Styles hit a low drop kick. Fall by Brat Breaker. He then missed the springboard 450. And Angle used schoolboy for near fall. Angle went for an Olympic slam. But Styles countered. Angle double edged and got the three count. Great match taken on its own. 
But Dave was more confused by how Styles was being used when this was over. Not in a good way. Four stars. So what Dave is talking about is this is the beginning of what was basically supposed to be Sting during the NWO angle stage Styles. Yeah. Where it's the beginning of long tights. Well, I guess he had been doing the long tights already to a degree, maybe. But long With the tights, hair. mom hair, bearded AJ Styles. Which is what he took ran, took ran with and became an even bigger star than ever. Yes. Um, and you can see from the description of like the moves he's doing, this is him figuring out his new style and more of his main event style. And I do wonder if he just tries to keep being like, not that he didn't still do a lot of his flying, but if he tries to still be like youthful high flyer AJ Styles, I don't know if that guy ends up becoming a top star in New Japan WWE. Um, no, he needed this depth to 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 his personality, his character, and all that stuff. He needed this. Yes. He needed this change, and it made a bigger star. Oh, and I mean, it made him a much bigger star. Saying it made him a bigger star is underplaying it. You know, he he gets released in what twenty fourteen? Yeah, and this was one of those moments that really, like, well, not released. His contract expires, and they won't offer him the money he was getting previously, the, the, which was the best thing to happen to him. Well, that's the thing. So all of a sudden now he's taking all these indie dates and he is noticeably a draw. With Absolutely. being that impact TNA was not drawing at all at the time. That might have been the first big sign that like this brand is irreparably toxic. Because you have this guy who has this TV exposure, who is being pushed there forever. And has been, you know, pushed in this gimmick for the last year, year and a half. And they weren't drawing. But he was clearly a draw away from the company. And then he goes to New Japan. You know, credit to Ghetto. Because this was one of the ballsier things he did, but it worked in a big way. He saw this incredibly talented American wrestler who was trying to do something different and change his career. Brought him in as an immediate main eventer, immediately put the belt on him, and that changed his career in a big way too. Because all of a sudden now, because New Japan's booming business-wise, now he is this legit worldwide main event superstar, leader of the Bullet Club. Yep, that he he takes over for Devitt when Devitt leaves, and that you know sets him up even more. To when his contract is up, go to WWE and become a bigger star than he'd even been before that. 2016. Yep. I feel like his New Japan run's almost been forgotten now. Like, he was tremendous there. Yeah, I mean. And specifically that he was a main event heavyweight, too. Yeah. As Scott Steiner's coming to Bix's place. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's forgotten about. You know, I mean. Because. I mean, all, I think I don't. I don't know. I think the New Japan run may be more memorable than his Ring of Honor run, his original ROH run, or his post TNA no, run. The post TNA run. I mean, he didn't do much there, and he was 
IWGP champion for so much of it, so he wasn't even doing jobs and all that. So I was just saying, so he wasn't he wasn't there much, but um, yeah. Now it's you know it's, it's it's just we think of him from being TNA and then WWE, but I mean the people that that you know know definitely remembers New Japan run for sure. But when you think about it, it's like he was I'm not there it. that long. He was only there for what like a year and a half. January 2016, he's gone. Yeah, so he's only there for like a year and a half, two years. So I guess that's why, like, he's not necessarily being thought of the same as, at, like, closely associated with him as maybe an Omega or Osprey. Well, they were there for so long. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you have Jay White, who had longer runs. Well, Devitt, too. I mean, they remember, they remember more for being the leaders of the Bullet Club than Styles is. Even though Styles was the leader of the Bullet Club when Bullet Club really started to become a big thing internationally. Yes. That's another thing, too, with what we were talking about. The reasons for that. Yes, because he was this huge indie draw, and now all of a sudden he's in this group with these cool t-shirts, and he's got the Young Bucks who are getting over big, too, and all that. And, you know, we should move on. But it's like, yeah, like this is the beginning of that AJ Styles, this show right here. Yeah. All right, uh, main event, Billy Ray, Penn Sting at 1421 to retain TNA title. Sting got a huge reaction coming out. I know it's a broken record, but it speaks volumes when you have a hot, hardcore crowd. And to them, by far, the guys they see as the real stars are Hogan and Sting. They built the pile driver spot well between the Billy Ray promo and Taz about how pile driver nearly ended his career. True story. He was spy pile driven in ECW, and his neck gradually worse to the point he had to retire. He still feels the effects of it to the day. Ray uh, brought chair in, but Sting got him. Was pounded on him with it when Brooke Hogan came out. Sting told her to go to the back. She was hysterical at Ray being pounded. Ray came back with a low blow, kicked the chair into Sting's face, hit a pound driver, but Sting kicked out. Ray freaked out on that. Ray got a table. Whole place cheered. Naturally, Sting made a comeback, but eventually Ray powerbombed Sting through the table. Crowd cheered that spot like crazy, even though in theory it would cost Sting the match. It tells you how seriously they take the TNA title in the match still. No, it's not that day. Crowd loves fucking tables. <laughs> I mean, to this day, it's insane to me. But it is. Uh, Sting kicked out. Taz and gave Ray a knife. That was looking really bad, but thank God Ray didn't use it for a blood spot. Instead, he cut the ring up, removing the canvas and padding the corner and leaving them but exposed boards. The crowd was chanting ECW while this was going on. Ray gave him a pile driver and the exposed boards. Sting kicked out. Ray freaked out again. Went for a second pile driver, but Sting back dropped out of it. Sting went for a pile driver on the boards, but Ray back dropped out of it. Ray missed a senton middle road. Sting used a scorpion death drop on the boards. Before referee Earl Hebner could count to three, Briscoe and Bischoff broke up the pin. Doc and Knox were out as well. Sting now Briscoe, Bischoff, Doc and Knox, all with low blows. Threw Bischoff over the top rope onto the ramp and started started Superman comeback. Devon came out through in a chain, but Sting had the chain hit Ray with and went for the pin. This time Devon pulled Hebner out of the ring before he could count three. So there was this point, five guys on the ring plus Ray, and nobody was helping Sting. Anderson came out through a hammer to Ray. Sting came off the top rope into the hammer spot. Got pinned. Normally, Dave said it was overbooked, but given the limitations of these two, would have him doing a regular match in the main event spot and given the steps, Sting couldn't go down easy. You needed to hear three stars. Yeah, in a match like this, you know, you got to get your smoke and mirrors out, like Dave said earlier. And but it's something that, you know, Sting had nobody come and help him out. That's the problem, yeah. But but in terms of doing a smoke and mirrors match, I don't have a problem with that. No. But uh, yeah, this is that era where Bully Ray is the uh, 
the top singles man in TNA. And in the program where he married, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Biggest run of his life. Alright. Todd Keneally was told to some version he was being taken off the announce team. Keneally's background included NWA Hollywood Wrestling, not just Wrestling Hollywood, Hulk Hogan Celebrity Championship Wrestling, where he would have worked with Hogan and Eric Bischoff, had been with the company since October. So the idea of two separate announce teams on Impact, similar to what Bischoff did with Nitro. Keneally and Jeremy Borash did the first hour, handing out the bitch Tanae and Taz as the veteran announce team in the second hour, which came across as really awkward. That lasted only a few shows until Borash, instead of one of Keneally, was the one dropped and he had a three-man team. The dynamics between Taz and Keneally was at times uncomfortable because their interaction at times veered past the point of simply face announcer against heel announcer. Keneally was working on a personal agreement. This wasn't a cost-cutting measure, but just the feeling that they have different plans for announcing going forward, and Keneally wasn't part of those plans. How long before Josh Matthews is in TNA? Ooh, when does that start? I'm looking. Because he's got to be there soon. I'm looking... 2014? There you go. December, uh, December 2014. That he well, it took a while. Plays. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he was still in WWE at this time. Oh, it was, um, it was the move to Destination America where Tanay became like the special assignment sit down interview host. Yeah, he's, Matthew's still in WWE. He's, uh, doing Saturday morning slam and main event. And he gets released on June 25th. Oh, no, June 25th of the following year, excuse me. Yeah, 14, yeah. Earl Hender banged up his knee at anniversary. We were told he is knee on something during the Bully Race team event. We'll slip in the rest of the night. He was trying to stay near the ribs and hold on to take the pressure off the leg as much as possible to latter stages. The trainer checked him after the match. Hender thought he had sprained his knee, although it looked a lot worse live during the match. The injury isn't believed to have been serious. Sting questioned the decision to beat him at Slammiversary and talked about wanting to do a match with The Undertaker at WrestleMania. Regarding the decision for him to lose and never got another title shot, he said, it's a question I've asked myself and thrown out a few times here and there. I wonder what the booking team's intentions are, he said in the VOC radio interview. When I was at Dutton Hall of Fame, I asked Dixie if she was putting me out the pasture. She said, absolutely not. I'm giving you a straight-up answer. It makes me wonder. Regarding WWE, he says, no secret. I've always wanted to wrestle The Undertaker. He said it for years, and who would not want to work WrestleMania? He talked about the previous toss WWE. He said nobody thought we met WWE. So we went down in 2001. He had 18 months left on his contract, and WWE declined to pick up the contract, forcing Turner Broadcasting to continue to pay him. WWE turned down most expensive contracts, not one to mess with their own pay scale. WWE was on the hook for any contracts that were guaranteed that WWE didn't want. There have been lots of arguments over the years that WWE would have made more money back, more than made the money back for those contracts if they did the program with WCW's biggest stars, WWE versus WCW. Certainly at least taking some of the contracts would have made it, had it been done correctly, the biggest money feed in wrestling history, a status as remembered as anything but. Sting said in 2006, he had a week worth of talk with the with Vince McMahon. They came close, he said, but he decided instead to go with TNA. It's probably 2005, which was the correct time frame for this. Sting told people over the years that the reason he didn't go is because he saw WF virtually never used WCW talent well and didn't want to be added to that list. <laughs> well, guess what happens to Sting when he goes to WWE? 
Same though in 2011 when there were all the rumors of him going to Mania that he had not talked to WWE at all when the vignettes played. I had nothing to do with it. I had no conversation with WWE at that time. Shortly afterwards, there was a conversation just by happenstance with nothing official. What happened was the WWE official did call Sting a few weeks after the vignettes played and the rumors were flying just to feel him out. Essentially, Sting was told that if he was interested to call Vince. And Dave didn't believe he followed up on it because he already made a verbal commitment to TNA from the year by that time. It was funny because people everywhere were reporting that he was going to wrestle the Undertaker Mania. And at that time, WU never considered or called him. And he was finally called weeks later. It wasn't even someone looking to make a deal as much as a social call where the subject was brought up. And he was given, if you have me interested, type of response. As much as anything problems in the past WU for years was not interested in anything but a full-time schedule. And Sting had money and kids growing up and didn't want to be on the road. Now, with Lesnar, Undertaker, Rock, and others, Vince has shown he'll sign limited date deals. Whether he thinks Sting was marketable enough to get one of them, who knows? Even when they did talk, the money promised never enough that made it clear that they were going to do anything significant with him like it was with Bill Goldberg, who really only got the deal he did because Dwayne Johnson wanted to work a program with him and brokered it pretty much himself. But things fell apart because Johnson started to get so much movie work that after their first match, he was never around to protect him. Wasn't that an interesting side note to that story? Sting's deal's up at the end of this year. That's yeah. That when it comes to that, that first run of Goldberg, that never comes up. That The Rock was supposed to be in a long-term program with him and only does one match, and he's gone, and he's not there to protect Goldberg from being embarrassed. Yeah, because Rock saw how they were using him and was like, "Yeah, I'm piecing out." But the, all right, so the vignettes you're talking about here, yes, um, is the ones with that uh, that shack. Yeah, and. Had the, the crow was out there. Let me see what I can find. People were losing their minds at the time. They were, everybody was, we were all thinking, oh, fuck. Sting's finally coming in. <laughs> because it looked so obvious it was a thing. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm seeing if I can pull up any of these. Okay. Uh, Is this the one? Okay, it's not where you actually return. Okay, so it's... Yeah, let me actually, uh, should I just search then for 221.11 or just pick yeah. one of these? Because uh, I feel like, I felt like the last time I looked at them, I felt like it was more obvious that it was Taker. Let's try this one that's on their YouTube first. Okay, so yeah, this is a few weeks out. A man in a duster approaching the shack in the rain. And then 221.11. But there's one with like a crow. Yeah. If I remember correctly. That's the one where Undertaker shows up. It's uh, the, on that night, you mean? Yeah, well, that's where he's there, yeah. Yeah, is this the same one him? we just watched? No. Or, no, this is a different one, actually. Or, But it's very close. I mean... No, but it shows him, I think. Or does... Uh, let, maybe let me not. just Hold on, now I'll search for WWE 221.11. I feel like at the time I thought it could be Sting, but it didn't seem like it necessarily had to be him. Good okay. part three. Go to part three. Okay, because then there's also the one where he comes out. I mean, the thing is, it, it 
doesn't feel obviously Undertaker. No! The design, I get the best way I can put it is the design language of it does not feel like Undertaker. But this is where they show something. Okay, yes. Hi. So I guess go back to part two, because they were showing tape yeah. here. Yeah. This is a week, this is the week after the first. I mean, I get why people thought it could be Sting, and I thought it could be Sting, but I don't get why anyone was And the Johnny Cash, I think, was when people became... That was the giveaway. It was going to be Undertaker. When More aware, yes. So, but I, th- I thought I remember there was one with the crow, a crow or something. But there was actually only three of them, as far as I, I, see, I see. I could be wrong. Now, this is one right here that's in order. I think that's, that's what we just did. I mean, we did it out of order, but it said part one, two, three, and it's a... Yeah, but this, was in, this is all sequenced. I don't know. 34, and yeah, that's just the... Okay. Oh, wait, no, but Mita 34 sounds less than what these three are. I was going to pull up the thing where Undertaker shows up to see if the thing you were talking about with the crow is in that. Oh, so it's a countdown. That's just the same imagery. Yeah. I do agree that it, I remember something that was a little more overt that people were convinced was Sting. Um, but yeah, I, I I think you agree with me. The best way to put it, though, is that there's something about it that just doesn't feel like Undertaker. Yeah. And that's why people thought Sting. That if it's not Undertaker and they're doing this big hype for someone in a trench coat doing Mania, and that was the other thing, too. Sting was had just, I think, either had his contract expire or was about to have his contract expire with TNA. Cause then TNA does the whole thing where they start airing the knockoff videos and Sting comes back. Yes. That's another thing too. I feel like that's the part people forget. Yeah. I mean, did they like put the title on him too? The night he came back and everything. I think so. Yeah. Here there's someone doing the comparison to the two twenty one eleven promo. And yeah, they did it right away. Sting's return was three, three eleven. Yeah. So playing off of that, yeah. So there, I mean, there's the actual. That, 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 that's why. But anyway, all right. Uh, enough of that. Our right, preliminary estimate on Slam Reversion was thirteen thousand buys. That's the one they probably would have gotten had they been doing monthly shows with the same type of lineup. It was down from lockdown, but lockdown is usually number two show of the year behind Bound to Glory. Okay. Bound for Glory. Uh. I think people need to really take these kinds of numbers into account to understand why AEW's fairly consistent pay-per-view business is so impressive. Well, I mean, I don't know if I should even we should even compare AEW to TNA. Well, but we're talking about a promotion that had more TV viewers, even if they were not good at converting them, and. It, 
like their best was like 60 and they only came close to that a few times. But again, I mean, AEW is far more in the public consciousness than TNA was. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could, we could, we could compare the two. But the point is, though, much that, bigger star power. But like when all, you know, when All In did, however it did, which was much better than this. I forget what the All In number was. The, you know that was another like thing that showed just how bad those TNA numbers were too. Yeah, All In. All In had had something else behind it as well. It did. I mean, it had the whole movement. But it also had the thing where, where Honor Club subscribers could get it. If you were willing to wait until the show went off the air, it was going to be on New Japan World. Like, it did have that, too. So, yeah, that did about 50000 as far as, like, pay-per-view buys and pay-per-view prices. So. Yeah. All right, well... Let's go to the TV tapings on June the 6th in Duluth, Georgia. Just outside of Atlanta, look good vision on TV, and the crowd that was there was loud, but the smallest crowd to date. It barely 2,000 in the building. Once again, the crowd dragged during the second show, but Kurt Angle and AJ Styles meeting up again was a good main event, and they got him back. Show started just for 7 p.m. and ended at 11 p.m. That's a long night. Right now, the idea is to tape impact two hours before the show airs. That's right. I forgot they were doing the almost live thing at this time. Yeah. That they would tape the initial impact. They would tape that night's impact at seven and then the following weeks at about nine. Yes. Rampage Jackson. Quentin Rampage Jackson debuted on the June 6th show doing a stare down with Kurt Angle. The crowd reacted surprisingly big to him. When he came out, tons of people with their camera phones were shooting photos of him like he was a big celebrity. One of the guys on the show, even Hulk Hogan. Dave was surprised by the reaction. They played him up big with the two sort of superstar thing, but that moniker is old to Dave, as they did with Bobby Lashley and then King Mo, both of whom did nothing after their big build-up and quickly forgot. Which, by the way, we should explain real quick, because this thing's been totally forgotten. He was on a dual contract with Bellator and TNA. Yes. That's why most everyone expected nothing from Jackson. The jury is still out, but the first seven was actually great. More because of Angle, did they? TNA did nothing to precondition the audience. They thought they had, based on the reaction, was told aside from saying he was coming up later, like they did with others, nothing was done. When he came out was in the ring, there was a rampage chant. The kind of interviews and faces he did in Pride would have got him over as big as a pro wrestler. He said he was quiet, bordering on seeming intimidated while talking about growing up as a wrestler fan in Memphis. He said he wanted to beat the best, and he gave the line, to be the best, you gotta beat the best, which queued up Kurt Angle. You could see they didn't trust him on the mic because he was only given about a minute before Angle came out. Angle said, you want to beat the best? You want to look any further because you're looking right at him. Angle continues saying, someday when you think you're ready, you'll have to go through me. They did a stare down. He's very good at stare downs go. There's a buzz in the crowd that pro wrestling rarely gets. They shook hands and both wouldn't let go until they finally did. Let's watch this. Let's watch Quentin Jackson showing up at Total Nonstop Action. Ladies and gentlemen, just two short days ago, it made headline news across the world. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome MMA champion, movie star, and the newest member of the Impact Wrestling roster. 
funny because everywhere you look this week, every media outlet covers the free agent signing of this man, MMA superstar, MMA world champion, acting as JB said, you saw him in the A-team. And by the way, I guess we should point out, so we are in, I believe, the era where the promotion is called Impact, the TV show is called Impact, but the titles are TNA, right? Yeah, they haven't dropped that yet. TNA is the sanctioning body, but the promotion is Impact, kind of. And um, Rampage is gone from UFC at this point in time. Right, he's uh, in la- that's the deal. It's a whole Spike TV yeah. thing. Yeah, his last fight was a loss in January to Glover Teixeira. On Fox? On Fox. That was when they were actually trying to use Fox to get guys over by being like, okay, here's this guy on the come-up that we know can beat a big name. We will put that on Fox. He hadn't won a fight since May 2011. That was the Leota Machida split decision? Matt Hamill. Oh, no, Matt Hamill. Because he had lost to Bones Jones, Ryan Bader, and Glover Teixeira. Oh, so that's after the Jones fight. Okay. Or no, or that was his last win before the Jones fight. Okay. Newest member of Impact Wrestling. Newest member of TNA is Rampage Jackson. That's a bad man right there, folks. A very dangerous bad man for sure. He's got that look in his eye. I've seen this man fight. I have to skip ahead. That entrance music is killing me. What part's killing you? The the wolf howls? No, the... Wow, Quentin Rampage Jackson, welcome to Impact Wrestling. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me here, man. It's a uh, big honor for me to be here because a lot of people don't know that I started off as a pro wrestling fan. But I'm from Memphis, you know, it's really big there. And that's why I used to do all those big slams until I got addicted to knocking people out. But... Now I come over here to TNA. I want to be the best over here. But to be the best, I know I got to beat the best. Yes, and one of the best of all time. Huge announcement made Sunday at Slammiversary by TNA President Dixie Carter that the Olympic gold medalist, Kurt Angle, would be the newest inductee in our Hall of Fame. I gotta tell you, just seeing Kurt Angle walk down here, Rampage debut just got a little more intriguing for me. Well, you don't have to look any further because you're staring right at him. You may be the best in the cage, but this is my ring. This is my world. And someday, when you think you're ready, you're going to have to go through me. And that... That is real. It's damn real.
I gotta tell you, man. Let's see. I just got some goosebumps there. The one thing I said about Kurt Angle that wasn't uh, the best thing on TNA was his music. The first music was better. This is not good. No. No, it was not. It didn't fit him. But uh, effective segment. And if you're going to have Quentin Jackson, yeah, I mean, Angle is the guy to have him go up against. So, yeah, I mean... And Quentin, this is 2013. So UFC is still pretty fucking big at this time. And he was one of the biggest stars in the company. Mm -hmm. So the fact you get one of their biggest stars, you know, he's not there at the point, but you get one of their biggest stars. It's like, wow. Okay. And someone that had crossed over a little. Yeah. And he comes up as a star here. Major, a major coup for TNA. Absolutely. All right, let's continue on. Where was I? Okay. Uh, On the second show, the week after our week, uh, Ace and Ace were beating down Kurt Angle. Quentin Jackson made the save. On the surface, Jackson's saving Angle seemed way too early, but we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, it seems to be exactly what it is. And since you're supposed to not know whether he's with Angle or against him, and it's a mystery. Every newcomer's a star usually gets a good reaction week one from TNA fans. It's not like Jackson's reaction was at the level many guys who came with WWE. Even a guy like D'Lo Brown, his first weekend. In most of those cases, by week three, they were just guys. This is completely different from King Mo. Fans that know King Mo for the most part or treat him like the star. The deal with Angle, with Jackson saving Angle, is that's an old pro wrestling trope. You know, where you got the new guy coming in and he saves the guy that he's kind of yeah. had something, something with and. That's, that's old school wrestling trope right there. Dave yes. knows that. And also, the Mo thing was ridiculous because, you know, nothing against him or, you know, as a wrestler or whatever, but he, his biggest fame was from Strike Force on Showtime. It's not like there's a huge audience there. Well, you gotta remember sometimes, like, Dave is gonna be too deep in the forest to see the trees. I mean, I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about in general as far as TNA. I know, but Dave may, would think something was bigger than what it was when it wasn't because he thinks it's big. Well, because he's in San Jose. And... Well, just well, just be in that world, though. Yeah. You know? that you're, you're in that bubble, and you think the stuff in your bubble is bigger than what it is. Like we, like most wrestling fans do. <laughs> well, um, Dave, so you can see him putting Jackson Sting's new main event, Mo- Sting's new main event mafia. They did to explain him having to save an angle since angle ha- almost has to be in. Dave's got no idea who else would be in only because Joe Hardy Madness are in the BFG series. Perhaps James Storms and Gun- James Storm and Gunner are their tag chance since not was in the BFG series. Nor was Angle. Matt Morgan's also on the outside, and they've been teasing big things for him, and now he's at the BFG series. Where Quentin would fit in is that he's a star, but he can be hid while he learns. Dave hopes he's wrong, but he just doesn't see Jackson with the $12 million or more that he made in the last six years going to OVW and learning from the ground up or putting himself through the physical beings it takes that fans want out of a match. Plus, at 35, he's not young. That's not too young to learn. That's not young to learn. There are many guys like Bad News Island, Diamond Dallas Page, Rio Constantino who came in late and ended up being good, but they are the exceptions. There's been more than that, but I get where Dave's coming from. 
Batista wasn't no spring chicken when he got in there, so. No. All right, notes from the June 6th show in Duluth. The show over with Bully Ray out. He talked about how the rumors are that Sting might retire. That was grown where this is just played that card with Jeff Hardy after lockdown. Bully said that he, not Sting, deserves to be in the Hall of Fame and called out this card demanded. And said Hulk Hogan came out. Hogan was moving the best he's done in a long time in the sense he walked to the ring like a normal human being instead of an old man. He said next week they were announced in lineup for Brown for Glory series. He announced that Bully Ray and Jeff Hardy would happen, called out Hardy. Crowd was hot for Hardy. They announced a non-title ladder match. And when Hogan brought up what would be hung from the ceiling, Hardy had a hammer. Uh, can I just say, by the way, I forgot to mention this earlier. Um, I hate using stuff like hammers as foreign objects because it's like you would kill someone with that. Or nearly. Like you wouldn't kill somebody with a chainsaw <laughs> or some of that stuff we've seen in wrestling? Well, that – you know what I mean, though. I know. Backstage, Chavo Guerrero Jr. and Hernandez were talking about the Brown Floor series. The way they did the promo indicated they were just breaking up the team and going their separate ways amicably. Hernandez wanted to shake hands, but Chavo didn't shake. Whatever. Which leads to Hernandez being Chavo in the BFG qualifier on 457. Good match. Chavo went for the three amigos, where Hernandez blocked the third one. Chavo went for the frog splash, but Hernandez got his knees up. Hernandez had taken down for the pin. He again wanted to shake hands when it was over. Chavo teased not shaking, but then raised Hernandez's hand, but made a face being frustrated and was clearly teasing a turn. Yeah. Devon came out and challenged Abyss to come out, claiming it wasn't a sanctioned match at Slammiversary. He should be the champion. Instead, Joseph Park came out and attacked Devon. Devon turned things around and nailed Park with a mic shot and ran them into the post. Abyss is music play, but he never came out. Park was being from the mouth and making faces. The gimmick is that when Park sees his blood, he turns into Abyss. Backstage, Devin and Nux, Knox was looking for Abyss. But at this point, isn't the idea that the heels know that he's Abyss, even if he denies that he's Abyss? Uh, yes. So why are they Pretty looking much. for Abyss? Don't ask me. Uh, Robbie E came out and claimed that he was the MVP of the Art Bound for Glory series. Dave thought he lost every match but one last year, but he knew that he beat Jeff Hardy in the count out who won the whole thing and thus made the MVP. Samoa Joe then beat him up with a qualifier with a muscle buster choke in 103 seconds. That would be current, uh, ROH TV champion Samoa Joe and current Robert Stone, technically still, uh, Robbie E. Von Wagner's manager, whatever that deal is there, yes. Backstage, Mickey James was with Velvet Sky. Mickey's new smiling heel character is very good. Mickey wanted to apologize for not helping Sky when Kim was beating her up last week. She says like she was in a movie and everything was moving slowly. She, she said she was about to save Sky when Taryn Terrell showed up and stole her spot. Like Terrell stole both their spots at Slammiversary. James gave her TNA Georgia lottery ticket. Sky wasn't buying this, but was pleasant and said she wanted a title rematch tonight. James says she already has a match button against somebody you overlooked when you were champion, but promised to defend against her when she was healthy. They replayed the Hall of Fame stuff on angles. Actually, better second time around. Next was the Angle Jackson segment, which we just played. Backstage was Bully Ray and Anderson. They announced D'Lo Brown was out of Ace and Eights. Bully said the best thing that happened to the club was getting rid of him. Bully noted that the vice president spot was open and T's given to Anderson. It's all about wanting an ace and ace representative in the BFG series. This leads to Chris Saban, Gunner, and James Storm beating Kenny King, Austin Aries, and Bobby Roode in 636, 638, excuse me, when Saban pinned King after a swinging DDT in Cradle Shock. 
good action TV match. Devon and Nux were still looking for Biss backstage. Brooke Hogan was with Taryn Terrell. Hogan was putting over Terrell's match with Gail Kim. Dave does like when a TV show after a good match of preview, put the match over. It gives the match a significance. You get the greatest match in the world. Dave's seen plenty of them. But if it's not pushed on TV next week, nobody remembers. Brooke, now more than ever, looks exactly like Jennifer, whole wife. <laughs> same face, same hair, pretty much similar body. She always did, except she's like a younger sister. Now they look the same, even though Jennifer is probably 12 years so older. Well, like I said, Hulk they out of time. They both look like Linda. That's the point. Like, But anyway. Terrell asked her if she was still in love with Bully. She said she just keep it about wrestling, and Terrell apologetic about it, bringing it up. Next was Mickey James painting Taylor Hendricks in 347. James was selling this fake knee from the sky. Hendricks has approved a lot since she was last on Impact. Dave said to see a spot for her. James won with a spin kick, didn't hit right. Dave remembers from all champ women when they would use kicks for finishes. What they taught the women were that you don't use it for the pin unless it hits right. And Dave was thinking about that here when it didn't. <laughs> Abyss showed up and destroyed Nux and Devon outside the building. He threw Devon to a wall and told Devon he was taking the belt into the Abyss. Yuck, 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 yuck. Jeff Hardy beat Bully Ray in 16-20 of a ladder match. Main event. Also a good match. She didn't use the ladder as much as you'd expect. No crazy bumps on a ladder. And the bumps being taken off the ladder were tame. Very different WWE ladder match. It was a hell of a lot safer. At one point, Hardy tried to the ladder in Bully's groin. Bully was selling it great in that sense it was tons better. Then Ryback took a finisher not selling 10 seconds later. Hardy climbed a few times. The Bully pushed over the ladder and he took the usual bumps. Bully ended up climbing a ladder and getting a hammer. But this wasn't the first guy to get the hammer, just like the guy who got it could use it in the match was to end with a pinfall. Hardy dug the hammer and delivered a twist of fate. He got the hammer and Ray ran away for a count-out loss. Hardy ran after him and his hip went out. It wasn't serious, but it sure looked like it was as he was holding his hip and called the referee to help him walk to the back. Bully was still running when Brooke showed up. Oh, excuse me, Hulk showed up. He was about to hit him with a hammer, but Brooke showed up and started screaming and made him stop. Uh, impact everybody. I mean, honestly, especially reading the description and watching some of this, this is a much more coherent version of this company than it was oh, many times yes. before and after this. Oh, God, yes. Yes. Like, is all Absolutely. of it good? No. But it, no. it is much more focused. Absolutely. Like, that's one of the things I think you can say positively for that Hogan and Bischoff era. Yes. Once they got kind of used to being there, it, it, you didn't have the constant to the back bullshit and all the that. The Russo stank. Right. Yeah. Long gone. Impact did a nine oh a point nine one rating. One point one million viewers. First time in modern history of the show that Impact failed to place in the top one hundred and eighteen forty nine demo for the day. The show did a point eight oh in males eight 18 to 34, 0. 0.60 in males, 18.34, which is normal level, and 0. 0.60 in males, 35.49, which is way below norm, normal level. But the number increased going against Game 1 of the NBA Finals, which had an 8.8 .8 rating and 14.2 million viewers. Just so, so just the fact it was up from last week, as we considered good. And like the past several months, this time the show more a strong first quarter, 1.08 for the Bully Ray interview, Hogan coming out, blah, blah, blah. Fell immediately and pretty well stayed at the same level the rest of the night. Chavo and Hernandez lost 193,000 viewers. Uh, the Devon Park interview 
with Joe and Robbie E lost thirty six thousand. Mickey and Velvet Sky and the Kurt Angle replay lost seventy three thousand. Dave always noticed doing those kind of tape segments. He went classy, doesn't keep the audience, whether it's WWE, TNA, or anyone else. Rampage and Angle gained 97,000, which for the top of the hour is nothing special. And the point nine one was also nothing out of the ordinary for the night. The segment only went three minutes, which is way too short to fully build a rating. So that was part of it. Uh, the Saban six-man lost 12,000. Mickey and Taylor gained them right back, all of them. Hardy and Bully gained 11,000 and finished at a point nine two. It wasn't the kind of range pattern you'd expect for a good show. The competition at that level, it was going to trump show quality every time. Okay. Um, I just Googled, pulled up Futon Critic. How many viewers do you think they did in 1849? Uh, no idea. 419,000. Okay. So, in the range of what uh, Dynamite does most weeks. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I don't know what Dave's talking about because Futon Critic says they were number 17 for the day in 1849. I guess he's talking about top 100 overall. For the week, I guess? I don't know. That doesn't seem right, though. I don't know. Doug Williams was cut by TNA. He had been working as a trainer at OVW, a big USC fan. And he noted that at this point he wasn't going to be able to help train Quentin Jackson. Doug was signed in TNA in 2008 and been in for the past year. Alex Silva's name was also removed from TNA's roster page. Silva claimed on Twitter that for the record, I'm not done yet and didn't say anything more. Those in OVW also believed he was gone. It's OVW as TNA's uh, developmental. Didn't last long. Mm-mm. Technically... The character name from Mike Hedinger, formerly Mike Knox, is Knox, not Knox, for legal issues. Thing is, Hedinger was using the Mike Knox name before he's in WWE, so there shouldn't be any legal issue with it. Well, unless they trademarked it. But that's not how it works. You need to get the permission if he used the name before. Well, maybe he gave him permission. Or, you know, unless he signed it over or something, <laughs> like, which... I still haven't heard a good explanation of what happened with, like, that group of guys who got signed out of Evolve. And why some of them signed over the rights to their names and, like, what the reason was for that. I mean, well, Kurt Stallion's an idiot, so that's probably why he did it. But I I don't know why, like, Leon Ruff, for example, signed over his name. Just desperate to get the deal, I guess. I don't know. But I don't think all of them did. Like, Anthony Henry didn't sign over his name. Well, some... <laughs> some are more, um... Have more aptitude towards that stuff, I guess. I don't know. All right. And finally for this section. <laughs> yes, Jesse Sorensen is nearly paralyzed after breaking his neck in a match with Zima, Zima, Zima Ion. Still has aspirations to return to the ring. TNA actually had penciled in a plan for him to win the next title at Bound for Glory last year, but it wasn't in the cards. He's gone from having no feeling to, and fearing to be a pop quadriplegic to now where he's fully functional. Just can't yet risk pro wrestling. He's even entering his first bodybuilding contest in October. Eh, strange. Nothing about whether or not they're paying for his medical expenses. <laughs> no. I mean, this is the pretty much the most notorious case of that, right? Yeah. Because what was the story? Was it him or his mom that ended up telling the story? Or like when he's first in the hospital and the mom is talking. I think maybe he told it, but relayed from his mom. And the mom's talking to Dixie, 
And she says some sentence that ends with my son. And then Dixie takes her hand and is like, no, our son. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We honestly don't give Dixie enough credit for just being a shitty person. (laughs) Well, she's a carny. She learned it from Jeff. Let's move on. Well, where we're going to move on is we're not going to have a halftime segment. I mean, I don't even know if we're going to have time for a classic commercial break. We probably will once I take the silences out and stuff. But. It's 2013, Bix. I don't know if there's any classic commercials. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, what are we even doing? Why aren't we just doing a transition to the next segment? What? Are, why are we here? Well, I'm just letting everybody know there's no halftime this week, so we're just going to roll on to international next, folks. No halftime. Nothing to see here. Patreon.com slash 20 sheets. All right, let's go international now, and this international, because I didn't want to put a whole shit ton of results in this section to bog the show down. So we just got the news and stuff from Japan and Mexico here. We'll start with all Japan. Keiji Muto, 50, which that means he's 60 now, who has run all Japan pro wrestling for most of the last decade, this will be leaving the company, which may cause a major divide, unless some sort of compromise or business deal is met. Muto has been president of All Japan Pro Wrestling and realistically his top star. They met to getting his backers through Senator Hiroshi Hase that allowed him to purchase the company from Motoko Bob in 2002. His backers, Bix. However, All Japan generally went downhill for most of the decade with Muto as president and Muto and Stoshi Kojima as top stars. Eventually, Kojima left and returned to Japan. This ended up so bad that some of the talent was behind in getting paid. He would have to sell tickets and get a commission on sales to be paid. <laughs> well, the Frank Goodman method of uh, <laughs> running shows. <laughs> I mean, cool. uh, I don't think they got commissions doing Frank Goodman shows. I think they just well, got the said, spot on the show. Well, at least that's better than that. Yeah. Two years ago, when Yoshikazu Taru beat up Nobukazu Arai backstage, nearly killing him. Oh, God, I remember that. The bad publicity and poor way of handling the news forced Muto's resignation as company president. Due to his bad knees, Muto hadn't been a full-timer for years and was down to working on only major shows. He was replaced as president by Masuki Uchida, and the company tended to push Koei Suwama as their strongest star. It's been two years since that incident, and late last year, in a secret deal finalized in November, but not announced until February 26th, 100% of the company's stock was purchased by Speed Partners, a 19 mobile business run by Nobuo Shiraishi for a reported $2.5 million. Shiraishi, 40 years old, was a longtime wrestling fan. The deal was some of a fire sale since the company was deeply in debt. Speed Partners had previously sponsored several Japan shows at the Tokyo Dome. The new money allowed all Japan to sign Junakayama, Go Shiyazaki, Asushi Aoki, Koro Suzuki, and Yoshinobu Kanamaru and Perosanoa, as well as bringing in legendary Kinokabashi as a figurehead president, replacing Hiroshi Hase. Shiraishi also allowed the company to spend $25,000 to get Ric Flair to appear at a January show in Tokyo. Shirishi immediately raised the ire of people, saying he didn't like pre-planned endings, which exposed an aspect of the business that everyone knew, but nobody in the business would talk about publicly. He had public issues with Kenso, talked about a war with New Japan, and was generally hated by wrestling fans. On June 1st, Uchida was fired as president, with Shirishi taken over. Muto had expected he would get the presidency back, given it been two years since the Taro Hirai promo, and he resigned his position as chairman of All Japan. Shirishi taken over ended that. Muto thought of leaving and all, and all sorts of followed among them. Muto go back to New Japan for major dates. 
going to IGF to work in the monthly shows or taking a lot of the current all-defense stars with him to start a new promotion. On June 2nd at Corken Hall, a very different Shirishi, who seemed nervous, came out to announce that Muda was gone. Shirishi came out and said that he's a big fan of New Japan, which elicited boos. He said he was sorry for what he said about New Japan, and would personally like to apologize to Taka Kidani and Naoki Shugabayashi, the business heads of the company. He says he's a big fan of Muto, but the two had a difference of opinion. He said he was born in 1972, the same year as New Japan. That's all Japan, too. And while he could never be a pro wrestler, he learned so much from it that it helped him in life. He said he, as a fan, saw problems with all Japan and just wanted to make it more fun, harder hitting, and more exciting. After the show, he even greeted fans as they left. Fans had hated him as this big mouth outsider who they saw as a guy who knew nothing about wrestling was going to try to ruin their company. But when this was over, more fans cheered his speech than booed it. Shirishi said he wanted to change wrestling with input from the fans, those who understood the wrestling business, as well as other wrestlers. He said he'd be talking to all the talent, knowing all the contracts with the company expired at the end of the month, so everyone advertised would be on the June 30th show at Sumo Hall. He said he would attempt to sign everyone in new deals, and whoever doesn't sign by the end of the month would be leaving. It was later reported Muto was tending to purchase a majority interest in the company, and he had gotten backers to put up 40 to 50 million yen. Four hundred to five hundred thousand dollars, which would be considerably less than Speed Partners had just purchased the company for, almost doing an old Southern wrestling con, build up a hot territory, sell for a good price outside businessmen who they think know wrestling but don't. Then when they tank, buy it back for far less, thus making that big financially. <laughs> What's the the uh, the Fuller method of uh, <laughs> wrestling? Right, <laughs> I love it. Uh, it was known that most of the executives of Speed Partners didn't like that they owned a pro wrestling company and that there was really just a toy of their president and owner, Shiryishi. This is like uh, the Chikara angle in real life, isn't it? Uh, Shiryishi commented on media reports that Muda was trying to buy the company, admitting that Speed Partners don't like ownership of the group. He said he believes he should buy the majority interest of the, from his company. He said he has talked with wrestlers, and the prevailing view is they don't want to leave the company, but they want Muda to stay. He knew that both the wrestlers and all Japan fans are worried about the future. Now, Muto did an interview with uh, Weekly Pro Wrestling magazine on May 31st, and he left the company. He criticized Shiryishi, saying he didn't understand pro wrestling. He said Shiryishi wants to be wants to promote MMA, but pro wrestling is not MMA. So that to Inoki. He said how Shiryishi would talk about wanting to bring in The Rock, and Muto would tell him the company doesn't have enough money to get The Rock. He said he's in talks with trying to buy back the company, but he said the talks could go nowhere. He said if he can't buy back control of interest, he'll start a company and bring in wrestlers and office workers from all Japan who are loyal to him. Kasayashi has always been a Mudo guy. He's ready to leave if it comes down to that. On the June 2nd show of Cork and Hall, Rutahama, he's Shining Wizard, and that was his way of showing loyalty to Mudo. There's also hints that two members of the front office are ready to leave in the next week or two, unless it looks like Mudo buys the company. He said he doesn't know if it'll work because Shirishi does have a lot of money. Masafuchi spoke publicly, saying he has met Shiraishi and he doesn't believe he's a happy person, and he feels that Shiraishi, Muto, and Uchida should get back together. That Shiraishi should work as the owner, but leave the book inside to the wrestling people. He also said that Shiraishi is a heel owner character to the fans, and he believes the owner of the company should be a baby face to the fans. Uh, stuff there, you know, and Muto. When Muto started out as the boss of All Japan, he revitalized that company. Um, then it became too much. And they started going down as time went along. Um, 
Then you have the situation that happened, especially that Taru Hurai situation that took place in 2011. And it was a black mark on, on the company. And you, see, you got Shirishi coming in with this fresh money. He's bringing in all these All Japan Trueborns back into the company from Noah. And it's just it's changing the company. But the guy is such a fucking mark that he makes himself a heel to the fans by like a fucking mark in a country where that shit don't play. And now he's trying to do an about face. So, yeah. Ancient times in all Japan pro wrestling. I mean, here's the other thing, too, which I'm surprised Dave doesn't even really say. Now that they have these various, you know, not all of them were in all Japan previously, but let's just call them King's Road guys back in the company. Trueborns, yeah. You have much less of a need for Mudo than you did before. Yes. It's not like he's making some huge difference drawing, you know, he's not, he's not Masawa carrying the spot shows, you know? All right, so let's, um, let's give what happens, okay? Hmm. So, May 27th, Shirishi announced he took other presidency, like we said. Um, in the weeks that followed, Matsukatsuvanaki, Kaseyashi, Shuji Kondo, Ryutahama, Masuki Kono, Hiroshi Yamoto, Koji Kanemoto, Minoru Tanaka, Yasufume Nanakawe, Kai, Seiya Sanada, and Andy Wu announced their resignation from the promotion at Loyalty to Mudo. They all left the promotion following the June 30th event at Sumo Hall uh, and went on to form the Wrestle 1 promotion the following month. Now, their first show will be held September 8th at Tokyo Dome City Hall. Um, and I, I mean, I should mention too, I believe part of what's going on in all the drama is that uh, Seiya Sanada is on excursion, right? Yeah. Um, and he's moved as Mudo's protege. After the exodus, along with departures of ring announcer Makoto Abe and referees Daichi Murayama and Daisuke Kanabayashi, they had less than half that active roster. Uh, Masafuchi, he, um, he had resigned from board of directors. Um, he had not been in his contract. He chose to stay in All Japan on a paper performance basis. Yeah, I'm looking at the um, same Wikipedia as you. All five members of Burning signed exclusive I was, contracts. I'm I was reading yeah. it. So Burning stays uh, and they stay exclusive to All Japan. They quit becoming freelancers. Taiokea comes back. Kyoiwada comes back. Um, Fushi announced on July 14th that he's resigned the promotion on his arrest with a member of the board of directors. August 1st, the uh, shares of all Japan was moved from Speed Partners to Shirishi's Red Wall Japan Corporation, which eventually becomes a new parent company. Corporate name was then challenged to Zen Nihon Pro Rest Systems. Then they uh, returned the NWA International Heavyweight title and United National PWF World Belts, which make up the Triple Crown, to Botoko Baba on August 7th, bringing the end to the final remnant of Giant Baba's All Japan. Triple Crown retained their old name, but they represented. They, they created a new title belt to represent it. The three belts were defended for the last time on August 25th when Suwama, the successor of Mimius Goshiyazaki. Shirishi steps down on August 27th. He remained the owner of the promotion. Um, he wrote, on September 11th, Hiroto Inoue, when the executive director was brought to the promotion by Shirishi, was announced as the new president, and Dory Fon was announced as the new PWF chairman. And then basically Junakiyama takes control after that in June 2014. Yeah. So, 
And that's when all that starts up after that. So Yes, yes, yes. Um, also, I'm realizing I didn't uh, make the new drop I wanted to yet to play at the start of this section, which, of course, is... Yes. News. Yes. There you go. Um, but like, yeah, like, I, current all Japan is one of those things I always mean to try to keep up with and watch that I don't. Um, although I find whenever I listen to him on podcasts and Alan Cunahan says Kento Miyahara's name, I find it very soothing for some reason. <laughs> no, like the way he says, like Kento Miyahara. But I, I just, I mean, yeah, I mean, I got, I got out of Japan before this. I mean, it seems like and, stuff I'd like. Yeah. I heard that, you know, Miyahara Nagata was fantastic. But it does seem like this does stabilize all Japan a bit. Like, for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, eventually the burning guys all leave, though. Yeah, so. There's, yeah, so it's. it's you know, well, wait. Aoki's the one, uh, the one who passed away, right? Mm-hmm. They they have a presence, and they're big. They're certainly bigger than an indie, and you would hope so since they're corporately owned. But they're still pretty clearly behind New Japan, Dragon Gate, DDT, Noah. You know that level of promotion. Mm. All right, the biggest show of the week was June 2nd at Corken Hall, where Shirishi made his big speech and drew 1,500 fans. Junakiyama and Goshiyazaki retained the World Tag Titles, beating Koizuama and Joe Doring in 2806 when Shiyazaki pinned Suwama with a moonsault. This uh, Shiyazaki challenging Suwama for a triple crown, most likely. This, Junakiyama beats Suwama first, which probably isn't going to happen. The match should be really good. The other big match, Yoshinobu Kanamaru retained his junior title, being Hiroshi Yamato. In 1420 with a brain buster. After the match, Minoru Tanaka came out, challenged Kanamaru for the title, which was added to the June 30th show at Sumo Hall. Monsuke Kono also beat Kai by rest stoppage when Kai legitimately dislocated his elbow. It looks like he'll be out of action for three months. Bad timing for him because they gave him a big push of late. Yeah, never good timing to get hurt. No. It's when you're getting pushed. So. Yeah, but meanwhile, now let's go to a motion that is kind of on an upswing. Well, yeah, New Japan. With one show left in a round robin tournament, a June 6th show at Corken Hall before the final night on June 9th in the same building. These are the updated best of the Super Junior standings. A Block, Prince Devitt was 7 and 0. Ricochet was 5 and 2. Liger was third. Alex Shelley was after that. Ricky Romero and Taichi Shikari, all 4 and 3. They're all tied. Then Titan was 7th. Tripperetta was tied with him. And Hiromu Takahashi was ninth who hadn't won a match. Well, B-block. this is pre-excursion, uh, pre-Kamatachi. He's young line. Hiromu, yes. Ryusuke Taguchi is first in the B-block. Then Tiger Mask 4. Kenny Omega. Uh, Kushida. Alice Kozlov and Takamichi Noku. They're all tied at 4-3. and three. Brian Kendrick was 7th. Bushi was 8th. Jada was ninth in last place. The top two place winners in each block go to the final four, which is on June 9th, with the winners of two semifinals early in the show, meaning the turn for the tournament final in the main event. The A block winner faces second place finish in the B block, and B first place faces A second place. The semifinals in the event of a tie, which judged by the standings, there will be a lot. 
Those are broken by the result of the head-to-head matchups. The key is that Devitt, the current IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion, is going to as the A Block winner. Everything else is up for grabs. Going June six, in the A Block, the second place is probably going to be Liger, Ricochet, or Shelley. In B Block, it's probably going to be the winners of Ta- Taguchi, Tiger Mask, and Omega Kushida. Vying for first, would depend on who is won the head-to-head match, depending on who which two it is. One would think, since they protect him so much, that Devitt would lose in the finals to set up whoever beats him and get the title shot. If Hiroshi Tanahashi was still IWGB champion, Dave would see Devitt running the table and then getting the heavyweight title shot. But don't think that's happening with Kachiko Okada as a champion. Because of the natural heat as ex-tag partners, Dave could see that being Taguchi won last year, they got Taguchi beat Devitt in the semis, then lose someone else in the finals, thereby creating new, the next two title challengers. All right, June 1st in Kyoto for 1200 well, fans. Well, real quick, too, since Dave doesn't outright say it, the reason we're getting this big Devitt push is that Bullet Club just started. Yes. <clears throat> June 1st in Kyoto for 1200 fans saw Ricochet pin Takahashi, uh, Kendrick over Jado, Titan over Taichi, where Taichi unmasked Titan and left with the mask, Kushida pin Tiger Mask after the Midnight Express, Shelly beat Tremperetta, Omega over Alice Kozlov, Takuchi over Bushi, and Devitt over Rocky Romero. June 2nd in Akishi. So, 1560, Beretta over Takahashi, Kendrick over Bushi, Kozlov over Jado, Omega over Taka, Ricochet over Titan, Liger over Shelly, Devin over Taichi, and Taguchi over Kushida. In Ime, on June 3rd, saw Romero over Takahashi, Kozlov over Bushi, Liger over Beretta, Takamatsu over Jado, Ricochet over Taichi, Shelly over Titan, Omega over Brian Kendrick, and Taguchi over Taka. June 4th in Osaka for 750. That is not good. Shelly over Takahashi, and that's the second building. Um, Tiger Mask over Brian Kendrick, Romero over Beretta, Tonka over Kozlov, Kashida over Jado, Omega over Bushi, Devitt over Titan, and Ricochet over Liger. Then we go to Corkin on June the 6th, and a show early on made no sense because early matches are played up for a lot of comedy. While comedy and prelims are certainly understandable, these matches involve wrestlers who need to win to advance. And it felt like watching the shows as entertainment, not an important tournament, like you would get with the heavyweight equivalent in the August G1. They ran Corkin four times on this tournament, while only the finals selling out, which, of course, the finals isn't in our week. The final round robin night that would determine the final four was on June 6th at Corkin before 1620. The show's disappointment since with the spots on the line, the matches weren't worth the way one would. Also, the emphasis not being on doing long shows, a lot of the matches felt rushed. It was what has been the Jetto, Jetto, Ghetto and Jado tournament booking in recent years, where they do mostly parody booking, with a lot of guys eligible on the last day, but then they have guys who need to win to advance. Scheduled against the lower-ranked guys, and inevitably get upset. The show featured top guys choking one after another until the end of the show. Okay, uh, since this gets the full Dave treatment, I'm guessing this was a Ustream pay-per-view? Yes. So, okay, we are in fully into the Ustream era at this point. Yes, yes, we're in, yes, this is a Ustream pay-per-views for Between the Sheets. We've, we've, we've hit that era. I mean, which was, but that was a big deal at the time. So, in brief, New Japan had, I would say, when, like 2010, 2011, started picking up some steam with, I mean, maybe a little before that. A little before that, it was picking up some steam with, like, British hardcore fans and Irish hardcore fans. And 
I'm trying to remember how they were keeping up because we also went through that whole drought of Japanese footage. Although I guess we had come out of it by then. Where, yeah, there was a time people were just barely anything from Japan was making it out of Japan. No, it, it was. It just people wasn't over here consuming it. No, but there was also a period where stuff wasn't getting over here, though. I mean, yeah, but I, like, I mean, I remember, if I remember, IVP videos always had stuff. No. So, you know, it was our, our friend of the show, Dan Gennetti. He was the guy who had the direct source in Japan. I mean, a certain uh, tape dealer in western Pennsylvania at that point had his own sources, too, but was primarily getting from Dan. So, and then when that source disappeared, who had been my source previously, and... There was some stuff coming from, like, you know, where's seen, you know, wrestling rip groups. And they were trying to sell access, and it was a whole thing. And they were controlling a lot of it, and it wasn't getting out, and they eventually lost their source. So just for a while, there was just, there, there was a big drought. But at any rate, I forget, before the Ustream pay-per-views, I forget what everyone was following New Japan through, though. If they were just getting DVDs again by that point or whatever. IVP Videos was supplying all this shit. Okay, so by that point, there was a I'm telling you. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so by that point, there was a full-time source again. I know and... IVP was doing a lot of shit. Okay, but IVP was getting from the same person I was talking about. Well, <laughs> so for I don't while, ever remember them having any issues. So that's just I me. I mean, talk to him, because he, he would remember what I'm talking about. There was a There was a gap of at least a year or two. But anyway... New Japan was picking up steam, and then it was, you know, right as the Okada thing gets going is when they start doing the Ustream pay-per-views. And now their international fan base starts getting bigger and bigger. Because people hear that it's this big, you know, this booming promotion with these great matches and all that, and people are wanting an alternative. You know, ROH is still kind of weird at this point. WWE... It has some good stuff, but you can see the seams, and there's a place for New Japan for fans who are looking for something else. And, I mean, yeah, in the Bullet Club. Yes. Well, that just started, but yes. I know, but the Bullet Club was huge in getting people in New Japan. Yes. But anyway, let's go to the Dave uh, review. I don't know. If, are you going to do the whole play-by-play? I mean, it ain't gonna take long. Okay. Jado over Taka at seven twenty seven the crossface. This is the prime example. Taka needed to win to advance, ended up losing by submission instead. As it turned out, he did advance with Taguchi being hurt and was in the final four after losing a week opener in the same building three days earlier. Match was a comedy. Jado does a Ric Flair impersonation gimmick, which is fine in his role as a prelim guy. They traded shots to the crowd doing the woo in Japan. They teach Jada doing the old flip to the turnbuckles, but he didn't do it. Later, the ref who was caught in the corner behind one of the guys, and the other would chop the guy, smashing him into the ref. Guys reverse positions with the outside guy chopping and the ref getting crushed. They did this over and over until Jada took the steps forward to tease the flare face first flop. But instead, he didn't fall, but then the ref did the old flare flop, followed by Taka, and then seconds later, Jada did it. One and a half star. Wow. Tremperetta Pentaichi in 923 at the guillotine driver. The Omori driver that Kazarian uses in TNA. This eliminated Taichi from the Final Four. Taichi coming off knee surgery is nowhere 100%. He saw for the first three minutes it was limited. He does a cool thing coming out as he carries his crutch with him and nails the seconds of ringside to get early heat. Beretta did a run and flip dive over the top. Beretta also super chair in Taichi's face. Put the chair around his neck and threw Taichi into the pose. 
Beretta tried a tornado DDT, but Taichi caught him and crotched him. And then super kicked him for near fall. Finish saw Beretta pants Taichi. He put off his long tights, leaving his briefs. Then gave him a running dry kick into the corner and a more driver. Getting pants to set up they being eliminated from the tournament was another thing that made the tournament come across as weak. Star and a half. Good lord. Uh, <laughs> Brian Kendrick and Alex Kozloff in 947, which saw Kozloff eliminated from the final four. Kendrick is doing a pretty boy stripper routine where he combs his long hair, dances around, and continues looks at himself in the mirror for the match. Gimmick wasn't over with the crowd, and it was a little worse than a guy trying to do an outrageous gimmick and get a little reaction. Kozloff with his short hair and mustache looks anything but like a Russian. Kendrick took a sit bump, being back up over the top rope, landing chest for on the floor, Kozloff followed with springboard plancha. They went for a near fall, went to a lot of near falls, but the match never fully connected with the crowd. Kozloff misses Russian star press, which is shooting star press. Finish like Kozloff go for a spinning elbow, but Kendrick put referee Masaha Tori in the way. Kozloff held up on the blow as Tori got out of the way, and his back was turned. Kendrick used a low blow, slice spread for the pin, weak finish, two and a quarter stars. Uh, we put Brian Kendrick over the only member of the tribe in the tournament, huh? <laughs> Titan to Rocky Romero in 714 with the Titanic, which is a backflip to a cradle. Fourth match in a row with a guy who was still in the running to make the Final Four lost to a guy already out of the running. A short match as they were going near falls very quickly, but the best one thus far. Titan to the top rope, beside Moonsault to the floor. Crowd was into him. Used springboard drop kick for near falls. Split the Moonsault, but Romero got his knees up. Romero did a springboard drop kick while Titan was stripped over the ropes and then did a double knee drop off the top for near fall. Three stars! In the only non-turn match in the show, Togi Makabe, Hiroki Goto, and Tomoki Hama beat Katsuki Okada, Tomoro Hishi, and Yoshihashi, Yoshihashi in 1440. Good action match. They tried to set the focal point as Okada versus Makabe since they had the headline pay-per-view, but really it was Goto and Ishii spots that got over the best and ended up the focal point. Even the Cork and Okada during the match just didn't get reaction to have the presence in the ring that you expect from world champion. Think about that, folks. His work at some particular time in athletic ability is great. Part maybe Maccabi isn't the kind of opponent he's used to. But watching this actually lessened my, my interest in their title match, Dave said, because it didn't feel special at all. Hama and Ishii had a crazy chop battle the crowd love. Okada and Maccabi fall on the floor. Goto and Ishii had a great sequence of trading elbows until Goto nailed Ishii with a short headbutt. Maccabi and Okada went back and forth with Maccabi using a Northern Lights suplex and Okada using the red ink. His new submission, which is like an STF, except the camel clutch instead of a crossface. Makabe clotheslined the hell out of Okada, and then went to the top row for a second one, but Okada met him with a drop kick. Finished saw Yoshihashi take a clothesline from Makabe, a running knee from Goto, falling headbutt from Hama, before Makabe got the pin with a knee drop off the top rope. Makabe pounded Okada after the match and decked the ref, trying to stop him. He gave Okada a fireman carry slam, went to the top rope. But Gato pulled Okada out of the ring to safety. That aspect was good, and that Makabe scored a pin with his move, and the last scene was him pounding on Okada. Three and a half stars. Okay, a few things to talk about here. I mean, the first is that, you know, there are better matches. That Okada-Makabe match is actually one of my very favorite Okada matches. It's just very different. It's a brawl. There's a table spot or two. Um, it's just a lot of fun and it just, it clicks and it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's the thing, a thing Okada kind of needed at this point. Now, how do I put this? I feel like this has been forgotten by everyone, but at the time, 
a lot of the Western New Japan fandom absolutely hated Okada. <clears throat> yeah. They thought he was this undeserving, green, roided up, that's the word they'd use, it just prospect that Ghetto took a shine to, that he was rushing, and that Ghetto's calling all of his matches from ringside, and that Okada's just an empty vessel. That was the perception. Um, you know, whatever of it was true, I'm not saying it was, clearly that changes pretty quickly. But at the time, there were a lot of questions about whether it was a good idea to rush this guy into this push and have him immediately beat Tanahashi, who had been rebuilding the company. And it ended up working, but it was a huge risk. And they stayed the course. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like Ghetto has learned the wrong lessons from that, though. It doesn't work every time, though. Yeah, the obvious one being when Naito should have won the belt at the Dome. Yeah. Because clearly he had his longer-term plan with Okada and all that. And then there was something here. You gotta know know when to pull the trigger. Yeah, and I feel like there was something else I wanted to mention. Um, All right, I guess I mentioned both Okada things. So, yeah. Alright. So, as we continue... Back to the tournament. Taguchi beat Tiger Mask at 717. They theoretically advanced to the final four. Both of these guys are still alive and they're going to remain alive. Imagine a slight disappointment because Taguchi was clearly injured and limited, but it was all action. Tiger Mask did a tope early. Taguchi's the three amigos. The store was Taguchi kept going for Tiger Mask on Tiger Suplex, but would be blocked. Highlight was Tiger doing a backward superplex. Taguchi finally got the Tiger Suplex on his third attempt, two and a half stars. Prince Devitt over Juice and Liger in 627. Devitt had already clinched by winning B-Blop. Liger needed to win to advance. Devitt attacked Liger before the match. He then put on Liger's outfit and made fun of him. Bad, bad left Fallet held Liger off the apron, and Devitt came off the top rope with a double foot stomp on him. Fallet and Carl Anderson put the boost to Liger, and Fallet was punching him. They teased the count-out loss. Liger came back with a flip dive off the apron. Later, Liger was on the top rope, and Anderson threw him off. He went back and forth for near falls. It wasn't nearly over as you'd think. And there wasn't much reaction when Devitt kicked out a Liger bomb. Liger hit the brain buster, but Tama Tonga then distracted Liger, who didn't go for the pin. Liger instead hit the Shote on Tonga, went for a double foot stomp off the top rope, but Devitt got his knees up. Devitt then used a double foot stomp off the top and a bloody Sunday DT for the pin. Two and a half stars. And then we get Kenny Omega pinning Kushida in 1610 with a fireman's carry into a power bomb called the One Wing Angel. Both these guys were alive with a winner advancing to the final four. Great match from start to finish. Omega really doesn't get his due because he mostly works for DDT in Japan and doesn't do the high profile he needs in the United States. Omega did a run and flip dive over the top. He didn't sit on a chair at ringside to celebrate, and the chair collapsed, and he took a fall. Oops. Could have been hurt on that one. Omega does a cool brain buster where he picks the guy up and nearly puts him down on the ground and picks him back up and does it again. Kushida did a run and flip dive off the top rope to the floor. Kushida used a Frankensteiner while standing on the top rope for a near fall, but missed his twisting moonsault called the Midnight Express. They went to near falls. Kushida used a Tanahashi sequence with a sling blade and dragon suplex for a near fall. Kushida went for the Midnight Express, but Omega got his knees up and used one wing angel for the pin. Four and a quarter stars. Then we get Alex Shelley over Ricochet at 1633 with the oh, You don't want frozen. to talk about Kenneth Omega at all? I'm just going forward. No, I was just going to say, I mean, he 
yeah, this I wasn't point, watching picks. I, don't, I, I, I mean, wasn't I don't... watching at this point either. But I was just saying, in the grand scheme of things, like, yeah, at this point, he's basically full time DDT. You know, he had had his little US indie run a few years earlier, and would have a little bit more indie stuff after. But because he's mainly doing DDT, yeah, he's not talked about as much. And this is still just, you know, babyface junior heavyweight Kenny Omega. Yes. Alex Shiller, Ricochet, and 16 turn through to Emerald Frozen off the road, so advanced to the final four in a match where both were still in the running. Ricochet's a great athlete, and even those in Japan who aren't singing his praises just yet are saying he probably will be one of the best in the world in a few years. Yeah, he, he got there. This match, great athletic moves, was hurt by the points where the crowd wasn't into it. It just wasn't following the previous match, but there was something missing. Shelley appeared to hurt his right wrist, and he had an ice pack on the, after the match. There was an issue with the finish. It appeared the ref didn't know it was a finish and held up the count. So the finish came off flat. Ricochet teased a dive early and did a series of backflips. He did a Sasuke special, Kuluka Spanish fly. Their fans changed for Ricochet, but he was also flat to a lot of the crowd. Hit a 630, but Shelly kicked out. Went for a springboard 450. Shelly got his knees up. After the match, Shelly said, I wrestled in the United States for eight years with the same company. After eight years, maybe I didn't love pro wrestling anymore. New Japan has saved my life. New Japan gave me a chance. I came to Japan. I wanted to come to New Japan. I wanted to be more than just a so-so wrestler. I wanted to learn. New Japan makes legends. So now New Japan gave me a chance to make a name. The name of Alex Shelley. To become a legend. But first, I have to win the Best of Super Juniors 2013. <clears throat> TNA killed his spirit. If he, does, if he does not have this run here with the time splitters and everything... Between that and just in general and reputation, like, I don't think we're where we are now. We're both for his current role and looking back at his influence. I don't think we're where we are now where he's getting his due for being one of the most respected and influential wrestlers in the business. No. You know, and like, seriously, like, there is a very strong argument that can be made that in terms of stealing moves and just style of match and stuff, the most influential wrestlers of that generation are Kenta, Marafuji, and Shelly and Taylor. They're up there, but Young Bucks, you gotta put in that group, too. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of the same generation, yes. Um, even if well, the Young Bucks, Shelly and Saban, I mean, good lore. No, I mean, you that, you that, know what I mean, oh. Yeah. But he was just kind of falling away like it just seemed like and it like because it did kill the spirit too in dna and he gets the shot at new japan as the company's eating up gets a great tag team partner who he meshes with well in Kushida, and goes on a hell of a run yeah yeah i mean and yet yeah Kushida. i mean that whole thing right there i mean so they became a big time tag team and one of the the the, big, the best teams of their era. And I mean, also stylistically, you could not ask for a better tag team partner for Alex Shelley than Gashida. Especially for Saban. Well, here's what I was about to say with that though. Especially to show that side of Alex Shelley again, because as yeah. great as the machine guns were, peak athletic prime machine guns. We're not showing what Alex Shelley shows now, what Alex Shelley was showing earlier in his career. You know, the, tech, the technical Alex Shelley. 
So for him to be this version of Alex Shelley, Kushida's the perfect part. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, so, I mean, New Japan's got a lot of pieces here. And they're about to, I mean, it won't be long before they really explode. Mm -hmm. But it's just, they had to rebuild themselves in a lot of ways. And having a great junior division really helped out. Yeah, because the junior division had been kind of going to the wayside for a while. Yes. It was starting to figure out the right foreigners to bring in again. I think that really helped heat it up. And then, of course, you know, Kushida becoming a name, then Hiromu, you know, making the right pickups from other promotions. I mean, it took some time, but it's also, it's another one of those Ghetto and Jado things where, like, you look at a lot of their run booking that company. There's so much stuff you think they would want to do based on their own histories that they don't. Tag team division is an afterthought. Junior heavyweight division is an afterthought at one point. Like, you wouldn't expect it because of who they are, but they really did not seem to want to book the type of stuff they were known for. Yeah. All right, let's uh, get back in it here. As I scroll down. All right, even with his back injury, Hiroshi Tanahashi has been working every show doing mid-card tag matches, teaming with Captain New Japan, okay. who loses the fall, usually against Carl Anderson and Tama Tonga. <sighs> Captain New Japan. Huh? Would it ever explain why he just ended up being gone besides the fact that he's just not a good wrestler? <laughs> That's about it, I guess. Yuji Nagata's off this tour with the junior heavyweight tournament going along. All the older heavyweights had the tour off. The rest and heal up. Yujiro Takahashi, Toroyano, and Scott Shizuka working Noah. Shinsuke Nakamura's a Metsuko. Kojima, Tenzan, Nakanishi, Yoshihashi, and Minoru Suzuki, they're all off. But this is just Noah working relationship. This is not we are financing Noah. Yeah, is it, right? Uh, yeah, basically. Basically. All right, uh, speaking of, Pro Wrestling Noah, El Nieto de Santo, which means the grandson of Santo, who's the legitimate son of Io de Santo, has arrived here and will be training and learning outside of Mexico. His father wanted him away from Mexico where there would be ridiculous pressure on him. When Io de Santo started his career, he did as a masked man using another name, Korak. For a couple of years, he proved he was worthy of the name. Standards are different as far as people were accepting of him because he was very good, given his level of experience, as opposed to resentful of a big push early like his grandson is likely to find. Nieto's 5'8 209 pounds, so he's much bigger than his father and grandfather, who's a welterweight middleweight world champion. He's the second grandson of Santo in wrestling, as Axel has been wrestling for years. Axel originally wrestled as El Nieto de Santo, but Io de Santo had trademarked the Santo name and gimmick, and it caused a lot of heat when he refused to allow his nephew to use it since that was a career-making name. At the time, he expressed that he wanted to save it for his son, but only if his son was good enough to carry it. Nieto would be in Japan for months before debuting, would be wearing the mask everywhere when he to shows at ringside, doing the learning from ringside that newcomers do in Japan do. Yodo Santo came here with his son. He told the promotion his son was the use of the name Tempestad, with a black mask. He said his son, who's 16, is not ready to use the old Nieto de Santo name. So he's doing what his father did and not allowing his son to become Yodo Santo to its good worker, and then actually introduced him in one of his movies. Santo said his son first wrestled in Japan, then spent time in New Zealand. 
Yeah, dude's again enough experience where he's good at it. And then bring him to Mexico for a debut where he could be impressive and live up to the name. There's no guarantee he'd ever be at that level. And unfortunately, he was not. Nope. And this is also just an interesting era where, like, the Noah Tojo is, like, this destination. You know, Richie Steamboat trained there. We have Nieto Santo training there. I feel like there were others Reed, I'm forgetting. Reed Flair. He did do. He did Noah. I mean, no, I'm just saying I know about saying he, he trained. He, he, well, he had the All Japan. To, to yeah, Japan. yeah. But it, it, you know that was something I always found interesting that you had like a few in a row because there, there's like one or two more I'm forgetting. But yeah, he just he wasn't good enough. I mean, I don't remember how much of Nieto Del Santo I've seen. He certainly was better than Axel, but he was not at the level to carry the gimmick like his dad wanted, and that was about it. Yeah, I mean, Tepestad, I mean, he really didn't work. That's the thing, Bix. Well, right, that's the other thing. I mean, he's only 30 now. He hasn't worked a match since 2017. Uh, and if I think I think he's had less than ten matches in his career. Okay, so wait, there's a different Tempestad that I looked up by mistake. Uh, yeah, that's not the same one. Wait, Nieto Del Santo cage match. Look for Santo Junior. That's what he worked as in Mexico. He worked for El, as El oh, Santo yeah, Junior. Oh yeah, that's bringing up. Uh, yeah, that's bringing up Axel. Uh, okay, so Santo Junior cage match. And, mo- and, mo- mo- and really, it, looking at his results here, he, he only has two matches in Mexico on record. The rest of his matches were in the United States or England. I thought it was that few. Okay, I'm I'm not even finding his cage match. I mean, I guess if I search his dad results, I could find it. But Yeah, and Wrestling Data has it. I mean, he worked... Um, his first match was the Crash, a Crash show on August 13th, 2016. Oh, he just doesn't have a cage match profile because he has so few matches. And then his last match was September 28th at Agos Calientes on a TXT show. So, what? I guess here's the question. Was it just the... Yeah, you know, Dos Anto felt like, okay, we'd gone far enough with this that'll let him try out the gimmick, but then realized he wasn't good enough, so... Or was it just that his son was not into it that much? I don't remember what was what. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he had a little bit more in Mexico, but yeah, only... Seven recorded matches that we have here. I mean, <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, he, he must have he, had he actual matches in Noah, though, right? Just Tempestad or something, shouldn't he? No. So Noah did not think he was good enough to have matches on their shows, clearly. No. He would have results, Bix. <laughs> there would be Tempestad results. I know. Okay, um... Lucha Wiki does have more matches, okay? They got him at 33. In fact, I mean, they have his last match on June 7th, 2018. Okay. So he went a little bit longer. And also, but, I realized I was getting... Shows you how pandemic time is, Chris. Yeah. Cyber Agent buying Noah, which was what ended the New Japan running Noah thing. Yeah. That was January 2020. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It does not feel like it was only three and a half years ago, though. I know. 
right. <clears throat> so the big show of Willie Fanoa was at Hakata Star Lanes on June 2nd, before now 1650, which means probably a lot less. Kent up in New Japan's Toriano, the retaining GSC title in 2431 after the GTS in the main event. Kenta's next defense looks to be against New Japan's Yujiro Takahashi. Takashi Segura, first major singles match, he turned to Kenta's team after losing their brutal battle on May 12th. So I'm bust up and destroy Asushi Kotoge. Yushiro Takayama beat Takashi Azuka by DQ when Azuka used the Iron Fingers, which is going to keep their program going. Oh, you don't go with the uh, more Ronaldo Iron pronunciation? <laughs> no. Uh, there's another new tease. Namichi Marufuji and Mahamayone beat Maybat Tanaguchi and Yujiro Takahashi when Takahashi went for a spear on Marufuji, who moved and nailed Ta- Tanaguchi leading to the pen. That's probably the start of something. Satoshi Kojima worked the Noah show on June 5th in Kumoto, beating uh, Kotoge. After the match, he said he wanted to bring in Daisuke Arata and Kotoge. He said the Tenkoji tag team had gotten in a rut and needed some fresh blood in the group. Ah, Kojima and Noah, huh? The more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> and Taiji Shimori's next GAC junior title defense was to be against Super Crazy. And he was a regular there for years. Yeah. He was also now, maybe- the person who... Uh, broke Fave and just dropped randomly in an interview that he was getting paid by New Japan. Yeah. Now, the most popular promotion in Japan among the Westerners, Dragon Gate. They had shows this week on June 1st, 2nd at Sapporo's Teeson Hall, doing 700 first night, 850 to second. First night was headlined by Masato Yoshino retaining the Open the Brave Gate title, pitting Richard Swan with a lightning spiral of 1544. Richard Swan? Did he join the York Foundation? <laughs> I just called him Richard Swan. He, he, that's what his name? That's Rich Swan, but Richard Swan's his name, Bex. And a trios match with Akira Tozawa, BB Hulk, and Uha Nation, Apollo Cruz, over Shima, Masaki Mizuki, and Dragon Kid. Went to Zawa Pin Kid with a package German suplex. Jimmy Kakatora came out after the Yoshino Swan match to challenge Yoshino first title. Yoshino turned him down, saying beating rookie Katsuo in a dart match, which he did earlier in the show, doesn't qualify you for a title shot. But they kept going in, and Yoshino finally agreed, and they will have the match on June 15th, Fukuoka. Yoshino then thanked Swan for the match, pushing how good Swan was given his level of experience. Second night was headlined by the Open the Twin Gate tag titles, where Yamato and Shingo Takagi retained over Masaki Mochizuki and Don Fuji in 2131, when Yamato pinned Fuji with the Frankensteiner. They were the defend on June 15th as well against Tozawa and Hulk. But the big show of the week was at Cork and Hall on June 5th with a packed house of 1850. As Masaki Mochizuki, Kness, and Jimmy Susumu won the Open the Triangle Gate title from Nurki Doi 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 Doi. Shachiko Boy and Rich Swan in 2016 with Kness Pendoy. The champions dressed up in their gimmicks from years back, including Mochizuki bleaching his hair. Outstanding. Shingo Takagi pinned Uha Nation in a singles match. Nation's been getting a big push on the recent tours. BB Hope pinned Yamato in a singles match. After the match, Dr. Muscle and Metal Warrior came out and put Yamato through a table. <clears throat> but yeah, Dragon Gate, like I said, at this point in time, was definitely the most popular promotion among the Western fans. I mean, because in part because in Dragon Gate USA and Evolve, because there's that integration. Yeah, and they were. I mean, they were selling Dragon Gate Japan DVDs, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that hookup that made it more accessible. Although that relationship is about to come to an end, even though we're not going to know for like a year. Yeah. Which trying to figure out the most delicate way to put this. I I have good reason to believe that 
Dragon Gate pulled whatever financial commitment they had to Dragon Gate USA by the end of the summer. And I forget when, but it's within the next couple shows that they stop getting any Japanese Dragon Gate talent. And then all of a sudden, Mania Weekend, last second, oh, everyone's having these issues and stuff. 2014. And then there's never a Dragon Gate USA show again. There's no more connection between Dragon Gate and Evolve from that point forward. Just weird. About that. Yeah, but just weird the way it went down where, like, whether it was a split, whether it was a budget cut, whatever, neither side acknowledged it. So no one really knew that something was afoot until probably, you know, after that Mania weekend in 2014. Uh, things happen. Yes. Alright, so we're done with Japan. Let's go to England now. To Preston City Wrestling, where one of Pro Wrestling's all-time great tag teams, Rick and Scott Steiner, now 52 and 50, worked together as a tag team on May 31st for Preston City Wrestling. They won the promotion's tag titles. Oh, So there's that. Mexico. All we got here for this week is CMLL. Big title change took place on June 2nd in Mexico with Mascara Dorado winning the NWA welterweight title from Negro Casas. Dorado playing Casas in 4-3 springboard roll-up. First fall, Casas won the second fall with a La Maestra on 407. Casita. And then the Dorado playing Casas with his own Casita win the title on 9-19. So the rest periods it just went under 20 minutes. Really good match. And Casas is almost 52 years old. Casas has held the title since February 3rd, 2012, where he beat La Sombra in Puebla. The show was headlined by the mini Cage of Death match. The rules were they escaped the cage until two men were left. Those two would have a singles match. In order to escape, Pequeño Buck Warrior, Fantasy, Nutrito, Electrico, Demos 316, Ariel, Mercurio, and Bam Bam left. This left Shokercito and Pequeño Violencia, with Shokercito winning by submission, and Pequeño Violencia had his head shaved. This was a good match as well. Well, not for Demas. Suffered knee injury, and he was out of action for six months. I remember this match. It was a damn good match. Yeah. Always good to see the minis in a cage match yeah. where you got the, the 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 hair mask on the line. But also in the escape rules match for the mini. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Dorada being Costas was a big big title win for him at the time to get him going higher up. So, um, yeah, good time. Good time. Now, not everything was great, though. Another big title change on June the 4th, this time in Mexico, where Diamante Azul won the NWA lightweight title from Rebecca Nero. Three-fall match wins less than 15 minutes with a clean finish by German suplex. It was only been four years that CML has gone without four title changes. I like Diamante that even Azul. Dave has given up on okay. calling it the historic uh, light heavyweight title at this point. And, yeah. Diamante Azul, not good. <laughs> not good. And Dave closes, it's really scary how fat Porky is these days. He looks to be about 370 on a 5'4 frame. Yeah. Feels like no matter what year we're covering, we're getting something like that in every Observer these days. Yeah, but, I mean, it was bad at one point. And then he lost a lot of weight before he died. But, yeah, just, it's not good, not good. Not good to see him that out of shape. No, I mean, I mean it's one thing for his gimmick to be big, have a big belly, but to be so grossly out of shape. Well, because even when he was in shape, he was not chiseled. 
Oh, of course not, but... None I of the mean, brothers were. Yeah. But even, even, you know, a decade before this, he was big, but he wasn't... He could still move he when he wanted to, yeah. He wasn't, you know, like somebody's about to die. Yeah, I mean, this is like super porky wearing the Superman outfit era, right? Yeah, yeah. So, anyway. All right, well, let's close out with World Wrestling Entertainment. And uh, we'll start out with some news on the writing team. People on the writing team have to be nervous, particularly the head writers. Dave Kapoor of Raw and Ed Kosky of SmackDown. When WWE over the past few days sent out that they have job openings for a new lead writer position on Raw and a new lead writer position on SmackDown. That goes along with looking for a new vice president of creative with the recent firing of Adam Rudman. With Eric Penkowski, they're posted looking for a replacement the moment he'd been let go, meaning they must have told people to get it ready a day or two early. The lead writer is responsible for building the TV scripts and developing long-term storylines. That'll be changed every week, Dave says, as well as creating character backstories for all new characters. The job is to work with the vice president of creative writing, oversee the creative process as it relates to scripts and storylines, ensuring multiple ideas are presented for each story and building the final draft. They want five years plus experience with script writing, as well as TV production experience, a deep working knowledge of WWE storylines and characters, motivational skills, as well as a deep understanding of pop culture, trends, and topical news as it relates to television. Writing for either reality TV, sitcoms, or character-based nonfiction is required, as well as understanding the WWE audience demographic and psychology. Other jobs that they're looking to include is a new digital writer who will work on the vice president creative when it comes to creating website content and understanding how to use the website and social media to continue storylines. They're also supposed to pitch ideas to both the head writers as well as the, to the WWE executive management. They're looking for a vice president for television whose job will be to maintain business relationships with those in the TV industry, selling the shows to cable and broadcast networks, and putting together content ideas for the WWE Network. That's going to be a key job because with a SmackDown contract coming due, WWE's looking to jack up the rights fees and negotiate with multiple suitors for SmackDown as well as Raw and hopefully get the kind of increase that UFC got. When UFC signed with Fox in late 2011, they nearly tripled the money they were getting from Spike and others sports programming has been getting of late. They're also looking for a vice president of strategic planning for the international marketplace, a vice president of content media distribution for international marketplace, and a vice president of integrated sales and another social media analyst. Well, they need a lot of need a lot of jobs at this time. But uh, God, I mean, God is so interesting reading this <laughs> ten year. This is the first time, you know. I mean, you got to think about this. It's just crazy to think that we're doing a show that. It's not something that we're actually talking about, you know, as we're recording as being in real time, that the, in the notes is talking about social media. <laughs> this week is the first week we ever had that, really. Because we did a 2010 show, but social media wasn't what it was in 2010 as of yet. But right. it's just crazy. It's crazy thinking that we're in, that we're doing this this week. Yeah. <laughs> Dave Kapoor and Ed Kosky. Okay, I forget. Are either of them still there? Um, in Kapoor, there somehow, some way, in some form or fashion. 
Koski, I think, is definitely there. Kapoor, I'm not sure. He's there. Okay. Yeah, he is. He, he's no longer involved in creative, but he's a senior vice president. Senior vice president of what? It just says senior vice president. That's what his LinkedIn says. Okay. Edward Koski, senior vice president. 20, uh, July 2020 to now. He was vice president of creative writing from July 15th to January 2023. All right, now Dave Kapoor. Uh, let's see where he's at here. Yeah, I'm having trouble right. finding his LinkedIn. Maybe I just need to go into the LinkedIn search and find it and see if we have enough connections. Yeah, because there's another Dave Kapoor. Yeah, that lawyer is who's coming up on Google. Even if he was fired. In- now, I remember he was fired um, as the head writer of NXT. Which gets forgotten about. <laughs> um, there's no Dave Kapoor showing up that I have connections to on LinkedIn or anything, even a few generations. So, how about that? I don't think that would. So maybe he just doesn't have a LinkedIn. Yeah, he was. Uh, let's see, he was a senior vice president of creative NXT until January 5th of 2022. Okay. That's what him and Regal both got canned the same day. Oh, so he, is he completely gone? He might be. Okay. Wait, he's in that lawsuit. Any in that lawsuit that's getting out there? Oh, I don't think so. Is I think he was mentioned. He might have been mentioned. I don't think he's a defendant or anything, though. Well, but anyway, so there you go. Dave Kapoor and Ed Kosky there, but uh, I mean. They're looking for all these jobs, and they're—I mean, WWE Network is a thing that's about to happen. So, I mean, they're trying to do a lot of things. This is Stephanie trying to create a lot of positions, trying to put a lot of people in, you know, in different places. Basically, this is more Stephanie than anything else, I would think. More than Vince. Okay, so is she? She doesn't become chief brand officer or whatever till later in the year, does she? Um, or has that happened like already? That. She, I think she's already chief brand officer by now. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty sure it's 2013. I'm checking her LinkedIn. Let's see. Did she, does she have her WWE work history on it again, or did she take that off for some weird reason? Uh, yeah, she took her. Yeah, she took her WWE work history off of her uh, LinkedIn again when she resigned again. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. But, um... I mean, that happened last year, too, remember? That, like, she would... She left it in her bio. Like, so she wasn't running from it, but the actual work history was gone. Yeah. Well. Yeah. All right. Well, it wasn't a fun week for the writing team. They had their usual show written and ready to be presented on Friday... Then when the Miami Heat-Indiana Pacers game, they ended up having to work on a rewrite. Dave gets feeling the show wasn't what they needed to give in the competition. Then on Monday, Vince told the writing team they were redoing the show again. The show was actually being rewritten as it was going on. Hmm. More things change. <laughs> That's Vince. It's funny because, I mean, they used to give WCW shit for that. And they've been doing it for a, a lot longer than WCW did it. <laughs> a lot longer. So, 
Yeah, and also the story was in this era when people would talk about why, you know, and for the next few years, at least after this, why is SmackDown so much better than Raw? It wasn't that Vince wasn't helming SmackDown either. It was that Vince was so tired that he wouldn't do all the rewrites to SmackDown. Yeah, that's part of it. Absolutely. All right, largest reaction to the Memorial Day rating. Which day is what Dave guesses the entire motivating factor since Vince's two personal key benchmarks week to week are ratings and house show business, and the latter is fine, although the Canadian business was weak over Memorial Day. Vince and Stephanie were brought back as heels. The end result of this right now, which could change tomorrow, is Vince, Stephanie, and Triple H are the lead heels. The authority. There have been hints of a CM Punk turn. The idea is Paul Heyman, who agreed to his match with Chris Jericho, and Heyman, who signed a contract without him being there. Dave's feeling is Punk's an awesome heel. That Punk and Heyman should screw less, brought Lesnar and I went over The Undertaker or Rock at WrestleMania. So actually works better than Undertaker because Punk is jealous Lesnar's about to do what he couldn't do, leading to a Lesnar versus Punk run. But as noted before, Lesnar versus Punk is an obvious direction, but the wind is blowing towards Punk as a babyface. It looks like if Randy Orton goes heel, which has been the plan since late last year, then on the road, Team Orton may become Team Punk and CM Punk and Cena will become the two house show headliners as babyfaces. The feeling is they need a major face lead to each touring brand, and one of the reasons Orton hasn't turned yet is because they didn't think either Sheamus or Alberto De Rio had gotten over enough to be that face, even though both the times were planned for the spot. Okay, um, so yeah, the authority does not happen till the SummerSlam angle, with Triple H screwing Daniel Bryan. Um... Oh, no, 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 wait. No, wait, no, that's the following year. Yeah, well, no, wait a second. No, 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 that is 2013. Sorry, I'm getting which pay-per-view is which confused. Okay, so, right, it's Brian beats Cena to win the title at SummerSlam, and then uh, and then Triple H pedigrees him, and Orton cashes him money in the bank and wins the title. That's the beginning of the authority at SummerSlam. Um, Punk continues on the face turn, and has the Lesnar feud, which is probably the best thing on their shows that summer. Um, I was at the Raw taping, I think it was Night After Money in the Bank, because I think the turn was Money in the Bank, and maybe that was in Philly. And the Raw I went to was at Barclays. I don't know what clicked, and I think it goes to kind of what we talked about before. I think maybe on the, on the Summer of Punk Patreon show about, like, the degree to which Punk was kind of beloved by the fan base in a way that a lot of the, their baby faces weren't. I have never well, we seen see that today. <laughs> well, yes. It, I have never seen the kind of heat for a WWE TV angle live like I did for the Heyman Punk Lesnar segment the night after Heyman turned on Punk. Like, yeah, I, I mean, like yeah. I've been to, like, I haven't been to that many WWF. TV shoots, and I've been, I've been to pay-per-views and stuff. I have never seen that kind of, like, emotional heat at a WWE show that I've ever been at, or close well, to. I think, also, I think it's also location to part of that, because it was in the Northeast. Punk has a, you know, heavy fan base in Northeast, and it was just all the, everything worked to where it needed to work for that. For that to happen. Yeah. Right I mean, cities. You know, plans are about to change because of Cena's arm injury. Anyway, you know, we still have we still have the Mark Henry mini feud. You know, starting a few weeks after this. Yeah. With the retirement tease angle. Um. 
as far as the decision to turn Punk face, I think you kind of had to after how he was booked the last few months before he took his little hiatus after Mania. That he looked so ineffectual against Rock and Undertaker as a heel. Yeah. Like, I think you had to turn him. And they did. And, you know, he got to have the little Lesnar run, which they had an incredible match at SummerSlam. But you can't talk about this era of Punk, though, either, and the idea of having him be the face of one of the two tours without talking about the fact that it was visible then. It's more visible now. Punk badly needed to be off the road and just rest. This is the era, era where it's most visible that he is not sleeping. Oh, yeah. Like, he looked like shit. And I, I, I say this in a sympathetic way. Like, he looked like shit. He looked like he was not sleeping going into Mania. He looks a little bit rested after the six weeks or whatever off. But... It just, you can t you can tell something's not right with him just from watching, and I mean that was right. He eventually hit his breaking point. Yeah, he he was looking rough there for a minute, definitely. So probably not the best person to put that kind of pressure on at the time. No, but I mean, it's kind of those deals where their bat was against the wall in a way. Yeah. And, you know, the Authority, I feel like once they realized what they had to do with putting the belt on Danielson, I think it worked. And Stephanie and Triple H's performances after that point are really good. And once they realize it's like, oh, we are making this baby face, it's good. But up until that point, it just felt like directionless McMahon family on TV bullshit. Well, let's talk about that. All right, so when Triple H did the injury angle the night after Extreme Rules, the idea was to do a deal where Stephanie and Vince were against him coming back, and he would insist on coming back, but it's supposed to be later in the game. One source said it was a SummerSlam angle, Triple H versus Curtis Axel, which TV will lead you to believe is happening on the coming pay-per-view. Dave hadn't been told by that by anyone. was definitely not scheduled for payback for even a week ago, but the show being rewritten had to do with the realization they were going against a major NBA game. There are two arguments how to handle that. One, it's not to do a hot shot this week because you got a limited upside and wait for the night you originally planned it. The other is to avoid a low rating, now at all costs, which is a decision that was made. Vince won't now wants the arena booking department to look at the 2014 NBA playoff schedule when it ends up being released and see what Mondays are possible game sixes and sevens in the late rounds. The idea is to try and put Raw on those nights. In cities like Philadelphia, Madison Garden, the Izod Center, Chicago, Montreal, Toronto, or the markets with the idea that they get the jump by starting at 8 p.m. And the fans see the hot crowd and hot open, which is why they put the Shield match on early and had Vince and Stephanie open in segment, with a feeling there would be less likely to tune out when the game starts. Well, here's the thing. Uh, looking at this, these lists of cities, Philadelphia, they had an NBA club, Madison Garden, home of the Knicks, Chicago, home Bulls. Toronto, Raptors. I mean, you, you got NBA cities on this list. I think he's saying, I think he meant to say likely West Coast games. Because would they really be starting, how late would they be starting that they'd be getting the jump on? No, he's going head to head. No, he must go head to head because the NBA game would start at like 8.30 or 9. Okay. 
on a game six or seven. Mm, okay. That's a weird idea. Well, it's Vince. Well, <laughs> and, it's... And, 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 and the thing is, too, is like, I mean, I don't know what was so major about this, but why is Vince all of a sudden worried about the NBA? Uh, when was the Stan Kroenke thing? Oh, that's what happened. That was what, 2009, 10? I'm looking. Uh, what year is it? Yeah, 2009. Okay. So we're well past that. That's been 14 years ago. Oh. <laughs> the E stands for Edis. You're an Edis. <sighs> but, yeah. This is just Vince freaking out over something different. So, nothing new. All right, let's go to SmackDown, May 31st from Edmonton. Taped, of course, before. Very in-ring oriented show, and a good one. Which goes to what Bix was talking about earlier. Vince getting to uh, spend time rewriting this show. <laughs> so Yeah, they would often just fill it with good matches. This, uh, this yeah. is the era of, like, modern SmackDown, as opposed to, like, the different SmackDown 6 eras and stuff. This is the one where it's solidified that no matter who is, like, head writer or whatever at the time, SmackDown is, quote-unquote, the wrestling show. Yeah. Uh, had a great finish of Brian just going wild. All right, we started with Kane beating Seth Rollins at 9.15. Kane closed on Rollins off the top. Roman Reigns got on the apron, and Kane's, Kane, Kane's, Kane went after him. When Kane turned around, Rollins kicked him in the head. Rollins went to the top rope, but behind the rest back, Brian shoved him off the top. Kane showed Slam Rollins for the pin. Decent match, a big crop off of the finish. Bigger than you expect. It's called the Shield has lost so rarely by a clean finish. Only other one Dave could think of was Undertaker beating Dean Ambrose. So this is before, that's right, because it's in the SummerSlam build. This is, bef I think, that Brian gets the fall in the first time that the Shield has lost a trios match. So that's a couple months away. So just period, they haven't been losing much, and they still haven't lost as a trio at all. God, it's so weird to be talking about the Shield. <laughs> yeah, and look, you know, and we'll talk about this more, I think, is when we get to Raw, because of just how a few acts were carrying the show and keep hiding the three-hour thing was a bad idea. But the Shield was just... They were carrying those shows a lot of the time. Depending on who else was around in a given week. Like, they were such a brush of breath of fresh air, all of a sudden you're getting constantly, like, these fun trios matches on TV. It was just different. And, you know, also at the same time, you have the AJ Least stuff going on, kind of, you know, she's hitting her stride as the Steel's around, so all of a sudden, you have multiple, you know, at least two different acts that are big with, you know, girls and young women. And, of course, because it's WWE, they're not really capitalizing on it. But still, those acts are over, though. I mean... Yes, yes. And aside from maybe the ECW champion run, because it seemed like he was convinced he needed to work as a world champion-style wrestler, this run is the best in-ring run Kane ever had in WWE, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. With the Danielson team and the Shield matches and everything. Yeah. But then, of course, we get Team Hell, I mean, the Team Hell No Breakup and all that stuff, and we get Corporate Kane, 
which well, uh, was a, like, uh, and that that was that happened right as he really started to kind of get washed physically. Yeah. All right. Um. They immediately went to Brian versus Roman Reigns. Yes, Dan Brian versus Roman Reigns on a random SmackDown. Brian was doing a great job with the elbows from the top position in the sense he delivered him so believably. And JBL pushed that the ref should think of stopping the match. And that to the wrestling adds depth to matches and believability, but it's a slow educational process. Brian had the no lock on when Rollins pushed the ropes close enough so Reigns could grab it for the break. Kane then punched Rollins. Reigns punched Kane. And Kane punched Reigns back. The ref turned around to see the ladder, called for the DQ at 916. Brian and Kane argued after the match since Kane calls Brian the match. They're having a good match to the finish. The finishes of the two matches did play into a big picture story. We'll talk about that as the finish. Damian Sandow came out all dressed up, giving a lesson about how physical strength can never match up to mental strength. He made a mention of giving away Wayne Gretzky for nothing, which got a big reaction. It's Edmonton. Dave didn't recall them pushing that they were even from Edmonton on the show. <laughs> that means funny about that. If they think the city doesn't sound major league enough, they just don't mention it. Worked at a college gym in a secondary market city. They'll push the name of the college, but not the city. When Sandow made the Gretzky reference, the announcers never explained it to ninety percent of the audience outside of Edmonton. I had no idea what he was talking about. Anyway, Sandow was setting up playing the shell game. Seamus came out and made a reference to Sandow playing a game with cups and tiny balls. Seamus agreed to play. Seamus picked up the cup. Then, they, then when the two left. Sandow saying he had 50 50 shot. He picked up another empty cup. Seamus then used his street smarts and thought Sandow may have been cheating and wanted to see what was under the third cup. They stalled that out, but in fact, Sandow had been cheating and had used sleight of hand to take the ball out of play. When it was discovered, Sandow said he was a magician as well. So Seamus laid him out with a broke kick. Sandow was entertaining. Seamus fits well with that level of face character. Sandow's really good as a character, even if they booked him to where people don't see him close to the level of Seamus. Oh, Sandow. I do remember guy, this segment. It was it was good for what it was. It was entertaining. Well, the guy had. I mean, Sandow was in a lot of entertaining segments. He had a he had a a, a good run, but boy, they just did not. They did not know how to capitalize on him. It seemed like there were times when they were just about there, and then something would happen on their part to uh, screw him over. Well, he was never going to be able to recover as a heel after the way they handled his money in the bank cashing. Uh, no. Still, there were, uh, there were so many other things. It, 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 the Mizdow stuff got yes. over so much. You know? So much. But, I mean, that, the, I think the thing that we've seen, though, from his pre-Sandow work, where he's, you know, good hand Aaron Stevens... And from his post-Sandow work, he is a guy who needs, like, a capital C character to really sink his teeth into. Yes. And no, I don't think Liberace was it, though, either. That was a miss. No, absolutely was a miss. And TNA. Well, TNA e- too, e- but Even yeah. if Spud as Scott was funny. <laughs> How long has it been since that thing? What does that movie happen now? Oh, God. All right, let me see. Oh, because it was within like a year or two of Behind the Candelabra coming out, right? Yes. Right, when was that, motherfucker? 2013. That's 2013! It's been 10 years! 
<laughs> so, and the Liberace, I think the Liberace angle, we were already doing this podcast, the, or the gimmick, right? I think so, but oh my god. Ugh. We're just, we're, our, the time is just wasting away on us, Biggs. Okay, I'm pulling up his wiki to see if I search for Spud. When does Spud come up? Oh my lord. Okay, that's not until like 2016, 2017. Well, the angle, so the movie, the movie I think was 2013, that's what I read. Is that the HBO release, or is that like the film festival release? Ooh, that's a good point. Because remember, it uh, had various delays and stuff. Uh, it's 2013 was the, when the movie came out. The premiere on HBO, May 26, 2013. Oh. Right before our week started. <laughs> oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> Scott. <laughs> I love that movie so much. I have not seen it in a long time, but I love that movie so much. <laughs> also, how ridiculous does it look that as recently as 10 years ago, you had all these Hollywood people telling Michael Douglas and Matt Damon that this would ruin their careers? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, that movie was fantastic. Oh, it was. It's a Hollywood diet. Speaking of Hollywood. <laughs> Rob Lowe. Oh, God damn. <laughs> the, uh, man, you talk about the guy that stole the movie. <laughs> so great. But Seamus, Seamus is Seamus. Oh, God, now you just remind me of like when he turns to the camera and like, so what do you want me to do with Scott? <laughs> and that look on his face. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. But Seamus, I mean, you look at Seamus then and Seamus now, and he's another guy. Seamus has been on in that company in a top role for over 15 years now, and he's still pretty much the same guy, but he doesn't age. He's been and he's a better years. worker. He's, he, he's, he, he, yeah, you can say yes, and he was, and he was awesome then. He just had one of the greatest WrestleMania matches of all time, uh, like seven weeks ago. He's one of the most underappreciated performers in wrestling history. Me and Dylan Hales were on—I mean, we were on the Sheamus kick many moons ago when he was in ECW. Well, yes, WWE ECW, the Goldust yes. feud. Yeah, the Goldust feud. I mean, it's just uh, what an amazing guy. I think, uh, at least from like your hardcore, some of it was the idea of he's like, oh, he's only getting this push because he's Triple H's workout buddy. And that's what the whole thing was at the time, which was complete bullshit. And how and how's that been forgotten over the years too? That was a thing that was a big thing among the internet circle mm -hmm. for a while there. But anyway, all right, Curtis Axel pins Sin Cara in one fifty nine with a perfect plex. Flaming did a promo saying how Triple H refused to get back in the ring with Axel, so his win was the same as submission. He also said that Cena International intentionally, it says internationally, got counted out on Raw. Match the squash. Angle's in-ring timing is good. Angle. Axel. Yeah, Kurt, the Curtis Axel-Paul Heyman marriage. That's something I forgot about. Well, do you, uh, do you remember the backstory that Meltzer gave to that? No, I don't. So, if you remember, Heyman is the one who introduces him as Curtis Axel. You yes. know, who brings him back as Curtis Axel. And because I he was Michael McGillicuddy. 
Yes, because remember, that's his mother's maiden name, Chris. Mm-hmm. Which is Beautiful. one of the weirder, the like, thing. kicks they got on. Not only getting rid of, like, the family names, but also, uh, like, the insistence that, oh, this other name is actually the mother's maiden name. They're honoring their mother now. Like, we're acknowledging that they're the child of famous pro wrestler. Well, at least, at least, I mean... They're they're doing that now, but they're not doing the whole mother's main name thing. Like, you know, changing Ava Rain, the Rock's daughter, Simone, Ava Rain. It's better for her to not be the Rock's daughter for a while, is the well, thing. Exactly, but I'm saying, I mean, everybody knows what the deal is. Well, but... also, I mean, Braun Breaker is, supposed, is obviously a gimmick yes. name, though. So that's and everybody different. knows it's Rick kid! And they said so, yes. Yes. He's playing a character. Like Mr. Thomas. <laughs> He's playing a character. He's like a soap opera character. You know? Yeah. Um, but, oh, so the, so I remember it was on the, I think, the Raw Report on Observer Radio. Oh, God, we're talking about Observer Radio now. Um, I mean, granted, that goes back to 08. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're about to hit the 15th anniversary of the website merger. I know. Um... Dave explained how when Kurt was first going to the WWF, Kurt Hennig, he knew they were going to want to change his name. So he's like, I need some ideas. Who has ideas? I'll call Paul. So he calls Heyman. Heyman's big idea name for Kurt to pitch as an alternate name was Curtis Mayhem. Mm-hmm. So Dave was fairly sure that Curtis Mayhem was on uh, was on Paul's mind to come up with Curtis Axel. Mayhem. Uh. <laughs> I mean, it was an improvement, so, Curtis Axel. Yeah, it was definitely better than Michael McGillicuddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He and he did have a little bit of momentum at this point, because I think this is when they did the deal where he won the Intercontinental title on Father's Day, right? Yeah, yeah. So that had just happened. And he was in, 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 in a deal with Triple H. Yes, it didn't help him at all. It wasn't booked in a way to help him, but it happened. <laughs> Biggie Langston pinned Alberto De Rio at 450. De Rio got a lot of offense, but AJ raked his eyes, not being able to see Biggie hit the big ending for the pin. Oh, yeah, so this is still AJ, Biggie, and Dolph as a group. J- JBL kept pushing the idea about how Biggie was beating people like De Rio, and it's inevitable he's going to want the world title. Which is planting the seeds. Yeah. Ryback destroyed Kofi Kingston in 227. Ryback won with a shell shock. I just saw some flying stuff for the first 90 seconds. Postmatch saw Ryback put Kofi through three different tables with three different power bombs. This was the angle for Kofi's injury. JBL was really good in selling this. Oh, wait. Is this the era where Brian's writing the SmackDown reviews in The Observer? No, this is Dave. Okay. Again, Brian's not doing a lot of stuff, Bix. Um, Dave always likes when the announcer hit, leans toward the hillside and gets outraged in the important hill angles because it makes them seem really bad. The more predictable announcing isn't anywhere near as effective. JBL puts the idea of Kofi being a new daddy, family man, and this is how he puts his food on the table, as Ryback was putting him through the second third table. Only a negative is for an angle like this have impact. They can't cut right away and have to show the whole stretcher job. Otherwise, if it's not worthy of being done right on television when the aftermath, it's really not worthy of JBL breaking character 
because if nobody mentioned it again and nobody did and no emphasis put on it, it really is just a moment on the show being forgotten 10 seconds later. I get his point, but I feel like the JBL stuff is trying to service that in lieu of being able to give more time to it. Yeah. Chris Jericho did an interview. Essentially, when talking about CM Punk, he said he associates himself with Paul Heyman, and when you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Then he recited a list of diseases that dogs get. He said he wanted to paraphrase his nemesis, Bob Barker, and promised that Punk will be spayed and neutered at the pay-per-view. Oh, CM Punk Chris Jericho feud, huh? Oh, and you know who the interviewer is here, Chris? Uh, Brandy Rhodes? No. Renee? Yes, Renee Young. Yes, Renee Young. Should we play this just for the heck of it? I guess, why not? Well, there's something else we're going to want to play in a second. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest at this time, Chris Jericho. So young here. Let's make it up. Let's press. Now, Chris, Paul Heyman accepted your challenge to face CM Punk at Payback. What are your thoughts? Well, you know the old saying, Renee, that goes, if you sleep with dogs, you're going to get fleas. Unfortunately for CM Punk, when you associate yourself with a dog like Paul Heyman, you not only get fleas, you get ticks, mites, bites, tapeworm, ringworm, bloodworm, blastomycosis disease, dancing Doberman disease, Von Willebrand disease, Scotty cramps, <laughs> cranial menopause, canine menopause, and mange. Mange. Say it with me now. Mange. <laughs> and to paraphrase my evil nemesis, Bob Barker, at payback, I'm going to make sure that CM Punk gets spayed and neutered. Run! What the fuck? You know, Chris Jericho may be right. With Paul Heyman, you take the good and the bad, and sometimes you get burned. It doesn't matter, Michael. It's set at payback. We have CM Punk versus Chris Jericho. Take the good, you take the bad. You take the both, and then you have the facts of life, Michael. <laughs> so this leads to Chris Jericho beating Cody Rose at 4 minutes 50 seconds. <laughs> Jericho caught Rhodes when he went for the disaster kick and gave him the walls of Jericho. Good for what it was. <laughs> wow. Hey, whatever happened to that guy? <laughs> Randy Orton beat Dean Ambrose by disqualification in 11.55. Who's that? Very good. Very good match. Orton was awesome here. As far as pure working with no wasted motion, being your character and understanding how to build and, and peak a crowd, Orton is incredible here. There are things Ambrose are, is good at, and when they were in together, you really saw how far ahead Orton was. Rollins and Reigns interfered for the DQ. Kane and Brian made the save. The end of the show was awesome. The idea is that Brian Philly has something to prove. That he wasn't the weak link, and he just went crazy taking the entire shield out by himself. German suplex on Rollins, running draw kicking the corner on Rollins and Ambrose, flying knee up the apron on Reigns. Then he got back in the ring via the top row for a missile draw kick on Ambrose, followed by a nip up and took it on Rollins and Reigns outside the ring. The crowd was going crazy for all this, and Brian was screaming how he wasn't the weak link. One of the best show finishes in a while as Brian came across like a main event superstar here. We're going to watch this, so let's watch the, the ending here. Well, actually, wait, do we want to see the Wyatt vignette too, or? It's the same one that was on Raw. We're going to play the one that's on Raw when we get to Raw. So we're not going to play this one, which is the debut vignette, because it had already aired on Raw. Yes. We'll have the Raw one coming up. Okay. 
if we didn't, if we, there wasn't one on Raw, then yeah, but there's going to be one on Raw. Okay. All right, here we go. Here's. Oh, and this is what? Live Tuesday SmackDown? Or no, it's pre taped. So this is what? Yeah. It's May 31st, so it's pre taped. So this is what? Thursday or Friday? Well, it's May- Raw's on June the 3rd, so it's Friday. Okay. So this is sci fi? Yes. Okay. This says all the shield has. Mox has aged more than Renee. But we we know why. Ambrose took too long. Randy Orton looking to pin the United States champion. Is it enough? Ambrose at two and a half. Amazing Randy Orton. I mean, listen to how not overly sweetened this crowd is, too. Well, it's a different it's different production. I know, but they still F- did plenty F- of that F- on tape shows you know, in that era. You know where that comes from. That's Fox. And, 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 and they started integrating the whole Fox part to Raw. Hmm. Fox is the one that that was in, that was instrumental in that whole crowd sweetening and making it so much work. Okay, I had forgotten that they had taken years off from doing it so harshly, though. Yeah, yeah. Fox was the one though, that wanted that back in in vogue, and they figured, well, if we're going to do it on SmackDown, we might as well do it on Raw too. Well, also, wasn't it now that you refresh my memory? Wasn't it also that Fox liked the Thunderdome so much that when they came back to touring, they wanted them to do it? Yes. Because that was the yes. thing too when. When they came back to touring, SmackDown was much worse with it than Raw, at least for the first few months. Yeah, yeah, Fo- yeah. Fox, um, they were they they're the ones to blame for that, folks. Drop kick, That's the jaw, and with Ambrose stunned, Randy Orton again. Ambrose fighting back in it. Oh, Randy Orton may have been playing possum. I mean, these guys are only six months on the main roster, but they're getting this. Cool. Oh, yeah. What is that? That was vintage Orton. And now Randy Orton feeding off the Tony Tony Universe. It's time for the Predator to hunt. And Ambrose again. That's brilliant. Great ring. Wait, is his name Dean Ambrose or Dean Ambrose? Dean Ambrose. That's what I thought. Presence. Oh, no, Rollins. You had a feeling this might happen. Reigns. Orton unloading, and here comes Rollins. And now the shield has Orton where he wants him. Randy thought this was his opportunity. Instead, the shield's here to bet out justice. And the house of justice. Wasting little time. something to prove. Yeah, viciously assaulting Rollins, and now Ambrose, Daniel Bryan. Whoa! Daniel Bryan taking out Rollins and Ambrose by himself. Daniel Bryan's been unstoppable. 
Daniel Bryan is possessed, and I love it. This is awesome. Ambrose, the last shot is outstanding. Awesome. Daniel Bryan. Exactly what they need to do. Nothing you say. Let's try another 1.85 rating, 2.41 million viewers. It would have been the third smallest for a regular Friday night show so far this year, but it actually was the least impressive. All the other low ratings came with competition. This show had no major sports competition. This show was the ninth most watched show on cable for Friday. It really is something that we don't talk about enough that them moving to Fox. I mean, SmackDown was. It was what it was. It was the, the second show for a long time. It was on Sci-Fi, and then it moves to Fox. I forget. Didn't it move of, to USA first, though? I think it did. Yeah, I think they did, if I remember correctly. But when it moves to Fox, it, it gives it that gravitas, and that, and then it becomes, you know, the highest-rated show. And it's on network television. So there's a big difference, but still, I mean, you know, I mean, it's. It's, 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 it's the show that's on network television. We'll see what happens as the rights fees come up and where, if they move or go somewhere else or whatever. But yeah, I mean, SmackDown is a very valuable asset to the company now. Yeah. And the thing is, too, though, is like we don't really know what Fox was expecting or wanted originally. Like, I think it came up in Voices of Wrestling. They were saying that, like, I don't remember if they got this directly or they had read this somewhere, but that, like, Fox was expecting what they got that first week, where they did, like, four million viewers or whatever it was. If that's the case, I mean, who knows? But, I mean, they're getting a, they're getting a consistent it's two to two and a half million viewers winning the demo most weeks. Exactly. They win, they win just about every week. Like, so, when I mean, we're yeah. not in the middle of, like, playoff sports... SmackDown is pretty much always the most watched show in the key demo on Fridays on all television. Yes. But here's the thing that may move them off of Fox now is mm. Nick Khan talking about this, a third hour SmackDown. Right. Because Fox, Fox is not going to completely redo their. No, because they have their news that says 10. Yeah. The only, the only thing they'll do that for is for major sports coverage. That's it. Yes. That's the only thing that they'll, they'll do that for, yeah. basically. So, And even if they had any willingness to do it for some 
thing wrestling related. They're not going to do it every week. No. No. All right. So notes from June 3rd. It, Raw is Daniel Bryan tapings from Hartford. It drew 8,500 fans, which is decent enough, but nowhere close to sold out. Bob Backlund's running around in front of the building at the show, largely in character. Superstars taping saw Brodus Clay and Sweet Tea beating Primo and Epico when Tensai used a senton on one of them. Rosa Mendez wasn't with Primo and Epico as she's still not back from her rehab stint. Oh, yeah. There's a lot in that one match description. Yeah. Um, Tyrus, the it, uh, the guy, if you're not watching him every week, you're not a wrestling fan, according to Billy Gorgon. Uh, I, I, uh, well, I guess I'm not a wrestling fan. <laughs> NWA, I mean, you know, certain feelings about a former booker of that program who may or may not have threatened to sue me aside. Um, I just, I can't bring myself to watch it. I can't even watch it. Like when friends were on there, like it's just it doesn't it's off putting, you know. It's like the term I've seen people use is like, no, that's cosplay wrestling. Yeah, it's like, just not good. Cosplaying is like this weird facsimile of studio and wrestling. The, and the NWA had his well, the NWA had his moment when they when Corgan first started, and when he was doing the shows in Atlanta at, at, at the PBS station, at PBS Studios. Yeah. It had something to it. People wanted to like it. It, 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 it. it was, you know, it was, a, you know, it was something that was playing off the old days. And you had people on there. You know, you had good talent on there. And that's now you an had a, a, AW. Eddie Kingston. Ricky yeah. Starks. Yeah. Aaron Solo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you had talent on there, but then just, it's just, you know. Yeah. I mean, people forget, by the way, like. <sighs> Until AEW and Starks started, you know, making more of an impact with his promos and stuff, those two as a tag team were pretty much considered equals in terms of, like, potential. Yeah. And I don't even say that as a slight on Solo. It's kind of weird, the role he's had in AEW, but... Well, he's had quite the interesting uh, run lately. <laughs> in and out of the ring. Um, but, um... Yeah, so in Sweet Tea, of course, that was a uh, Tensai turned into a Brodus Clay s character. <laughs> yes, basically. Yeah, so Matt Bloom doing the becoming the wacky dancing guy again. Well, he, he, he's doing the Rikishi thing for the second he, time. Yes. Yes, because he was already the hip hop hippo with Scotty Tuati. Mm-hmm. And now he's Sweet Tea. And now he's the uh, now now he's the uh, head coach of NXT. For years. Yes, along with co-head coach, uh, no-show job consultant, Sarah Del Rey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, she's still there. Yeah, she's not coaching or anything, and she's not Sean, there full-time. Sean, Sean talked her up in the conference call, so she's obviously still there, bitch. She's doing something, but she's not... She is not a full-time coach anymore. But anyway, then you got Primo and Epico with Rosa Mendez. Yes, those are the those are that's uh, Eddie and Orlando Cologne. Yes, so ten years ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, remember when Primo 
and it led to him getting fired. Like, remember he had just moved back to Puerto Rico and was just working for Double Double C and was still under contract, and they were just letting him do it. And then they demanded he be drug tested, but according to him, and they never refuted this, they demanded he go to the mainland U.S. to get tested. Yeah. That was and, a and, weird one. And and another thing that we haven't mentioned here, uh, Naomi and Cameron, I think, are still with Brodus here, so. Yes. There you go. All right, Raw open with Stephanie McMahon coming out. She said even though Triple H was medically cleared to wrestle tonight against Curtis Axel, she made the executive decision to not allow him to compete. She says she made the decision as an executive, his wife, and as a mother. She says she was especially against him facing Axel, who she said was beneath him. Fans booed her, of course. Isn't Axel the heel? <laughs> so is she. Wasn't he the heel in the feud, though? Yeah, she's a heel. He's a heel. Triple H's a baby face. <laughs> okay. Fans booed her, of course. She said, trying to understand Triple H has given his life and his body for all you fans. This decision's not about you. By this point, she was totally healing on the fans. She said, then said to the fans, they try and should not, they should try not to be so selfish. This brought Vince out. He got a huge reaction when the idea he was going to put her in her place. But instead, he told the crowd not to boo his daughter. He said she was right. And that son of Triple H has given so much to the fans, but that we care more about him than you do, and he will not wrestle tonight. Fans were chanting for Triple H to come out, which he didn't. It was later explained that he hadn't arrived in the building yet. At least they try to make sense out of him not counting coming out. Even if it's strange that a wrestler scheduled to wrestle the show isn't there when the show is starting. Well, but it's more is that more strange than the script not even being finished when the show is already on the air and that's real life? <laughs> mm-hmm. Vince said the W is family entertainment, not blood sport. Yeah. <laughs> So he was saying that before, AEW, folks. I mean, he we know he said that many times. He said that in the 90s. He said that in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, barbaric self-mutilation and the geeking yeah. and the act of self-mutilation being promoted on your program, Ted. He didn't talk about how on SmackDown and right back to put Kingston through a table and hurt him. The fans chanted one more time. And when he gave Kingston a second powerbomb, they chanted one more time again. And because of that, Kingston needed surgery. At that point, the fans of Hartford started chanting, one more time. That was strange. Vince reacted on his feet, saying there isn't going to be a one more time, and it's not happening tonight, and it's not happening on any night. Vince then said that Kurt Axel <laughs> was beneath Triple H, as Stephanie said, and I think each and every one of you are beneath him as well. Shield came out surrounding the ring. The tease is that something big was going to happen while JBL told him it man's to leave. Then they went to a commercial break. When they came back, they met Mans around the ring, and nothing was to follow followed up on. I have no recollection of what the Shield thing was and where it went. I just think they came out for their match because they wrestled next. <laughs> That's what it was. Oh, yeah. Wait a second. The Shield, Rollins, Reigns, and Ambrose beat Kane, Brian, and Orton in 1713. They put these guys in a long match early to try to hook the fans and have them not switch out. You know, a few weeks ago when the Shield lost on TV by the Kiwi Elimination match... And he said their unbeaten streak was over, even they lost by DQ virtually every night. Michael Cole was back to pushing the shield as unbeaten. Although qualified, saying they hadn't lost clean yet, but they had lost by disqualification. You know what? If you're explaining it, I don't have a problem with it. If you're actually making the distinction to be like, okay, they, they've lost a match or two, but they haven't been beaten. I think that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. This is really good. Kane's to place Rollins and Ambrose at the same time. I spot that always gets over. 
Orton did a double draping DDT on Ambrose and Rollins. Crowd went thus for that spot. Went to give Reigns a draping DDT, but Rollins kicked Orton in the back of the head. They worked over Orton until Rollins came up top of Orton's drop kick. That spot always works as well. Orton gave Brian a hot tag. The place went nuts for Brian. Between SmackDown this show, Brian should be pushed as the company's number two babyface, or at least even with Orton, and working with guys like Punk and Ziggler in title matches and main events. Brian proceeded to put on a show that made Jericho concede that Brian's the best performer in the business today. That's Chris Jericho told Dave that. How about that? Uh, he did her around. <laughs> he did her around the top rope on Rollins, who landed on top of Ambrose. Then he had Tope on Reigns. Then he gave Ambrose a missile drop kick. With each move, the place was going crazier, as he's totally connected to at least the paying live audience. He put the no lock on Ambrose. Reigns and Rollins broke it up. Rollins did kick Kane in the back of the head and speared Kane. Orton gave Rollins the RKO. Reigns then threw Orton into Brian, which stunned Brian. Ambrose then pinned Brian with the headlock DDT. Dirty deeds. Yes. Uh, I don't know if it has its name yet, though, until he turns. A- after the... Or at least until the split, yeah. maybe. Um, they did not know what to make of Brian getting over like this. No, but... They eventually... I mean, they eventually did. It took them, like, eight months to be willing to really go along with it. Yes, it took them a while. I mean, here we are at the beginning of June, where it's clear... I mean, maybe a little longer. Yeah, we're at the beginning of June, and it's clear he needs to be pushed as a, if not the top babyface. They do not pivot to actually wanting him to be the top babyface... I mean, he's kind of a top babyface by default later in the year when Cena's hurt, but they're clearly not committing to it, which is obvious from the booking. They don't commit to it until whenever they make the decision to go with him headlining Mania, which is in February, because the big change is at Elimination Chamber when the authority screws him. All of a sudden now Cole is on Brian's side on commentary and defending him and talking about the injustice and all of that. When before that, they still carried over the whole Cole, Brian, NXT bullshit. But, you know, I mean, it, like I say, it, it worked in the end, though, and it made for that moment you know, even more important, I guess. Yes, but so, also I mean, his neck that, had been fucked for the whole run, and then he had to vacate the title. Yeah, but the thing is, is that, you know, sometimes you gotta let this shit simmer, you know, until it builds to the end. I know sometimes you, you, we we think that things should be happening, but sometimes. But also, well, here's the thing, though: they don't yeah. do what they do at Mania the following year if Punk is still there. Probably not. Well, we don't know that. I mean, the Batiste. There still would have been the rejection of the Batiste to push. We, so we don't know that, but I mean, Punk leaving is what really throws everything into flux. Yeah, we, we just we we don't really know so. But anyway, but yeah, I mean, this is all great stuff. This whole run here with Brian and stuff. Um, trip, uh, after the match, Orton backstage uh, was said he was sorry about what happened. Brian went crazy, saying he was a weak apology. He then said that Orton can't give a good apology because he deep down thinks that he was the weak link. Orton, or he said Orton can't apologize because he thinks it's my fault we lost. Then he started how Kane and Orton don't respect him. Kane said they do respect him, but that Brian has lost touch of reality. Brian said the reality reality is he's the weak link. He said if he won this one match, he would have earned everyone's respect. 
and they know he's not the weak link, but that didn't happen. Ryan said that since it's clear Orton and Kane don't respect him, he's going to find another way and said he's going to beat the respect out of someone later tonight. Should we watch this? I mean, I guess so. Even though I, mean, I just te- read, I mean, it seems like it's everything those, berated. I know, but still, kind of one of Danielson's breakout promos there. You hit me right in the face. I had those guys hey, beat. Hey, hey, chill out. I said I was sorry, didn't I? Anything can happen out in that ring, and you know it. I want to beat the Shield just as much, if not more, than the both of you. Let's just drop it, okay? Oh, that's an apology. Okay, I have to pause this to point out. For some reason, they are not using an actual locker room here. <laughs> There's coats hanging on some uh, racks there. Bits. Are those supposed to be coats or towels or? That's co- that's jackets. Okay, but it's like it's in an office space, but it kind of seems like it's supposed to be the locker room. It's weird. <sighs> you hear that? That is an apology. You know, I knew that you think Me. I'm the weak link, but now it's clear that you think I'm the weak link too, don't you, Randy? Oh. I, I get it. I get it. That's why you can't apologize to me. Because it's my fault that we lost. Huh? It's my fault that we lost. Oh, it's not your fault. You know what? You know what? Now I know why you can't apologize to me. Because you guys don't respect oh, come me. Come on. That's you guys can't no, hey, hey, We do respect you. But man, you have lost touch with reality, my friend. Oh, oh, oh no, no, I haven't. Match. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Do you know what the reality is? I get it. I get it. The reality... Is that I'm the weak link? Oh, no, you're not. Come on! And one match? Come on! One match! One match can solidify that I am not the weak link! And I covered everybody's respect! But that didn't happen. And since it's clear that the two of you don't respect me, I'm going to have to find another way to do it. You know what? I'm going to have another match. And I am going to beat the respect out of somebody else. Maybe then you guys will finally respect me. Something that never hit me before till watching this stuff. And by the way, right where I froze this, they're showing Triple H walking in. And there just happens to be a Seamus fathead on an equipment case. Making the <laughs> screaming Seamus face. Yeah. Uh... The long beard and the long hair accentuate that he's so much shorter than the other guys. Oh, yes. <laughs> In ways I did not consider at the time. Oh, yes. Especially shorter than Randy. Kane, we know. Yeah. But Randy just towers over him. Yeah, and they're not shooting it to be forgiving to him. I mean, look, at this point, they're setting up the thing where he gets the first big clean win over the shield. So I, I get it, but... But you know what? It plays into the whole gimmick. It does. The uh, the the I'm the weak link. I'm the you know the short guy. You know they don't respect me. It plays into it though in the end. But it does. Um, but, but again, like you can tell though that like there is something that's not clicking for I think Vince specifically. Is look. It's to make him a star wrestler. But I mean, even if he cleaned him up, whatever you want to do, it's like he. He thinks he's too small. I mean, the other thing, too, is, like, this is the biggest Brian ever was, anyway. <laughs> yeah, Brian's pretty pretty uh, muscular here. Yeah, but... But it's, it's, it's... I mean, that's stuff that, you. I mean, he can't make himself taller, so... Unless he wore lists, but still. Oh, you mean like Darby? <laughs> or Jericho. 
All right. Triple H arrived at the building, asked where Vince's office was. He went to Vince's office, and Vince was there with Stephanie. Triple H said he was wrestling Axel tonight. Stephanie said, no, you're not. Stephanie called him Paul. Wouldn't it be great if in another TV show in primetime, they're trying to get a scene over, the characters start calling themselves by their real names? Actually, in this situation, it'd be kind of stupid for her to call him Triple H. Thanks, Dave. Stephanie said that... <laughs> yes. Stephanie said that we've already talked about it and how she saw him collapse two weeks ago. And Axel isn't worth it. Vince also told him that he wasn't wrestling and get his ego out of this. Triple H was offended that Vince, of all people, would talk to someone about making decisions based on their ego. Triple H said he's going to the ring. He's wrestling Axel. Vince told him he wasn't. And Triple H said, who's going to stop me? Stephanie got between the two of them and Vince walked away, telling Triple H not to do something he's going to regret later. Oh, and by the way, I just realized with where we are in the timeline... We're about to see Executive Paul really blossom because the Performance Center is opening in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. That's another anniversary that's coming up. The Usos came out with a big interest in face paint, and this segment was trying to push that they've repackaged them. In other words, they're going to give them at least a minor push. They beat the primetime players. Oh, yes, Titus O'Neil and Darren Young in 443. You mean was- uh, that New Japan strong star uh, Fred Rosser? Yes, the crowd was into the Usos more than they should be, given the level of push these two have gotten. They're very good, but Dave thinks the twin thing is with their calling card and also gives them a lower ceiling. Really, you say? Jimmy Superkick Young and Jay pinned them with a splash off top rope. They push how hard this makes the, how this makes the Usos top contenders for the tag titles. So we're getting another match of Rollins and Reigns, essentially repeating the exact program they did on Main Event and SmackDown a few weeks ago. The explanation is that the face paint was a rebirth. Okay, I'm trying to remember. Were they doing the whole big entrance before the face paint? No. So this is the beginning of the big entrance where they do the Civita and all that. Yes. <sighs> that got them over. And that entrance, I think, just got fans into them more, and they started getting more time to show what they could do in tag team matches. And I think, and now look at him. One of the greatest tag teams of all time. You're my family, dog. We were family. <laughs> he called him Joe. All right, um, Alberto de Rio beat Biggie Langston. That's a named Joe. Yeah. Alberto de Rio beat Biggie Langston, what they called the rubber match of their series, each having won it twice. Biggie did the same three backbreakers in a row spot where they avoid calling the name of the move. When Alberto used the super kick... JBL called it the Chris Adams kick. Adams was the first guy Dave saw using, but given that Shawn Michaels been using for decades, it was funny that he referenced a wrestler whose beat was 28 years ago. De Rio got the armbar for the first time, but Langston picked him up one arm, put him over the top row. De Rio tried to armbar him a second time, let it go, and turned into a cradle for a three count. Dave liked the finish. So there's that. Seamus pinned Cody Rhodes in 520 with a broke kick. Sandown was at ringside. He came out reading Meredith Whitney's new book, Fate of the States. Whitney is married to John Bradshaw Layfield and is one of the most famous economic analysts in the world. Cole was making fun of how in the book, Whitney only refers to him as my husband and never by name. (laughs) (laughs) It's raw privacy, Maggle. (laughs) <laughs> Sandow was on the mic trying to get Rhodes over with a nickname, the Prince of Precision. 
After the match, Sheamus won the shake hands of Sandow. Sandow refused, and Sheamus slapped into the side of the face, and Sandow went down hard. This is I'm the sure he did. Of uh, Team Road Scholars. Yes, I'm sure he also, did go down hard for that Sheamus slap. Also, the era where every new tag team's name needs to begin with Team. Yeah, there was that too. Because, you know, they're they're teaming. Team, hell no. Team Road Scholars. There's more I'm forgetting. Mm. Triple H ended up leaving the building. He was with Stephanie and told her the only reason he was leaving because he doesn't want the kids seeing him beating up Grandpa <laughs> on national television. <laughs> he said Vince had some nerves talking to him about ego, but he was leaving out of respect for her. But next week, he's opening the show and he will wrestle Axel. Dave's guess 9% of the audience were expecting Triple H to return for a run and end the show, and this is a John Cena match. Dave sure it was scripted to make fans think that, and when it looked like he was leaving, it was a swerve. They announced Kofi was having elbow surgery, and he'll be out for a few months. Brian was backstage with Ryback. Ryback said last year he had the flu, and his throw-up was bigger than he was. <laughs> his throw-up. Don't you hate them writing verbiage using terms like throw-up that nobody would use in real life? Brian blew up at him, saying that Ryback thinks beating him is easy, but he's not afraid of him or anyone else. Ryback laughed at him, and he did that robotic, totally unconvincing delivery with more threats. Brian told him to go underestimate, and see, go underestimate me and see what happens. Ryback said he knew what would happen because Brian's the weak link, and in the match, he's going to be the missing link. Hopefully that doesn't mean he's coming back as Dewey Robertson. It's Vampiro Purple gimmick. <laughs> Okay, I'm curious to see how the Ryback delivers all this, including the line about his throw up. Oh, God, you know, it's terrible, but go ahead. He's expected to be out uh, for a couple of months. What? Listen, you little puke. You better watch what you're doing. He said puke then. Or what? You're going to put me through three tables like you did Kofi? You know, because of me, Kofi had surgery last Thursday. Yeah, so? So, last year... <laughs> the exposition... <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I had the flu. A stomach virus. <laughs> My throw-up is bigger than you. Okay, I'm not defending it. <laughs> But whoever scripted this for the Ryback clearly felt that he could not both call Brian a puke and then <laughs> say puke. I mean, he probably should have said vomit. Yeah. But I, I'm guessing it's something like that. You think it's that easy? You think I'm just going to roll over and run away because you're bigger and stronger than me? I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> you have truly... Lost your mind. If that's how you feel, prove it, tough guy. Get in the ring with me tonight. Go ahead. Underestimate me and see what happens. I already know what's going to happen. Because you're the weak link. And after our match tonight, you're going to be the missing link. Mr. McMahon. Oh. Yeah, how you doing, Paul? How are you, sir? Yeah, Phil. You're doing great. I got a hell of a future ahead of you. Thank you, sir. Tremendous potential. 
Hungry. Russell, I like that. Too bad we're not going to see that match with Triple H tonight. Hey, Mr. Gazzano, it's not sold. By the way, we're not going to see the match next week either. Okay. Makes you happy, doesn't it? Well, it's okay, but listen, we'll see you Friday night on SmackDown. Okay. And thank you for all the opportunity. You bet. Let's go. Uh, not only are you going to see us Friday on SmackDown, but Curtis Axel is going to be in action tonight. Oh, God, here it comes. Come on, he's a hungry young lion. Come on. <laughs> That's why tonight is going to be in action against John Cena. Okay. Yeah. Only this time it'll be different than, than last week. This will be a no disqualification matchup. Do you, do you want Wish me to I say could describe Paul's facials here. No. Good. Get ready for the match. Good luck, kid. Go. Let's go. Wow. Well, there's Fandango heading to the ring. He's in action next live on Monday Night Raw. Fandango Lord. with Summer Ray. Yes. <laughs> Heyman. Oh, God, here it comes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Heyman was great in that segment. I like how, how Dave referred to uh, Curtis Axel. Heyman and I'm not Joe Henning, even though they keep making references to my father and grandfather being Kurt and Larry. We're backstage. <laughs> All right, so Fandango was going to have to wrestle the great Kali. He lost by count out 215. JBL talked about how Kali was genetically a great speller because the winners of the National Spelling Bee each year come from India. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, John. A little less Summer Rae got a boo job in the last week because there was a noticeable difference this week in the clips they showed last week. Okay, I... Do, uh, oh, actually, read the next part, too. By the way, Summer Rae this week chose the dress she wore based on Twitter comments. Okay, there's no way she got a boob job in a week between TVs. I don't think that's how that works. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just what she was wearing. Maybe uh, accentuated. I think so. Um, Fandango took a few bumps and just decided to leave. As he was walking away, Miz blocked the exit. However, bad news Barrett then laid Miz out with a bullhammer elbow. They never actually bothered to ring a bell or announce Fandango was counted out. They just ended the segment. They came back and it was Barrett and Miz in a non-title match. Miz made a comeback at the start, but Barrett took over. Fandango and Summer Rae came back out and were dancing on the stage. Barrett was distracted. Miz tripped them up and put on the figure forward submission in 320. Sure. Yeah. Next was the contract signing for Chris Jericho and CM Punk. So get ready for this coming up uh, sometime later this year on AEW television. <laughs> well, should... not exactly. Well, it will happen. Punk my words. They showed Punk in the, well, if Punk doesn't leave. They showed Punk in the bumper early in the show like he was going to be there, but he wasn't. And it was only Jericho and Heyman. Very good segment. Really, Heyman said almost nothing, but his delivery was so awesome. It was like he was saying all these things that got heat. They argued about who was the best in the world and best in the world, what he does. Jericho called Heyman Mr. Walrus. 
Heyman brought up that the match would be in Chicago. Bones from Chicago. Could do no wrong in Chicago. She's got a home field advantage. Jericho didn't ask if they could move the match to SummerSlam in Los Angeles. Heyman said no. He didn't ask if they could move it to Matt Square Garden. Heyman said tempting, but no. Then Jericho asked if they could move it to Hartford, which got an easy big pop. Thing is, this does make sense in the idea of Jericho's trying to get a match out of Chicago, which is not a heel move anywhere but in Chicago, where he's going to be the heel. Jericho eventually said it doesn't matter if you're in Peoria, Sheboygan, or Luxembourg. If you act like a jackass, fans will treat you like one. Segment had a weird ending. Jericho told Heyman to unbutton his suit. He did, and Jericho stuck the contract down his pants. Okay. I forgot Jericho's a babyface here, technically. Yeah, he's a babyface. Punk's the heel, Jericho's a babyface. Because Punk can't turn yet. But then Punk comes back and basically works a babyface after Jericho. Well, in Chicago. Yes. Naomi, Cameron, and Caitlin beat the Bella Twins and AJ at 432. This scene left something to be taped for the reality show, so it's for the women here on the show. Crowd was so dead. Finish saw AJ refuse tag in and leave. Caitlin then pinned Nikki Bell out there a spear. Yeah, it's total divas. No. Brian and Kane were backstage. Kane told Brian he has more heart than desire than anyone he's seen in all the years he's been with the company. He said, you already wrestled, don't prove to anyone. Brian told Kane he was wrong, like he's always wrong. He said he had something to prove, and beating Ryback would prove it to everyone. He told Kane he didn't want him coming out, even being near him, or he would do it himself. And he would do it himself. He started push-poking Kane in the chest. Kane got fed up and told Brian not to worry about it because he was leaving. Next, we get the Wyatt family. Let's go to the clip. Lore. Would you like to hear a secret? Paris, I need you to stop lying to your children. You're telling them the monsters are not real. I swear, monsters are real. And who am I? What am I? Lightning. I'm everything. I'm the dirt grass beneath your toes. I'm a boxcar and a pack of matches. I'm the hell that's all around you. Everything all around you is a riddle. Things may appear different than they really are. This is the mystery of me, open to the world's interpretation. (laughs) We're coming. So good. Yes. So good. I mean... This thing was so. I mean, they, I mean, good lord. I was very read what Dave said. Real good character development pieces. And I know a few weeks ago about how little the roster around there has been over the past years compared to every single year in the company history. That's by design. The idea is only to bring people up when they have solid long term ideas for them because all the guys that were brought up that went nowhere over the past number of years. That's because this is Triple H's developmental now. Yeah. And look at all the people they wasted from Ohio Valley. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this thing. I mean, the Wyatt family when they they had worked themselves up with these ang- with these videos that when they finally debuted, yeah, it was just instant. Yes, and it's amazing how they fucked it up in the end. Bray Wyatt, I mean, good lord, to see how Bray Wyatt went down as a character, just it's insane. I mean, look, here's the thing: he should have been a baby face and pretty much stayed there. With most of the spooky stuff gone, honestly, probably at most within three years of debuting on the main roster. Like, and then they just 
didn't... I mean, maybe even less than that. And they just never did it. He needed to be Dusty, basically. That's what he needed to be. Or... Blackjack. Dusty type. But you get what I'm saying, though? Dusty or Blackjack. I mean, with his promo style, specifically. Yeah, I mean, he could have done Blackjack, too. I mean, not the, not the gimmick, but done the Blackjack essence. I get what you're saying. Get mom out of the kitchen, you know, all this other stuff, and the, you know, all that, the do drop in, sweet water. I mean, there's stuff he could do. Yeah. But have that have that whole vibe about him. But you know, the Bray Wyatt character here is I mean, this is this first run here is fantastic. Yes. It's just what they do from then on, you know. It's really the scene of feud forward. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, the booking on the Danielson thing was hokey at times, but it worked. Um it's they just got they, 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 weird they, and spooky. They play too and, much yeah. into the and and I think a lot of that's and sadly I think a lot of that is Bray himself. Yeah. Um. And part of the issue too is that as the in ring standards are going up in the company, he. I mean, this, it's not as big of a problem as the other stuff, obviously. But he's a guy who's not capable of having a good main event match with. I mean, with well, anyone other than Danielson. Well, let's also be honest, too. He he started getting more and more out of shape. Well, here's the other thing, too. I think the stuff that he could do well physically, you know, and even the stuff he showed as Husky Harris, I think in ring, the gifts he had and with the, like, kind of the surprise athleticism and the all that, I think in ring, he was probably better suited as a babyface, too. He probably would have had better matches as a babyface. Yeah. So it, it's going so spook, going with the spooky stuff, not turning him when they should have. That it just it was a shame, and then you know also they keep overdoing it with the repackaging stuff. So like you know Strowman worked, they fast tracked the worst guy in developmental to the main roster, and it worked. He improved and he got over. But I think they overcomplicated things. They take you know Harper away from him, and then. That's the stupid, stupidest move. Rowan and... That stupidest fucking move. There's, that, there is no reason that they ever should have split those guys up. Not that well, quick. No, and also without what, Bray turning babyface, too. Um, like, if you wanted to have them as heels and him as a babyface, that's one thing, but... Now, we did, we did get, uh... Loosely connected to the authority heel Luke Harper out of that, which was good. But, I mean, the one guy who probably in W, like, you know, Harper Brody, he had his issues with the company later on, obviously, that have been talked about a lot. But I think in the grand scheme of things, and also seeing just how good he got, I think Rowan is the one who suffered the most for it. Yeah. Because. Even though you see it when he does his occasional AEW matches and stuff, I don't think people realize what a great wrestler that guy's become. I mean, he's much better. He, he got much better than what he'd have been, yes. I mean, we're talking about a guy who just got thrown into being a replacement partner in Death Triangle in AEW and was just seamlessly doing work rate trios matches and stuff at, you know, whatever he is, 6'10". 
So yeah. I think because he's the he was you know he was a wrestler before WWE, but he wasn't as established as Brody. He did Noah tours. <laughs> I didn't realize he had, he had Noah tours as the roof. Marius, yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that. But yeah, like. It, I, maybe because he wasn't considered as established a wrestler as Brody or the hardcore favorite before, you know, like Brody was. I think just people just kind of lost track of him, and I don't know. Just he, he is a like he. I don't know if he has a day job now or something. He tore no in two thousand and seven when he was just a Minnesota indie guy. Yeah, yeah, the roof. But I really, I would like to see him get a, another run somewhere. He had one singles victory on that tour, beating Smotu uh, Hiryanagi. Hmm. He teamed a lot with <laughs> with Rocky Romero and Mitsuo Momoda. I forgot about Rocky's Noah run. Yeah, so so definitely not one of the most uh, powerful people in wrestling at that time. Oh no 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 no. All right, so Brian beat Ryback by disqualification in 1502. This is where Brian really proved his stuff because they did a long TV match late in the show, and the crowd already seen Brian. Ryback is best in very short matches. Crowd wasn't into it at all in the first half, and then Brian got him going crazy by the end. It's probably Ryback's best singles match since he started with the gimmick and maybe of his life. The crowd even started out with the Goldberg chance. At one point, Brian put an Indian death lock on Ryback and dropped elbows to the face doing ground and pound. That ground and pound looked so good, they needed to do a ref stoppage once or twice against a prelim guy using that spot. Ryback started throwing him around and called him a weak little man. Brian came back with a missile drop kick, diving headbutt that was two-thirds of the way across the ring. Brian was throwing kicks to Ryback, cut the leg. He went for a power bomb, but Brian reversed it into the no-lock. Brian was going crazy, wanted to see Brian actually beat Ryback, but Ryback made the ropes. Brian went for a tope. The idea was Ryback wanted to sidestep it. And Brian would crash to a table. He didn't sidestep it enough and like a semi-hit, but Brian sold being hurt and Ryback didn't sold being hit. Ryback ran Brian's back twice to the post and got a table and then powerbombed him through the table for the DQ. Ryback pulled out a second table, but Cena ran in for the save. I mean, you can just read this description of the match and read about how the crowd is reacting. And you can just tell just from the description just what a great mind Brian Danielson has for laying out this type of match. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. you read this and it's like, I don't remember much about seeing this match, but yeah, that sure does sound like the best right back match. It was. Um, also, look, uh, the Ryback is a little bit of an oddball, but it's crazy to think about the fact that he's a heel here at this point, given what his push was, you know, late... 2012, and that they booked themselves into a corner with that stupid punk LNSL match. Yeah. Which it, like, honestly, I feel like it's gotten overshadowed by so much other stuff that we do not talk about that the way it deserves to be as one of the dumbest things they've ever booked. They booked a match where they clearly did not have a finish in mind because it seemed like the hottest match to book. And they booked themselves into a corner, and they killed the hot new babyface. Yeah. At least yeah. we got Brad Maddox out of it. <laughs> oh, great. 
Main event saw Curtis Aswee John Cena by countout 13 minutes with no DQ match. Yes, you can do a countout finish in a no DQ. It's not the same thing. They had a good match as well, though nothing compared to the previous match. Aswee used a series of chair shots for a near fall. He used the old underneath swing and net breaker. His own McGillicutter cutter finisher on the chair for a near fall. Cena came out with STF. Heyman pulled, pulled a computer tablet from the announcer's desk and handed it to Axel. Caught in the move. Axel hit Cena with the break the STF. Cena was about to put Axel to a table on the floor, and Heyman was begging him not to and blocking the table. Cena put Axel down and went after Heyman. Axel went after Cena, but Cena came back on him. Ryback then came out and attacked Cena. He probably Cena through the table, and Cena was counted out. He you know advertised this was no dart match. There was no dart match. After the show ended, Cena made a comeback on Ryback, put him through the table. He did a cut promo talking about the local chapter Special Olympics. Dolph Ziggler's advertisement was not there. He was at the weekend house shows with a decision made not to use him live on TV. He showed up on the screen during the SmackDown show to announce his return to the June 10th Raw show to have him out in front of fans. So this is the selling the concussion, the storyline concussion from the Del Rio double turn? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, so he's not an act with Big E and AJ anymore, I guess. I don't think so. Okay. So, I don't think so. Okay, I have my thoughts on Raw. The Raw, I mean, it's not. I guess it's not the Raw brand, but Raw in general this time. Should I wait until we go over the ratings? I guess before we. Well, know? there's no brand. They're all in the same shows. Okay, so. so it's the Raw format. I guess is the way to put it. I've been very insistent on this for a long time, and I think you can still see it here, although you don't have Punk. <sighs> there are some people who are getting over, but not necessarily. Um, going anywhere like Barrett, but still, it's like you look at these shows, and it's like you see like this first year and a half of three-hour Raws. You know, it depends on different times who's getting pushed, who who is carrying more of it. Like you know, a year earlier, AJ was constantly in angles and stuff, and she's not here. But AJ Punk Brian Shield completely carry that three-hour Raw format. I mean, look, we have over a half hour of Brian Danielson matches on this show. Yeah. And this is far from the only Raw in this era that he has two matches on. And the Wyatts get in that mix, too, when they get in there. Yeah, but it's like, you look at when people started to feel like things were getting irreparably bad, it's mid-2014, where Punk is assumed to not be coming back, Danielson gets hurt, and they split up the shield. And all of a sudden, Raw, which this, you know, here this first year, so I guess it's really the first two years of the three-hour Raws that were kind of camouflaged. Once you get rid of all those hot acts, those shows became such a slog. Like, oh God, I, I, I wouldn't even watch it. But I mean, you remember, though, at least the early three-hour Raws, like the first year, like... It, it it worked. They added a lot more longer matches, and they had the wrestlers who were good enough and over enough to make that work. Yeah, it was good. So it was a good the format. Show. The, problem, the breakup of the Shield still in the biggest. I mean, we talk about the Wyatt family. I mean, they had just officially the turned babyface two months earlier. It was horrible, horrible. And then they made Seth Rollins into that the character they made him into, which hurt him for a long time. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, okay, with hindsight, now that we have almost nine years of hindsight on this, 
and we're talking about the early days of the shield and all that. Do you think, setting aside the exact character they gave him, do you think Rollins being the one who turned, you know, and setting aside that it was too early, just in the grand scheme of who should be the one to turn, do you think they were right for it to be Rollins, or do you think it should have been what everyone was expecting and it should have been Ambrose? should have been Ambrose. I agree. Rollins was the natural baby face. Well, that's he was a, he, he was a babyface worker when he was a heel. Yes, yeah. Remember that's like, the problem. I mean, that's the yes. Like you remember when oh, he know. started doing those multiple dive spots and stuff. All everything that everyone talking about a uh, given show online would be talking about is Seth Rollins is going to be such an amazing babyface when they Me? split up. I was doing all the time. Yeah. And it, I think it's it's a frustration now that like I know he's doing his stem cells and stuff, and he's seems to be getting around fine. But like, I wish we got to see him be a baby face, a singles baby face, at like his real like wrestling athletic peak. You know, I yeah. get to see well, that he was a wrestling baby face for that entire peak. Hmm. You know? But, plus, I mean, the thing is, he he and Reigns were the tag team. Yeah. So it makes sense, you know, he's the one who had the character more suited for it to be the one to turn was Ambrose. It would make sense for him to turn on the tag team. I just don't get it. And, you know, obviously Rollins has been successful and all that, but, like, that grading character, like, it, it didn't feel like he was grading the way a heel was supposed to be. No, it was the it was, it was the exact opposite. Yeah, it's the exact opposite. You know, like remember all the people making fun of like like in the ladder match with Ambrose and all of his yelling during matches and stuff. How you gonna climb the ladder with one leg, Dane? <laughs> How you gonna climb with one leg? Yeah. Doing his weird Danny Daniels voice. Yeah. So But anyway. Alright, that's Raw. Raw did a 2.65 rating, 3.68 million viewers. The rating was third lowest for non-holiday Raw in the last 15 years. Trailing two shows this past fall that went against blockbuster NFL games. It was also the lowest rating for a Raw show not on a holiday night or during football season since July 7, 1997, which is when they had head-to-head competition with Nitro at its peak. The culprit was Game 7 in the Miami Heat Indiana Pacers series, which did an 8.24 rating and 11.57 million viewers. That's in the Raw's major sports issues until football season, as the final series has no Monday game schedule. Raw was third for the nine on cable. The Stanley Cup playoffs with Boston Bruins against Pittsburgh Penguins at a 2.1 rating and 2.60 million viewers on the NBC Sports Network. Oh, that's something that... <laughs> yeah, NBC Sports Network. No longer exists. No. The show did a, did a 1.8 in Teenage Boys, down 22%. 1.9 in Males. 18 and 49, down 14%. Point eight in girl teens, down 11%. Point nine in women, 1849, down 10%. The audience was 67.9% male. Seven by segment, Stephanie and Vince opened up at a 2.72, which is very low. And the game didn't start till 8.30. So if you're a lot of the usual audience that decided to watch the game, they didn't bother to tune in the Raw before the game started. Uh, Shield versus Brian Kane and Orton gained 1,400 viewers. That seems like a typo. Keep in mind, they kept this match going until about 8.30 when the game started by design. The fact they were ahead at the end of the game, in the match, and then the start, given the start of the game, is a feather in their cap. 
Usos' primetime players lost 450,000 viewers to a show low 2.39. But that's to be expected. Alberto and Big E lost, uh, gained 258,000 viewers in the 9 p.m. to 2.58. Sheamus and Cody Rhodes gained 18,000 viewers, which is better to be expected. Fandango and Greg Khali lost 252,000 viewers. Barrett and The Miz, non-title, and the first part of Jericho Heyman uh, signing was 338,000 viewers, I guess, gained. Same part of contract signing and the Bellas, AJ, Caitlin, Naomi Cameron gained 116,000 to 2.74 in the 10 p.m. quarter. Brian came backstage and Wyatt Family lost 328,000. Brian Ryback gained 463 at 10.30, which is tremendous for that time slot. And Cena Angle gained 430 for the show peak of a 3.14 overrun. For the last two matches, almost all the growth was adult males. Brian Ryback and males 1849 went from 1.8 to 2.2. Cena and Axel went from 2.2 to 2.7. However, teenagers, Brian Ryback went from a 2.2 to a 2.2. And Cena went from a 2.2 to 2.0. Okay, something to keep in mind as far as at least these 1849 ratings. The numbers we see week to week now from Showbuzz Daily, which are usually also what Brandon Thurston goes with at WrestleNomics, those are not the cable coverage area ratings. Those are out of everyone with a TV. Those are a one-to-one comparison with network ratings, but just without, you know, the little, without the extra math to be like, oh, this is out of people who get this network. Um, so when we see these, you know, like, what is it saying for 1849? You know, like, in the high ones for 1849, well, that's males 1849. Do we have an overall 1849, actually? I said it earlier. I can't remember what it was. But still, it's not It's not the same measurement. Now, on the occasions where Warner Brothers Discovery sends out emails about Dynamite ratings, those do use coverage area ratings. Like, when I get an email from TNT, let me see if I can find it, actually. Uh, or, well, not TNT. You know what I mean. WBD. Uh, I'm not able to find any. Oh, here we go. Okay, so I'll just pull up a random one. This is from... WBD. So from last August. Um, So this is the... Which show? What date was this? This is the August 24th, I think. So, is that the go home for double or not? I'm not uh, for all it for all out or oh, it's the it, no, it's the it's the Punk Moxley unification show. It refers to the 18 to 49 rating as a point six eight, when you know the number everyone would be seeing on Showbuzz Daily was much less than that. I I don't have in front of me what it was right now. So it's like these are still used, but not in the numbers we're seeing each week. Uh-huh. Yeah, in 2+, plus, so to get a comparison to what kind of ratings we had back then, it was uh, 0.57 for the little over a million viewers that they did on that show. Ziggler was cleared on June 3rd after his concussion, so he's likely to be added to the June 16th payback show in Chicago against De Rio for the title. The official matches at this point are seen in right back in the three stages of hell match for the WWE title. Jericho versus Punk, IC title with Barrett, Miz, Fandango, Caitlin versus AJ for the Divas title, which has a good chance of happening. Sheamus and Sandow also will be a direction. When will they Orton, Brian getting a big win, and the Shield should be at his major matches. 
with Cena and Ryback doing three matches, the car will be expected to have less other matches than usual. They're building the Usos up for a tag title match against Reigns and Rollins. All will be on TV or this show. And basically in the SmackDown, Orton and Bryan could happen. We won't expect Bryan to go over since he's scheduled for a title match. But even suppositions these days can jinx planned endings. The reason Fandango had his start and stop originally is the idea for the character was taken from the Patrick Swayze character in Dirty Dancing. It was Vince McMahon's idea, but then Vince nixed it, thinking it wouldn't fit with the current sponsors. Later, McMahon brought about the idea of a ballroom dancer with Dancing with the Stars type persona. Curtis Hussey, who plays the character, Jonathan is his middle name, which is where Johnny Curtis came from, said he figured he had two choices, either completely embrace the character or go back to the Eastern Wrestling Alliance in Maine, making 50 bucks a match and working at Applebee's, a previous job he, he held before he signed with WWE. It was noted that his theme was taken from the I Dream of Genie theme from the 60s. Yes. It was It was funny because Dave saw someone mention Paul Heyman was humming the theme from I Dream of Genie in the elevator when they did that skit where they destroyed Triple H's office. It was the Fandango theme. And then realized they are pretty much the same thing. He said he first got interested in wrestling being a fan of the Cruiserweight division, WCW, like Team Malenko, Chris Jericho, Rey Mysterio, Eddie Guerrero, and Hutu Guerrero. He also had Dwayne Johnson spend time with him and told him about how he had totally embraced the character or else it wasn't going to work and people will see through it. He did do that. Yeah. But this was a character that was never going to have a long shelf life. And the thing is, is it got over with that post-mania crowd just doing the goofy dance of the song and then they and then they tried to make it a thing and that ruined the characters. Exactly. Which they that's a big problem WWE had many times over the years is taking something that was organic and trying to, you know, co-opt it and completely failing. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, you had these great semi-viral videos of fans <sighs> taking the train, you know, from MetLife. Well, I know, or yeah, from either MetLife or Meadowlands, you know, back to the city where they're all singing the Fandango song and stuff. But it they overdid it, like I said. Yeah. Um, and just as they always do, they just run whatever it is into the ground. But I will say that they have not done that as much lately. No. They've toned that down. I mean, I really – I mean, when was the last time that they did do something like that, that they – they did that. I don't know, but for anyone who doesn't see Brian, who anyone who, do, who for those who think the company doesn't see Brian as the main event, or right now the Pennsylvania main event Money in the Bank on July 14th, Philadelphia is Cena versus Brian, with Brian not being the heel as a title match. As you should be aware, everything is subject to change. It's pretty much a sure thing that Brian will be cheered in that match, given the city, and they're fully aware of that. The impression is they won't try to make him a heel, but that's certainly something that could change. Dave says this is the goal for the next two months is to try to make Cena a legend by being The Rock, surviving Ryback, and then having a match of the year with Brian. Okay. Um, well, SummerSlam, right? Don't they do Cena and Brian at SummerSlam? I forget the reason. So I think the the match where Brian gets the stinger with Orton is in late June. Because I remember um, if they shot the angle with Henry. Cena, Hen- Cena and Mark Henry's money in the bank. Right, so I think they end up deciding to do the Henry... Where Orton wins Money in the Bank. Right, they decide to do the Henry program as the one-off, and then do Danielson for SummerSlam, and then Cena's hurt, so Danielson's getting the belt, and blah, blah, blah. Well, Brian's Money in the Bank. 
He's in a match. It's Orton, Christian, Punk, Brian, Van Dam, and Sheamus. Right, and that's also when they do the Heyman turn on Punk. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, if Cena wanted to have the, the great classic match of his career with Danielson, mission accomplished. Oh, yeah. I don't think people talk enough about how great that match is. And you know what the funny thing about that match is? Yeah. The psychology and the pacing of that match? Yeah. That's just Danielson doing the Kenta match with Cena. Yeah. It's the ROH Kenta match that I was at at Manhattan Center, just with John Cena substituted into it for Kenta. Well, and it works. He, he could do that. Because <laughs> it's Brian Danielson. He's the greatest wrestler and, of all time. Yes. And John Cena. Don't oh, underestimate no, not him. I don't Cena either, but like. that. I mean, legitimately, if someone wanted to say that's the best match in company history, I don't think they'd be off base at all. I mean, you could put it in discussion. Yeah. But anyway. Oh, I, I uh, realized since I didn't say it earlier. So, oh, so Ziggler's out with an actual concussion, too? Yeah. Yes. Okay, that's confusing. Um, Something else I wanted to say here. But the I Dream of Genie thing was interesting. Like, if more people were paying attention to wrestling, that's maybe, and more people cared about the rights to that song, they might have had some problems because that was very on the nose. That song, that Fandango song. Um, yeah, kinda. The and Kmart reached a new deal for an exclusive. Never give up a pair of line of Cena merchandise aimed to kids. In other words, don't spit the heel journey anytime soon. Well, they'll have shirts, sweatshirts, pants, shorts, headbands, and more. Oh, Kmart. <laughs> Good old Kmart. Are they completely gone now? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they're pretty much gone. Sadly. Yeah, the only one I ever would see was the one at Penn Station, and that's been closed for quite a while. I was uh, one of my favorite Kmart memories is being on the toy one of the toy aisles, and Tommy Rich was on the other toy aisle yelling at his kids. <laughs> I'm, I'm not lying. When was and this? Lovely Griffin, Georgia. This would have been 1989, 90? Because Tommy lived in Sunnyside, which is right up the road. Sunnyside's about five minutes away from Griffin, five minutes north. I ain't getting you any of you kids, those WWF dolls. You need to shut the hell up. <laughs> That's what he said. I felt like I could do a better Tommy Rich than that, but I can't. Well, I wasn't trying. No, me I too. wasn't trying. But yeah, do you think you could do a decent one if you try? Um, somebody say something about sh shutting these damn kids up. <laughs> That's a little better, yes. Yeah. But yeah, that was in Kmart. All right, in Japan, among the wrestlers, Keiji Muto and Tetsuya Naito had the insider reputation as, as the best putting together a match. In WWE, Edge used to be considered one of the best by his peers. But the current group, Jericho and Punk, have that rep, and Brian is getting it. Brian, Dave, you think Brian was fantastic at match layout in his Ring of Honor days. Brian's work with Reigns on SmackDown was really impressive, and the fact he always has good match against everyone, even Ryback, speaks volumes. Undertaker has the rep as well, because, well, he's Undertaker. I sense that Dave disagrees, then, with the reputation. Cena's rep is he asks the right questions, totally understands what's needed, plus the heels do a lot of it, and lets Arn Anderson, who is his personal agent, come up with a lot of his stuff. Of the newer guys, Ambrose is starting to develop a good rep. Triple H, Mysterio, and Michaels also have good reps in this regard. I mean, yeah. 
I mean, I'm trying to think if there's anything to add to that. Um, no, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Just I, interesting. To... I, the one thing I would add is that I think what sets Danielson apart, he's got the Bret Hart thing where he's not wanting to play with the usual wrestling tropes. He is going to zig when you expect him to zag more than a lot of other, like, great match guys by reputation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Alright, uh, WF will be doing a camp very soon, bringing about 15 or so amateur wrestlers that Gerald Briscoe has scouted. Canyon Seaman have been scouted in Colorado Springs, looking at Olympic athletes, and probably trying to pick up women. Briscoe's been going to major amateur meets. Jim Ross has opened up a relationship with the National Football League Player Association and had a meeting with the NFLPA last week. Ross gave a speech to the union because one of the things they do is help get players after their careers are over new jobs. Because so many, new, so many ex-footballers have been successful in pro wrestling historically, the idea is for the union to know that WWE is looking for guys who have that level of athletic ability. They want to be pro wrestlers. That was a thing. That's a relationship they were really building at this time, that they wanted to have a good relationship with the NFL, with the idea being well, that they could steer players who maybe weren't able to be competitive players but were still great athletes in their direction. Baron Corbin. This is the time period where he's going to NXT. Um, Marseille. Oh, uh, 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 Mojo Rawley. Mojo Rawley. Angelo Dawkins. I mean, these are guys who are ex-football players around this era. Yeah. (laughs) Do we think Canyon Seaman's name was the subject of more jokes than maybe anyone else in wrestling history? In the back. Especially concerning how he acted? Yes. Absolutely. What a Regardless. name. Like, <laughs> yeah, what, I know. Like, you know, if your last name, you know what, if your last name is Seaman, I know you're working uphill anyway, but like, why you got, why you got to name your kid Canyon? <laughs> A veritable Canyon. We'll put Seaman in your Canyon. Oh my god. And then, of course, you know, he came off to everyone like an asshole. Well, he was. Yes. He was an asshole. You know, I mean, there's the story. uh... There's a lot of stories. I know, but like, I remember the Dr. Tom one when Dr. Tom's still coaching, and he's like, look, I'm going to give it to you straight. You know, because you're new to this business. Like, the way you just talked to all those guys, you came off like an asshole. I didn't get shit. Credit to Dr. Tom for being willing to say that to him, and soon after that, Dr. Tom did not have a job anymore. Of course. All right, regarding the already filmed TV show Legends House, the reports it was going to be on television of late, and George Barrios denied that at the last press call. The actual story is the original idea for the show was for the network, when the network was going to debut tonight at WrestleMania 28. When that wasn't going to happen, it was planned for a station, but ended up being turned down. Of late, they were shopping it around again because of the feeling it was becoming dated and there was no start date inside for the network. But nobody wanted it, so it's now it's back to be a network exclusive. Okay, so wait a second. It may have been filmed even earlier than I remembered it being. Is the implication it was already shot with the idea of premiering right mm-hmm. after Mania 28? Yes. So at uh, this absolutely. point, the show's already been in the can for well over a year. Yes. So by the time it airs on the network, it's been in the can for well over two years. Yes. Yes. I mean, I was at the media lunch for that, 
And uh, I was at a table with Hillbilly Jim and Gene Okerlund. And Okerlund just turns to Jim and is like, I do not remember any of this shit. Well, anyway. It was what it was. You know? I never watched any of it, so I wouldn't know. Randy Orton and Fraser Curtis asked if it actually had more pressure on him than he did because he felt Kurt Henning was better known than his own father. Regarding his being called Michael McGillicuddy, Orton said that was just career suicide, but he made it through it. And Orton thinks anyone who could make it through make it, though having him like McGillicuddy for however many years he had is a survivor. Dave thinks Axel's going to be an interesting test for a number of reasons. The first is, can W take a guy they buried for years and then make him a main eventer that people will buy? Nope. Without Heyman, it would have been extremely difficult, although not impossible. With him, the odds are a lot better. Well, guess what happens? Still, the last time Dave recalls him doing this was R-Truth's heel turn. He was very entertaining as a heel, drew a terrible pay-per-view number against Cena, and a very disappointing one in the match with The Rock. Granted, the whole premise of that match was flawed. It was soon in the middle, and then back babyface, and it has been the same spot he was for the push since. The issue wasn't R-Truth failed as much as he wasn't going to succeed in the snap of the fingers. To make it work, it will take major patience. There's no guarantee, but historically, WWE has had a lot of patience. Where the situation is different is this Triple H's hand-picked project. And after he's had failures with Karma and Sankara, Dave thinks it would give Henning every chance in the world rather than pull the plug in two months if it's not an instant hit. That's the thing they... I forgot about. Joe, that Curtis Axel was Triple H's handpicked guy and boy that failed too yep wow triple h sure has had his has, has had his misses over the years hasn't he okay so I'm, <laughs> and not and not by his doing well, by other people in the doing it to him okay so i mean let's look at the ones we're talking about here so awesome cop um that's completely out of his hands now I feel like it's hard to find the line with what even you want to say here, but it's like, had there been indications she maybe had mental health issues she needed to deal with beforehand, yes. But you can't predict, but you can't predict her getting pregnant and losing the baby and nearly having a psychotic break over. Yeah, there's a lot going on there that was well outside of wrestling. Yes. And like, the only real incident before that was her punching Bubba the Love Sponge when he made light of the Haiti earthquake. Well, he deserved it. Yeah, which is, like, such a weird thing, outlier. Like, I'm sure she's been around assholes in wrestling. Like He deserved know. Yeah. Um, Mystico? <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. I think the miss is not realizing how someone who rightfully considered himself a star would be taken by everyone else in the company. He was there at the wrong time. Yeah. If, he come, if, if they bring him in five years later, it's all different. I mean, if he comes in five years later with that whole deal, Averno probably comes in with him. And... Well, that was Everything. originally the plan, and then it never got explained why it didn't happen. But he came in at the wrong time. He absolutely did. Yeah, and then as far as, you know, Curtis Axel, I mean, he tried, kind of. <sighs> the booking of the feud, though, was not good. He, yeah, he just wasn't that guy. 
Joe Hennig didn't good guy. See, yeah, apparently super nice guy, solid hand, did not have the charisma to be that guy. No, he just wasn't. But you know what? Once they figured stuff out for him to do, though, eventually, like yes, he was yeah. a very serv- he was very serviceable, but he was not a guy that would have been in a main event run. And you know, Ryback'sel was a lot of fun. Yeah, as an act, like he was able to do stuff, but he could have been a oh, tag team. Absolutely, he'd been a, a, a really great tag team guy, a top tier tag team guy. I mean, his best stuff in developmental was tag team stuff. Yeah, I mean, he would have been a great tag team guy if he stayed that way. So sometimes you, hey, sometimes you you got to be Robert Gibson. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you got to be Jim the Anvil Nightheart. So I mean, who's to say with different timing he doesn't end up he doesn't get teamed up with Dash or Dawson in NXT or just any other random people, you know? Yeah, any of yeah any of the other guys who they had like in push tag teams. But anyway, I mean, so it's just a lot. A, a lot of Triple H's misses, especially in this era, were stuff that was beyond his control. And you know, and all in a lot of these NXT folks that were called up, good lord, I mean, they were sabotaged from you know as soon as they got to the main roster to the point where you had NXT talent that does not that just did not want to go up because they knew what was going to happen. Right. That being going to the main roster was the worst thing that happened to them. Yeah. All right, as we continue on here, Jack Swagger was off TV and house shows this week due to a hand injury. Apparently a bad cut that requires surgery. He's been around television in the month, but if he's in the ring, you have to be careful. The official words, he can return with restrictions on how he's using it in the month. And a full, full clearance in late August. Zeb Coulter was shown on the app this week on his own cut in the promo, but was not used on TV. So, old swags. Ryan Drago, Missouri independent wrestler, signed a developmental contract and is headed for Florida. Drago made the announcement at the Metro Pro Wrestler Show on June the 1st in Kansas City. Dave was told he was small than you expect, someone WWE designed, but he's a strong worker with a good personality. He was originally trained by Harley Race. Okay, do you know who Ryan Drago is? Yeah, Simon Gotch. I, it took me a minute to remember. Because I, I, I didn't realize he was a Harley guy originally. I thought... Wasn't a lot of his, like, coming of age on the Indies in California? Uh... Or is that where he's originally from, at least? Yeah. Actually, wait, was he originally trained by Harley, or did he get retrained by Harley? Um... Okay, yeah, his earliest stuff on Cage Match is California. Yeah. ABW and the like, so... Yeah, it looks like he went to get additional training from Harley. Which, hey, that's a way to go sometimes. And... He's an interesting guy. He's definitely a guy who's not super charismatic, but like, I he's a guy who's talented and well, can do that's a another style thing. well, but I think he just completely missed his window. Well, Vaude Villains. In NXT, they were over, they were hot. Main roster, Des Dornell. Mm-hmm. That was not so an act the- that ever would have worked on the main roster, though. Exactly. I mean, uh, well, in general, those, like, as people would call it at the time, like, those, uh, the era of, like, Chakara gimmicks in NXT. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, he started in, uh, in Missouri in, uh, 06. So he'd been wrestling for a few years. Also headed to Florida as Northeast Independent Wrestler Smith James. 
who was six foot two, three hundred thirty pounds. He was trained by Taz. It's kind of a funny deal that there's someone potential trained by Taz. They wouldn't be in TNA developmental one way, but in reality, it's a sign of reality. Oh, okay. So we're recording this out of order. So I didn't even realize though that we're in the era where OVW is official TNA developmental. Yeah, but uh, Bull James. There you go. Yes. Of uh, boy, did he get buried on the way out? <laughs> yeah, he did. With the whole bull fit thing. Yeah. Um, ROH's Prince Nana was given in ring tryout before the show at the Raw Tables in Hartford. He has done some enhancement work a decade ago for WWE. So obviously he is not working in the office yet. No. Ryan Parmeter, 33, wrestling NXT as Connor O'Brien, was married on June the 6th on the beach in Clearwater, Florida, to longtime girlfriend Christian Eubanks, 32, who wrestled as Chrissy Vane in that brief run WWE years back. She was there in 2006-2007 before both of them quit together because they were never seeing each other due to the schedule once she was called up. He ended up going back in 2010. Between his two stints, Parmeter had five years under contract developmental, which is a lot longer than they want guys there. The idea espoused of late is that after three years or so, if they can't find a spot, then it's time to let the person go. I forget. Is he already in the Ascension at this point? Uh, no. I okay. don't think so. He's not yet. Um, what a That's weird career act. that guy had, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that guy's around forever. It felt like his whole career was in WWE Developmental. <laughs> and see, you know, that's the thing. I mean... And for people who are having trouble placing what his name was previously, that's Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah. NXT. There was a time there in NXT. I mean, it was developmental, but it, sh- it should have been more than developmental at one point. It was a third brand. And then they kind of have a situation now with NXT that they should have they should have probably had back then. Where you have a secondary show as your developmental show, level up, mm-hmm. where you can build up talent to work to go to the main NXT show. Is that still half an hour, or is it an hour now? I think it's still half an hour. Richie Steamboat will be undergoing back surgery shortly under Dr. Joseph Maroon in Pittsburgh. He's been out of action for months with back problems. The injury was bad enough that there's a lot of concern whether he'll be able to continue. With the surgery, it'll be months before he's back in action. And I don't think he comes back. Nope. There's a story regarding Troy Hobbs of Columbus, Ohio. will be doing a trial as an announcer at the George Tragos Lutez Hall of Fame weekend with Joe Briscoe and Jim Ross will be attending. In the story, Hobbs, though, said he was called up a few months ago about position, went through the interviewing process, and said he was one of the final three for announcer position, which he said went to The Miz. That's interesting. Only because they've got announcers in developmental, but didn't bring him in to developmental. It would have been for the main event sidekick position, which is also interesting only because that position would be expected to go to a wrestler and not someone who's never worked for the company nor gone through their style of announcing training. Well, about that. Let's close with this. <laughs> this is the next week. Um, in what is in the For What It's Worth department, Troy Hobsa, who we wrote about last week, claimed he was a sponsor for announcing job Mid Scott, which seems strange since they trained their announcers in the middle first anyway. Let's tell people the same story three years ago. About being a fonts for announcer job. He's also from Columbus, Nebraska, not Columbus, Ohio, as we had in last week's issue. What, is he going to go on Jenny Jones and claim to be the gay WWE Junior Heavyweight Champion, too? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, that's 
There is a picture. He has a he, he has a YouTube video up, I think, or have one up of his tryout in 2012. Oh yeah, that's. Let's play this. I. Oh no, he has a few things up. Or whoever's YouTube, this is has a few things up. All right, so let's start with that alleged 2012 tryout, I guess. Hello, San Diego. The WWE. Okay, this is clearly not an actual WWE tryout. Nope. Because it wouldn't be in that in a reverby room like that. But this is this video is property of Warbus Federation and its affiliates. Warbus Entertainment, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> and the YouTube channel is titled WWE Twenty Four, and then spelled out seven. Uh, it's for Hobbs's channel. Uh, um, we have him doing mock ring announcing for WWE superstars. Oh, he's a tryout for Mass Square Garden. No, it's like him doing live event plus. I know. Idea. I know. I know. We have doing something on indie shows. Uh, what, what? So it would just have this guy just pretending to. <laughs> 2014 WWE talent evaluation packet. The following tag team contest is set for one fall. Introducing first, from Cincinnati, Ohio, weighing 225 pounds, Dean Ambrose. <laughs> what the fuck is this guy doing? He hasn't uploaded anything in eight years. Uh, so. so he wants people to think he ought... Uh, I don't know. When he's and I... <laughs> Oh, he has a separate YouTube channel, too, is Troy Hobbs. Outstanding. Let's see if there's anything different on that one. Uh... There's uh, not, as many video- not as many videos. Well, there's a lot of more current videos. And mostly not the WWE-related Well, stuff. anyway, enough about Troy Hobbs. Oh, we have his daughter's birthday. Well, no- nobody cares about that. All right, um... So anyway, that is it for this week. Yay. We made it through. All right, for those of you that uh, probably hated this week, <laughs> and I know there are a lot of people that listen to this show that hate when we do current, that we do current. more current, current <laughs> sh- well, more current shows. More recent. Less current as in the 2000s. You get a reprieve next week as we're going to 1995. Where we'll have uh, an update on the Davy Boy Smith trial, which has been rescheduled. What's Chris Benoit going to do? Is he going to WWF? Is he going, is he going to stay in ECW? We'll have news on that. We got Raw. We got TV tapings to talk about. We have 6995 to talk about. Ooh. Kiratawa and Shakuara winning the double tag titles from Mitsuamasa and Kenokabashi. So we'll have that and Dave's thoughts on that. We'll have uh, New Japan running some big shows, including Arn Anderson on tour in New Japan at this point in time. Big announcement IWA Japan involving Dan Severin. We have all kinds of other uh, indie scum going on there. We have a Triple Mania show to talk about in Triple R. So there's that. Uh, we got all kinds of indie stuff. Just who is in charge of HHG? 
Oh, boy. We'll have news on, we'll have news on that. Plus, Shane Douglas is at the uh, WF ta- TV tapings during our week. <laughs> ECW runs a show in an interesting venue in Philadelphia. We'll have that. Plus, we've got some interesting promos for television. Matt Bourne gets arrested. So, we'll have news on that. Uh, the Gangsters are leaving Smoky Mountain Wrestling. We'll talk about that. We have uh, Memphis Memories 2 during our week. We'll have a full rundown of that. Plus, uh, Louisville. The Louisville Memory Show during our week. That was, uh, oh, God, what did they call that one? They they didn't call it Louisville Memories. What was it? It was something else. I can't remember. It was Night of something, maybe? Yeah, Night of the Legends or something like that. And in WCW, yes, it is time for a new WCW television show. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. No guests because we're going to try to get some of the Patreon knocked out. So we got to get that going. So anyway, next week on Between the Sheets should be quite the show. All right, Bix. Thanks as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris and so long from the Peach State of Georgia.